To another exciting edition of Directors Club. I'm your host, Jim Laskowski, but this is not just any plain old episode. No, no, no. This is the big one. The one I think always gets kind of the most attention every year. Some people even write in before this episode comes out just to say, I can't wait for this. <laughs> and uh, I think someone even sent in their top 10 films, though I don't even reach out to everyone anymore the way I used to in years past, because I know how long this show always goes. Yes, it is the year-end spectacular where my guests and I reveal our favorite films that we think are worth your time. The ones we think, yeah, you should seek these out, but we're going to have a good conversation about them as well. Uh, I am just so excited because I have two guests Two very important special guests, two dear friends. Our first guest has been kind enough to contribute every other month or so, and boy, howdy, has he done spectacular work for us here. Uh, in addition to uh, recording several film commentaries and writing essays, not to mention his own wonderful podcast supporting characters, it's good to talk once again with my dear friend, Bill Ackerman. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited to do this and uh, curious to hear both of your lists. <laughs> Yes, I, I I tend to take it off of Letterbox public until this episode comes out every year. Like I, there's like a month span of like I'm just not going to let anybody know what I loved until I reveal it all here and now. Also, our other guest today was kind enough to take over the show for a few years, and I'm still grateful for that alone. But he 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 also makes an effort to see as much as he can every year. Uh, welcome back former co-host Brad Strauss. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be back and uh, great to be talking with you guys again. Jim, we get, we get to talk a lot, but Bill, this is like our reunion since uh, the Robert Altman show. I know. It's been several years now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a great episode. Yeah, I know a lot of you are probably, you know, itching to hear Patrick's voice because this is kind of the one time where he does pop back on for the for director's club but in case you didn't know he's hard at work on a new music podcast and boy does he work hard on that show and if i were making a top 10 favorite podcasts of the year list uh his would be right up there and that is uptown song club which um i'm sure in the future it's very possible both bill and brad will make an appearance on that terrific music podcast of patrick's yeah, I believe he's editing an episode that I'm on right now. Wow, at this very minute, that'd be wild. <laughs> yeah, uh, it will be. Yeah, that sounds like fun. Love, love music too. Yes, yeah. yes. I think um, 
I was on for the first few episodes there, and boy, is he just the the kind of editing he's doing with that show is kind of mind blowing. Uh, but uh, the good news too is that it's now going to be linked over at nowplaynetwork.net. So he's uh, joining the family, and it makes sense because Tracks of the Damned is also still linked uh, there as well. But the website will also get a nice, clean, new look, hopefully by Valentine's Day, along with a, the, the, a couple of other new movie podcasts are going to be added to the family. In fact, you may be hearing an ad or two for the first time for those new additions to the network, and it's an honor to welcome them both. More on that later. Uh, so we just got to get to this because as everyone knows, when you host a movie podcast, even if this one is mainly about older films and directors, you still want to keep abreast uh, of what's being released throughout the year. And we three try to see as much as we can. There's always going to be some blind spots to fill. I know that there's a couple of Hong Sang Soo movies I didn't get to see. There's going to be things that I'm just like, oh, shucks, I got to add this to my list and see it eventually. Which is what I think the joy of having this discussion, you know, entails for for not just me, but the listeners, of course. They're going to have a lot of great titles to add to their queue. Or maybe you're just going to get mad at your listening device. Who knows? (laughs) Uh, That can happen. People can be like, wait a minute, why did you put that on your list? I think lists are basically just made to um, not just spark conversation, but to get people riled up. Hence the sight and sound uh, new poll or the new list that came out this past year. Uh, but with, let's not talk about that. That's not, we don't have to get into that because uh, plenty of people have been having that conversation for a while. Um, so let's sort of discuss like, yeah, why we put ourselves through this every year, <laughs> recounting our favorite, you know, moments in film. Uh, but also, you know, whether personally or cinematically speaking, what did you think of 2022? We'll start with bill. How did 2022 treat you in general? And, uh, what did you think of the movie year, too? Well, I mean, this has been uh, one of the more dramatic years of my life in just general. Uh, everything from uh, a lot of traveling. I-, I had to move suddenly in the middle of the year after 13 years at my old address. Uh, had uh, a couple of friends pass away suddenly. Mm. Uh, uh, recorded some commentaries and a bunch of podcasts and did uh, interviewed uh, Kayla Janice on stage at a film festival. So I had some some fun uh, personal kind of and professional uh, highlights, but it was definitely a, a roller coaster emotionally. Um, as far as the film, it's like every year where I think for the first half of the year, I don't even have... 10 films that I really feel anything about, um, you know, f- lists like this would be unthinkable by midway through the year. And then things start piling up that I really like. And uh, I go to the film festivals and I, I get recommendations from friends like yourself. And then next thing you know, I'm trying to slim it down to 40 for my blog. So it's, you know, I, I think, um, I think this year, uh, I, I, I have more things on my list that are a little less professional, uh, like that are a little bit more amateurish that I kind of just appreciate their spirit. It felt like a year where you had a lot of big budget epics that there was no audience waiting for them. <laughs> uh, it feels like the chapters that bookend the main narrative of Easy Riders Raging Bulls, where you have a whole lot of costly, lengthy fiascos. And I don't know what that means for the business, but, you know, in a year where you have Babylon or the Fablemans or 
uh, Armageddon time or um, there's another one I'm trying to think of, but uh, just different. Uh, oh, the, the Northman uh, and whether or not these films work artistically is a totally different matter. I mean, I like Heaven's Gate, but I mean, when you have this many films that show the director realizing a large canvas vision, all basically making less than uh, Tars, another one, um, making less than Violent Night combined. <laughs> you know, I think that I don't know if we're going to have another year like this one, where you're going to have prestige films playing theatrically. I think I think that we might be reaching the end of what we grew up with as far as how the movie business operates. Um, so that's a little bit... Uh, it's a little bit sobering, but the actual art of film, uh, there's no shortage of people with uh, vision and talent. So it'll just, you know, move to streaming or other things will emerge to take its place. But I think that the, I think that the pandemic just put the fast forward button on the death of theatrical exhibition for like 99% of the movies that come out. Uh, And I don't know. So it's, it's been an interesting year to watch just from the business side of it, which is not usually the part of film that really fascinates me. Although the cultural part of it, I think just cable television and things like the rehearsal or things like white Lotus. I mean, that seems to drive the conversation uh, a lot more in the mainstream than anything film related. Uh, And I think, you know, we, we kind of travel in like a cinephile bubble where, you know, a film like tar is a big talking point, but I think I think that, uh, I don't know, movies are just becoming a lot more niche, it feels like to me. Um, and I don't know if you'd agree or not. I mean, I, Marvel and Star Wars type things aside, uh, it just feels like it's becoming a little bit more of a private interest. Um, but I don't know. The, I still I still found plenty of things to love and, and to talk about with you. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I, I think I do agree. And it's a little scary, but I'm also just trying to roll with it at the same time and be like, well... The majority of people now seem to have this reaction. I may not catch that in theaters because 30 days later or two months later, it's going to be on Disney Plus or whatever streaming service you want to put insert there. Uh, and they're right. Yeah. They're right. I mean, the <clears throat> this the turnaround for The Fablemans, which is Steven Spielberg. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, from theatrical release to streaming was what? How many weeks? Two? Three? Yeah. I'm, I mean, more or less. And that's... A, that's <laughs> shocking in a way um and then again i do think of the success of top gun maverick you know because people were just kind of flocking to the theater or making an effort to see that in imax to where i'm like hmm i don't know uh i mean then you have avatar which i don't know i don't know if it's it's gonna make huge unbelievable numbers like top gun maverick because i don't i mean there's there's certainly an audience for it but it made a billion dollars, and yet it's oh. <laughs> only halfway to breaking even. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. It's It feels like we are at a very transitionary period to where it could just all be relegated to we're watching you know, movies like Tar at home f- first and foremost, which is sad. And I know a lot of people feel that way, though. It's a lot easier to just stay home and... You know, if you're if you're already paying nine ninety nine or twelve ninety nine for a streaming service, it's I can see why too because it's not cheap to go out. You parking and the movie ticket itself. There's a lot of reasons why we sort of have to be a little bit more economical and you know uh, conservative with how we spend our money. So 
I, I get it. It's sad. But then again, there are places like the music box where it's like, oh, yeah, it's affordable. It's great. The, you know, they've improved the sound system. So it's just kind of like it's never going to be completely dead. No way. Not for me. You know, we have places like the Siskel so, and, and, and the music box. So I don't think it's ever going to completely die out, but it certainly feels like it is. it could very well be on its last legs in terms of multiplexes, which I know are struggling to stay alive. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's films on my list that played for a couple of days or a week in New York, and I know they have U.S. distributors, and they might open in a longer run next year, or they might just go to streaming. It's like I don't I don't begrudge them economically if that's what they feel like is the right thing to do. I mean, there's plenty of films that we'll probably talk about today, like After Sun, that um, you can rent it for twenty bucks right now, yeah, <laughs> or, or buy it for yeah. I mean, but it's you know. I don't know how many people casually, you know, make those kind of choices for like movies they haven't seen other than people like us. <laughs> Good you point. Know. What is, what do you think, Brad? Uh, how do you feel? Cause I feel like we're having a very similar conversation that we kind of did last year too. Very, very much so. Although I feel just it's more so because I know last year, Patrick was really down on the year and, and felt like he needed to, talk about more older films to complement this year's films. And I was a little bit more high on last year. Like I was really into most of my top 25. This year, it's a lot rougher. This year, it's like I really love mostly kind of like the first six on my list. And then I, I mean, I, I really enjoy the others too, but they're all kind of with caveats and issues. And in a normal year, it shouldn't be that way. It should be uh, just like, you know, the grand old days of 1999 when <laughs> a, a, a classic was coming out every other week. But, you know, because of the way the um, film industry is working now, it, it's not happening. You have an entire first part of the year, not even the first part, until November, where aside from uh, gigantic blockbusters, very little comes out that uh, I found memorable. I think the big exception this year was everything everywhere all at once kind of catching fire, but that's almost, you know, the it's proven by the exception when that happens. Yeah. Usually that's not happening. And we are dealing with um, the top guns and the movies. And, and yeah, I, I agree with you guys. Yeah. Movies aren't going anywhere. People are still going to pay to see, see these blockbusters, to see these franchise films, but what's going to happen to uh, films geared for adults? And, you know, that that's really questionable because I myself spent spend much more time at the music box than at any multiplex. And, you know, most of the movies that I saw this year, I saw either there or at home streaming um uh, on, uh, I'm one of the last people who has the uh, Netflix uh, rental service, so I, st I still do that. But, um, but I, you know, I wonder if it's kind of following the course of music. Well, uh, as, a, as a rock fan, I've certainly noticed that uh, rock and roll, it's just not on the charts anymore, and it's becoming a niche thing. It's basically rock music is heading the way of jazz hmm. as something that's always going to be here and always going to be great, but it's just going to have this very limited audience. And 
you know, we've been warned for a number of years now that this is the direction we're heading with uh, non-blockbuster, non-franchise films. And, you know, we seem to be here. Film has survived other challenges. Film survived uh, when television first came about, when uh, home media first came about. Um, you know, but that's the past. Now we have to look forward and hope that it, uh, it crosses this threshold. Yeah, well, it's interesting you 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 bring that up. I mean, I think about home media and um, how that, for many years, was the lifesaver to so many of the films that we love. As far as whether or not they eked out any kind of profit in the theater, maybe they didn't, but they found their audience on video. They they could be profitable on video cassette and then DVD or Laserdisc. And I think that when that really disappeared, which I mean it it. For the most part, I mean, physical media still exists, but it's not really the mainstream, I don't think, at this point. Um, and it's more of a collector's market than a way that people see new releases. Um, like something like um, Coda doesn't even have a physical media release. And that one best picture, you know, uh, because that just lives on Apple Plus. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's 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 dip, there's not as many ways to earn a profit on a movie. Um, and with theatrical going away, it'll just be streaming and things like that and i don't know that that's gonna work for a lot of types of movies so they're just not gonna make them um, well you mentioned uh coda and i haven't seen coda neither have i and even <laughs> right and we're we're all incredible movie buffs i don't have apple plus no neither. i i actually didn't know that it just wasn't getting a physical media release because i was thinking of trying to uh rent it from netflix or something but I didn't see it in the theater when it came out and, you know, best picture, someone like me, someone like you, we definitely would tend to see movies like that. Yet somehow Coda is a little out of reach for us. Yeah. Unless you want to pay Apple, which, you know, I mean, that's, that's the way people, I mean, I think Coda made $2 million, which is less than happiness made with an unrated release in 1998. I mean, that's, that's, it was a small film. I mean, even smaller than Nomadland. I mean, these are, I mean, that's the thing when I talk about film becoming more niche, it's like no one's seen these best picture winners outside of film people. And then, I mean, you know, Jim mentions, you know, the sight and sound and John Dielman, which I love John Dielman, but John Dielman is an obscure type film that just, it just makes the, it just makes it feel like a lot more uh, niche and not speaking to the general public, these kinds of uh, honoring. I mean, you know, and that's, I mean, just, I don't know that just like film people like doubling down on just what they like, regardless of fashion. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I agree with you that the, um, yeah, the, the way that something like Coda is not even out on physical media. I mean, I have the Netflix DVDs service also, <laughs> Uh, and I thought about seeing, but like, well, unless I feel like giving Apple at least a month of my, you know, like a month service, uh, I can't see that movie unless I torrent it. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, it's a little strange. I mean, I certainly had a fear that, you know, uh, something like Roma was just going to live on Netflix, but thankfully Criterion, you know, they put it out and I was just like, well, they should just be doing this more often, uh, you know, for certain prestige titles or, you know, just, just so people can see them in a different format and, Ideally, that's a, certainly a movie you want to see on the big screen, but that's it's a it's it's a weird weird time that I don't know how I feel about, and certainly even this like you mentioned, Bill, the sight and sound list almost reflects this weird time. And that's not to say that I want John Dealman on that list because I do think it's a, a masterpiece, but it's just at the same time I'm like, 
why isn't Jaws on the list? Or why isn't any Spielberg movie on the list? That's because that's kind of how what hooked me into movies are the big spectacle, your Back to the Future, your Jaws, your E.T. You know, I mean, that's it's a little surprising, but I realize I think you're, you're on to something and that it's becoming more niche or even with buying physical media. I think that's become its own brand of niche uh like this, the cinephiles are definitely going to come out in droves and get a special release. And certainly, you've contributed to a lot of the great releases, Bill, on on Fun City or these exclusive labels. So I'm glad those are out there. Uh, but at the same time, I do think, in res- response to like what Bill, what Brad was saying about the um, music industry, people just find it so much more convenient to stream music on Spotify than even to go on Bandcamp and support the artists and buy their records. It's just, you know, they don't, they got to spend money on food. <laughs> you know, they got to th- think about their budget. It never does any favors to the film that gets introduced to somebody like, this is the best film of all time. Sit back and watch Citizen Kane be the best film of all time or Vertigo. And John Dillon will have more detractors than it ever had before. Uh, but more people will see it and maybe one out of 10 will like it. <laughs> uh, you know, but um, I mean, I, I think about that one, like films I really treasure, like Mulholland Driver in the Mood for Love go closer and closer to the top and like don't give it number one because it'll it'll just <laughs> confuse people you get a lot of random people like thinking that movie is terrible because they don't understand <laughs> yeah well the, the backlash often happens even with movies that get a lot of acclaim coming out of festivals sometimes oh yeah you know and i just i get hyped up for something and then when i see it, i'm like oh that was all right <laughs> and i yeah. feel bad and sometimes i do think i should just tune out when things like TIFF are, are happening because then I get suckered into just film Twitter and, you know, p- people just saying like, this is the best thing I've seen or whatever. And then I'll see it and have a, I already have like a predetermined response, like a bias going in thinking, Oh, somebody said this was amazing. Or a, a lot of people said this was amazing. So now I'm thinking it's going to be. And then when it's not, it's like th- all these yeah and lists like this i think are arbitrary and ranking them is even more arbitrary but at the same time it's like a tradition that i've been doing for so long that it feel weird not to do it that way but i understand why people are not doing ranked lists as much anymore because there's almost like a backlash to the list making process <laughs> yeah the last interview i did for supporting characters with imogen sarah smith and she was complaining about the uh the male cinephile tendency towards list making. <laughs> Ooh, boy. I, I consider lists a conversation starter, not a conversation ender. Yes. Well, we do start out not with a list, but what we call ancillary awards. You know, just our own little Oscars, mini Oscars, if you will, where we sort of just uh, highlight some favorite moments from particular films or favorite performances and. That's another thing that uh, Patrick and I started that we enjoy and want to continue the tradition of doing. Uh, I will go first with, um, I believe the first category is the hardest you laughed in 2022. This is always tough because I'm realizing more and more that sometimes even if I watch something, and maybe it is because I watch so much, things don't always commit to memory to where I even went back and watched a couple of moments or segments to see, oh yeah, that's right, this is as funny as I thought. Uh, and one kind of stood out uh, above the rest, and it involves Annie uh, Mumolo, who was 
so hilarious in Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, but this year she had a sequence in a movie that didn't crack my list, but I do recommend it, and that is uh, Confess Fletch, and it involves her preparing dinner in a kitchen <laughs> with a befuddled John Hamm as she says a lot of absurd things, has to deal with her peeing dog, and nearly burns her kitchen down, that whole sequence. I, I just find her to be insanely funny as a performer. And when she showed up and confessed Fletch, I knew I would be laughing hard. Uh, but I also need to give a quick shout out to how much I love seeing Andre 3000 dancing with a box of cookies during the closing credits of White Noise. That it maybe didn't make me laugh out loud, but I certainly smiled at just that visual. And that whole closing credits is very memorable indeed. So that's my choice uh, is Confess Fletch with uh, that Annie Mumolo sequence. Nice. I, I, I didn't have a um, I, I didn't have a hardest you laugh scene, uh, but I just put in general Confess Fletch, funnily enough. Um, oh, good. I, it I is funny. Was, I think that was one of the only films that I don't I don't laugh at a lot of movies, unfortunately. I mean, I laugh a lot in conversations with my friends, but I don't uh, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a hard sell when it comes to movie comedy, I guess. And uh, Confess, uh, Confess Fletch was a film that made me laugh out loud, uh, but I don't have a specific moment. I didn't get a chance to rewatch it for this. I just remember. Uh, well, we'll probably talk about it again. But uh, I, I just remember a lot of consistent one liners that uh that got a rise out of me. And so, uh, yeah, that that's the film that I would go with. Not a great year for comedies. I got to say. Mm. Yeah. Well, I've noticed that's kind of a pattern is that for me, uh, nothing that's marketed as an actual comedy is something that I find very funny, except that movies that are other types of movies that happen to have funny moments can have really funny moments, including uh, a gem from earlier in the year that I'm going to be, saying a lot of, which is everything, everywhere, all at once, which had any number of things that were absolutely laugh out loud, everything from uh, hot dog fingers to uh, raccoons on people's heads, <laughs> and uh, most importantly, um, awards that look like butt plugs. Uh, it, was, it was rich, and one of the things I loved about how this movie handled its comedy is it actually worked in repetition, so... If, if it was funny the first time, the way they filmed it, it actually kept being funny. Yeah. Well, that'll that'll come up later for sure. I, I have no doubt. Um, but the next category would be best use of a song. And you mentioned that uh, you're going to be saying that particular title, Brad, uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once a lot. I'm going to be saying this title a lot for a reason that is probably very obvious, especially if you follow me on social media. But uh, one of my top five favorite songs of all time happens to be Under Pressure by Queen. And when it was used in World's Greatest Dad, I was really floored uh, and elated for that particular uh, scene and sequence in that film. But and, I, and when I saw that, I was like, well, you, you can't top that, really. Uh, but I think they kind of did in After Sun more towards the end that that the use of under pressure kind of floored me so that has to be my pick i'm sure there are many other great ones as well but i'm going with under pressure in after sun nice i uh i went with burn baby burn in the documentary riotsville usa um mm. this is a uh a moment in the it's a, uh, a moment in the film where uh, it's just following the assassination of Martin Luther King, uh, and we have this footage of a cable access show with these two guys playing this gentle folk song, 
uh, and you think that it's, you know, kind of aiming to uh, calm down or uh, yeah, soothe a, a mourning population, but it's uh, as you listen to the lyrics, it's just them unsmilingly, unsmilingly kind of giving this call to, to violent retaliation, uh, and it's just this kind of weird kind of uh, contrast between this gentle melodic music and like this very angry uh, kind of sentiment. Uh, but it really kind of stuck with me. Um, I also will also just give a quick shout out to the um, documentary, Is That Black Enough For You? And the, what they explain about uh, the uh, the song Walk On By in relation to Sergio Leone. I won't spoil it, but it's a pretty interesting moment um, mm. uh, as far as music and uh, and how it's used in, in black exploitation and what it's meant to evoke. Yeah, I need to catch up with that. I've been meaning to. I will yeah. for sure. Up until a few days ago, I was getting ready to pick uh, David Bowie's star from Glass Onion, which ah. is used in a wonderful sequence. But a couple days ago, I saw women talking, and that changed the whole dynamic here because they use the monkey's daydream believer to great effect. It's actually integral to the plot. The lyrics uh, are reflected in the themes of the film. And it plays a really big role in helping us understand when the movie is set, because we have a different understanding of the film when we wonder if it's uh, set 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Uh, but thanks to the monkeys, we find out it's set uh, much more recent, and the, they use the song twice, both times to great effect. Oh, absolutely agree with that choice, for sure. That's a good one. Uh, best line of dialogue, always hard. Because there's usually some great scripts out there with some, uh, it, it's, there's just so much to choose from with this particular category. Uh, I, I tend to go with something sweet. It sort of sums up my feelings uh, about why I love what I love. But uh, once again, from After Sun, this line is very simple and sweet. It's, I think it's nice that we share the same sky. Uh, I just I find that really moving. And, and even another one from Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is simple. What happens happens and then we're gone. So I really like those two quite a bit. Yeah, those are great lines. I, I, I'm going to have to sit out this category. I don't have I don't have a line of dialogue. <laughs> That's OK. No, that happens. That definitely happens. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, again, it, there's just so much to choose from, too. And we don't always retain it either. So it's fine. Well, I have an excerpt uh, from Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, which uh, has a lot to say about art. And it's probably said most directly by a character played by uh, Judd Hirsch, who uh, gives a pretty uh, intense speech to our young protagonist. And part of it goes like this, which I really love. It says, uh, art will give you crowns in heaven and laurels on earth, but will also tear your heart out and leave you lonely. You'll be a Shanda for your loved ones, an exile in the desert, a gypsy. Art is no game. Art is as dangerous as a lion's mouth. It'll it'll bite your head off. Well, that was uh, Tony Kushner writing that. Congratulations, Tony Kushner. That's good stuff. It sure is. Delivered by uh, Judd Hirsch, of course. Oh, boy. What a memorable moment that is. Uh, oh, again, another tough one. Best acting newcomer. 
I'm going to go with a couple of younger performances uh, this time around. Uh, Ryan Sarlacc from Hit the Road uh, is one of them for sure. I just, I, again, because most of the time I find kid performances a little grating and cer- certainly somebody can have that reaction towards him in that movie, but I thought he was adorable and wonderful. And <laughs> some of the things he says, that's just unlike anything I've heard from a, from a kid in a film before, but of course, you know, I predictably me, I'm going to go with, I'm going to stick with this as my top pick. And that's uh, Frankie Cur- Curio from after sun. Nice. I went uh, with Park Ji Min, I think is how you say her name. Uh, the uh, the lead in Return to Seoul. Oh, good I choice. It's her first film, and uh, she carries the entire thing. Yes. And uh, is really compelling. So, uh, yeah, got to go with her. Oh, Jim, I'm, I'm really on board with both your choices. The, the one I picked was uh, Frankie Curio for After Sun, who carries the film and for mm-hmm. uh, such a young actor who this is her first uh, movie role as far as I know uh, it, it's incredibly impressive she has to put forth so many different types of emotions uh, as the film goes on and really reveal the film through her performance so it, it's pretty outstanding one of the uh, when I first saw this the cast list for uh, my choice coming up here for best ensemble, I kind of knew. <laughs> I had a feeling <laughs> when I saw. It, I was like, "Oh, well, there." I have a. I, I just knew right off the top where I was, when I saw that who was in this movie. I just went, "I have a feeling," and I was right. Uh, my choice for best ensemble is women talking. Simple as that. I don't need to go into great detail. You know why? <laughs> yeah, I knew that before I even saw the film that that was going to be your. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> your choice. But um, did you know it is also mine? So double, oh, double right. there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that I did not know. I knew I knew Jim, but I did not know. Um, and uh, I went with um, the the ensemble from Banshees of uh, Inisherin. Sure, that would probably be my second choice. You're right. Everybody's mm-hmm. great in that movie too. Uh, most nail biting moment. Uh, there's there's a couple. Uh, there's one in the film Marina involving a spear gun <laughs> that had me on edge. There's a sequence towards the end of Kimmy that involves a nail gun. So I guess I just have a thing for guns uh, and also well, nail biting, nail gun, that kind of works. But for me, it isn't so much a su- like a surprise, like, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting choice I'm going with here. Uh, once I kind of realized what this filmmaker was doing, and I'll touch upon this more later, but and I think, Bill, you know what I'm talking about when I just say the final shot of Julian Higgins' God's Country. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, just wondering how this, because it's such a long take, and it's you just you're just kind of mesmerized by what's going to happen, even though you kind of know what's going to happen. It was still like I was still on edge watching that entire final shot, and it's really powerful. Yeah, no, it's a great it's a great moment. I think for for um, nail biting moment, um, this is a film that I had too many issues with the writing in the last third of it to even put it on my list but i was very much gripped by it for at least an hour and uh is the movie fall and um i guess the the moment when i mean it 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 builds suspense for a while before you know that things are going to go wrong it's it's about these two women climbing this this tower uh recklessly and um 
you know because it's the film you've gone to see that you know, there's going to be problems and it, it builds tension for a while before things uh you know start falling apart um and i won't spoil any of it but um i think that would probably be i mean i saw a lot of horror movies in 2022 and i think there are moments in men and smile that are pretty startling yes but i think for um for what just immediately occurred to me, I think fall would be the most tense I felt at a movie. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to see as many horror movies as I would have liked, but one that I did, I'm really fond of, which is barbarian. Mm. And that movie is tense and suspenseful throughout. So there's any, all kinds of moments I could choose from that movie. But probably uh, in the first part, when you end up uh, with our lead uh, wandering into a dungeon-like basement that should not be uh, under any house, let alone the house she is in, and then finding a room that should not be in any basement one would find. Uh, And the implications of that and what you realize uh, could be happening in the film is uh, pretty tense. So I would pick Barbarian. Good choice. Yeah. Creepy stuff. Creepy stuff in that. Um, for best actor, oh, some of these just really get to me because I'm like, I want to choose more than one. And I usually end up doing that anyway. <laughs> but uh, Paul Mescal for After Sun is really where my heart is overall. But uh, it's so neck and neck with Colin Farrell, who just gets better and better every year. To where if he does win the Oscar for Banshees, I would be overjoyed for him because he would deserve it. But at the same time, I, I've obviously known, I've seen Paul Mescal and other things. I haven't seen that Hulu show that he's gotten a lot of acclaim for. But um, I know he was in The Lost Daughter and uh, he was in uh, God's Creatures from this year as well. But uh, I was kind of really t- astonished by what he does in After Sun. So that's my pick for Best Actor. Yeah, I wasn't sure if we were doing a non-gendered category because you didn't put best actress in the... Um, oh, I didn't. In, I should have. I'm e- sorry. In the email. <laughs> oh, it <laughs> so should be. Yeah, it should I wrote be. Down, um, so I, I only wrote down actresses uh, because, uh, well, I, I don't know. I, I thought that's what we were doing. I, I so goofed. I goofed. Sorry. It's it's okay. But uh, So I'll just say that um, I think in terms of performances this year, I don't think there was anyone better than Kate Blanchett or Tilda Swinton, probably, but I'll give it to Andrea Riseborough uh, as a joint uh, for To Leslie and for Please Baby Please, which um, I never recognize her in each film. I, I, I have to look up after the movie is over who it was, and it's, oh, it's that it's that woman from Mandy. She's in this too. But um, I, I thought that she was remarkable in both of those films, and they, they need to get a little bit more attention than they got. And also shout out to Mia Goth in uh, Pearl and X, uh, whatever issues I might have with those films. She's fantastic in them. So um, good year for, for actresses. I agree 100% to the point where I, we have the same pick with Andrea Riseborough. <laughs> so I won't, I won't say you said it all. You said it all. Okay. I agree too, that just there's such a plethora of wonderful, uh, female lead performances this year more so than male lead so whereas uh my actress category is going to be packed and i had to be doing a lot of choosing i had to search a little bit more for actor and uh who i ended up with uh, is hassan majuni from hit the road a mm. wonderful iranian uh family film and 
I haven't seen in a long time an actor play this many notes of fatherhood. Sure. And play it both understated and also in a way that you could see it all in his eyes, how powerful it is, both, uh, you know, the pride, fear, exhaustion of being a father and kind of the responsibility of being a father is all really embodied uh, in this uh, wonderful actor's performance. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Um, yeah, I'll just give a quick shout out to for Rebecca Hall. Cause I just love her and everything. Uh, <laughs> she has a monologue in resurrection. That's just, you're, you're right, Bill too. And that Mia goth also like in Pearl, Holy cow. Both of them had incredible moments with just delivering monologues for like what feels like an endless amount of time, but it's, they're both very effective and, I don't know. I it's Rebecca Hall just like both between The Night House and Resurrection. I'm just like I will follow, I will watch anything she does too. Uh for best supporting actor, I Wait, I I, I didn't do actress. Oh, sorry. Stuff. You're right. <laughs> Go ahead. Yep. I know we got But I uh and it, it was a tough one cuz I was thinking about uh Michelle Williams for The Fablemans, uh who is absolutely at her best and giving something very outgoing and intense, but I think in the end, even though I, this is probably the more well-known and will probably get awarded again performance, it, it's got to be Kate Blanchett in Tar. Uh, she does so many notes, and uh, again, all internally. She's an, an interior person who only shows you certain things about her so that she can convey what's going on inside her mind as she's going through really a lot of trauma and a lot of uh, mixed feelings about things that are happening to her. Uh, she does it all. So Kate Blanchett uh, for Tar is wonderful. Yep. Yeah. No argument here. <laughs> no, no, for sure. I, I think she's going to win. We'll see. Um, best supporting actor. I, I have to say that, uh, Paul Dano had a very interesting year with two very different performances in the Batman and the Fablemans. I, I don't think he's getting as much acclaim for the Fablemans. I just, I just liked him. I wouldn't, he wouldn't be my top pick, but I just, I don't know. I think he does some good things in that film and most people are just kind of like dismissing him. I feel, uh, but I went with good old short round Ki Huai Quan in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, who also has some of the key dialogue deliveries in that film that really moved me. He won the Chicago Film Critics Awards, and I was just, I guess, I, it's similar to how a lot of people are, are championing uh, Brendan Fraser. It's kind of like, they're not the best all-time like great performances or anything. I'm just happy <laughs> that they're getting recognition and love again because they're well deserved and and they're sort of making a comeback both of them in, in really truly special ways and i just really liked his presence throughout that movie and he's able to again embody so many different personas uh in that film to where yeah i, I i'm gonna give him my best supporting actor nod yeah yeah i i had a hard time picking one for this category i i i, I thought about Barry, is it Keegan or yeah? Uh, I th but our, uh, yeah, I think it's Keegan. Yeah, 
Yeah, um, from Banshees of Inshiran. Um I I think he's getting his his just due for that performance. So I I thought I would give it to Pascal Gregory, who plays the ailing father in Mia Hansen Loeb's uh, One Fine Morning. Uh, he's so good in that film that I, I I really don't even feel like he's acting at all, and uh, it's completely invisible technique. Um, he he just feels like a, a a man with dementia that they brought in and are shooting around him. So. Uh, really, almost so remarkable that you kind of underrated if you if you watch the film, I think. But uh, um, that's the one I would go with, uh, just off the top of my head. I don't want to underrate Paul Dano in The Fablemans because I think uh, his performance is really strong and essential to the film. Um, if he's a little outdone by Michelle Williams, it's kind of because of the dynamics of the characters. But uh, he's actually not who from that film I'm going to give this to. I'm going to do a little bit of a cheat because my favorite supporting performances were two actors who had one scene each in The Fableman. So I'm going to give it to it jointly to uh, Judd Hirsch as uh, as the uncle and David Lynch as John Ford, who each, again, only had one scene, but they are unforgettable. And if you see The Fablemans, you, you will not be able to uh, just get past kind of how essential each of those performances are to the success of the film. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, very predictable for me here with, with best supporting actress. She was my best supporting actress last year. Uh, And she's my choice again, because along with Michelle Williams, my other favorite uh, working actress today is, the remarkably talented Jesse Buckley, who gave two great performances this year in Men. Uh, and of course, I'm talking about uh, her work in Women Talking. Because, uh, I mean, there's, a, again, great ensemble. Everybody sort of brings their A game. I'm, I am I will say when I, this movie comes up later, there's one performer that I was surprised isn't given as much screen time. But uh, what Jesse Buckley does in her moments throughout Women Talking really uh, left me... Um, incredibly moved especially she kind of delivers late in the film the key line of the whole movie i think so she's my pick nice i uh i i went with a film um that i saw trailers for it a lot at the multiplex but it's already available to buy digitally so i'm not quite sure what's going on with the distribution uh for the inspection but uh gabrielle union uh, oh. for Best Supporting Actress. I think uh, she plays the mother in the story. Well, I'll talk about it a little bit more later, but uh, hmm. she's fantastic uh, in, in a very kind of tough, unsentimental uh, character. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think that's probably the best thing I've ever seen her do. So I don't know if people are going to get a chance to see this anytime soon unless they you know, want to rent it for $20. But um yeah, she's she's fantastic, uh, and so I thought I'd give that to her. That's great. I'll have to catch up with that one, too. The only reason I'm not giving this to somebody from Women Talking is just because all the performances are so strong sure. that it, it, for me, is just the true sense of an ensemble, so I couldn't single out one over the other. They're just all wonderful. So the movie I will single somebody out for is... Uh, yeah, we, we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, frustration with the blockbusters and franchises, but I think some of those can actually be really good. And I think one of those is Black Panther Wakanda Forever and Angela Bassett, 
who's had a career of just doing great acting. We can never forget her as uh, Tina Turner. And uh, here in Wakanda Forever, she is the queen of Wakanda, really the only person left after uh, the death of a number of characters from the first movie. And she portrays uh, the charisma, the uh, believable power of having to run a, an entire country on her own shoulders, uh, all while uh, dealing with grief and uh, all kinds of threats from within and without. And uh, Angela Bassett makes it just seem easy. She was great in that movie. Excellent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's great. Mm -hmm. Always, always. Uh, best score. Uh, a movie I didn't like very much, but predictable me. I went with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross for Bones and All, which also includes the song that plays at a very key moment towards the end. Uh, I just I just love everything they do. I don't think this is necessarily getting the kind of attention that previous scores they've done have gotten. Uh, so, and and again, I wish I liked this movie the way a lot of people seem to like it. Uh, I just, but I, the score really worked for me, and it's one that stood out. It was a it was a good year for a lot of good scores for sure. So, I, no, I don't that. even. I'm sorry. Did I step on your line? Oh no, you're fine. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I um, I I had real difficulty with this category. I, I I didn't make note of that many scores this year. Um, the one that I, I wasn't even that crazy about the film, but the I don't, is it Sugua Diaries? Um, it's this uh, film that was made under lockdown conditions. It's kind of this kind of unraveling of a film and uh, like it's they're, they're making the film and but then it's also commenting on the making of the film but that had this kind of uh, guitar driven score to it that always kind of stuck with me i don't remember the composer of it uh but um that that was something that kind of almost carried the film for me on its own um so i i thought since that film is probably a little bit more under the radar i would at least acknowledge that the uh the music is something that stuck with me so sometimes uh, the score is what enhances a great film, but this time I'm going to pick a film where I think the score is the best part of the film. And uh, that is EO, the uh, Polish uh, movie, uh, basically fo following a number of characters through the, uh, through the ownership of a donkey that goes through uh, different owners and different uh, adventures throughout the film. And uh, the score by uh, Powell uh, Mikey Tin, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is really interesting because it veers from score to sound design. And there are scenes uh, such as when uh, the donkey is lost in the woods and from the donkey's point of view, it's kind of a, a psychedelic uh, star, starscape. Uh, and the score is rousing and really memorable and catchy, but other times it's almost in sync with the other sounds of the film. And, and I noticed as the film was kind of having mixed results for me that the thing that really was appealing to me was the score and, and how it was being used. That's yeah, that is yeah. a great pick. Mm -hmm. um, best screenplay. Well, the second it was over, I said, I don't think anything's going to top this. And that's the Banshees of Inishirin. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought about that one. I'm going with Benediction from Terrence Davies. Oh, good pick. Yeah, that that might be my number two. <laughs> and for me, we're we're back to everything, everywhere, all at once. Just a, a film with such endless creativity, going in places that you wouldn't imagine it to go, and uh, just, and also being emotionally fulfilling. So I, I give a lot of that to a really tight screenplay. Good call. Yeah, I'm. Wow, best cinematography. I'm. I'm still wrestling with this choice, but I mean, again, how look how many things are going on in everything, everywhere, all at once? You know, including the various looks of all the multiverses. It might be kind of like one of the more loudest choices for cinematography, versus something like you know more subtle and gorgeous or Malick-like or whatever. But I'm. I'm kind of taken with just how much they accomplish in that film visually that I, I'm going to, I'm thinking I'm going to stick with that choice. Although I'm sure there are other examples. I mean, even EO there's, there's, there's a lot you can pick from Benedictions and other, there's just a lot of gorgeous looking movies from this year, but I kind of went with a zaniest one this time with everything everywhere all at once. Yeah, this is a tough category for me because I think, I think I was really, um, not crazy about the digital look of a lot of films this year. I mean, it's just kind of the nature of how things are shot for most films now, just economically or just because of industry practices. Um, and there was a film that came out this year, Benediction, that I thought about saying, although I think a lot of that is also uh, due to the production design and the costume design and the color palettes that they employ. Um, so I will just do a little bit of a cheat and give a shout to a film that is on the festival circuit, but is opening in uh, next year, but is Ennis, Ennis men, uh, Mark Jenkins kind of experimental folk horror set in the seventies shot in 16 millimeter. I think that has a um, kind of an eerie grainy look that I really uh, quite like. And so uh, I, I, I'm going to go with that one. <laughs> For cinematography, I'm going to go with decision to leave. Sure. Mm. And not just because uh, the ending scenes at the beach is some of the most beautiful I've ever seen, probably the most uh, beautiful scenes of this year uh, due to the way it's shot, but also it has uh, quite a job to do throughout because the movie is told uh, not quite linearly and uh, from a lot of different uh, points of view. And the cinematography is kind of our chief language in helping us keep track of what's happening, following the murder mystery, following the relationships. And uh, it is never uh, not something that is working for the film. No, that's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. It's a movie I, we'll talk about it, but I, <laughs> I'm, I, I wish I responded to it as strongly as most people seem to have had and i'm i'm wondering if it's it's one of those cases of another of another viewing will help uh the worst film of the year well you know again i don't like being mr negative or, or debbie downer but there, there's always a film that you know you can consider to be dis the biggest disappointment as well i had no expectations for this movie but when i watched it I, I was like, I, I, I could easily turn this off and I probably should, but I just want to see if it, if it actually improves in any way. And it never did. Uh, that movie's called dash cam. Uh, I, I hated this movie. And you know, sometimes when 
because for the most part, I'm, I'm, I'm very discerning with what I choose to watch. And I, uh, people know, like I have visceral reactions to things like Rob Zombie, because when you just are so damn nasty and gross and, and vile for vile sake, sometimes I get really upset that, that, that I'm wasting my time. And Dashcam has a reprehensible lead character in this that I just, I, I didn't care if she lived or died or what happened. And I just didn't like the filmmaking. I didn't like anything about it. Uh, so yeah, Dashcam was just awful in every way. And some people do like it. I don't get it. Uh, it's, it's garbage. And, and in terms of disappointment, I have to say, I'm shocked at how much I didn't like Clerks three. Really? That really hurt. <laughs> As I was watching, I'm like, Oh, Kevin Smith, what's become of you? I just can't, ugh, I can't do it anymore. So, uh, but Dashcam, worst film of 2022 for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't mind Dashcam. Um, so I, I, were you drinking? No, I, <laughs> and I, I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't love it, but I, I thought it was an interesting film. Um, you know, uh, so I, but I, I, I get, I get why it would be an easy film to hate. I, I, I was a little bit, reluctant with this category because I think the fir- the film that comes to mind for me is a film that many people seem to like. And I, you know, I, I don't know what to say about it, but uh, I, I think she said is the first film that comes to mind for me, which I saw at the New York film festival. And I thought it was just overwrought and clumsy. And I think that people were conflating their feelings about what those reporters did with the achievements of the filmmakers. But I don't know. I know people that like it. So, I mean, if it seems appealing, I mean, uh, don't, don't listen to me, but I thought I was surprised that anyone liked it. Um, I mean, I, something like the monsters from Rob Zombie, I I think is probably (laughs) more clearly like a, uh, an experiment that shatters the test tubes. Uh, and you know, and it's a much harder film to get through. And, and there were things like the walk, this kind of, uh, yeah, a, a underseen indie film I saw, like set in Boston with race relations, that's pretty bad. But I don't know. I mean, in my heart, I know that she said was the most disappointed I, I felt in a movie theater in 2022. Yeah. And like what you said about Dashcam, I thought that movie was just okay. Like yeah. it was just like, eh. And, and to me, the uh, surprise that I just thought it was just okay, too, you know? Yeah. But. I can see that. Well, my film is one uh, I think it's pretty safe to assume uh, just about everyone hates. Uh, It's the uh, most uh, famously hated film of the year. It's Morbin Time, Morbius. (laughs) I I mean, I don't know, first of all, who who at Sony thinks it's a really great idea that people want to see all these Spider-Man villains without Spider-Man. But even if you're going to do that, this is the movie that so doesn't give a damn about its own story, about its own anything. It just had to get out there to to make residual Spider-Man money, I guess. Because my favorite part is there's a character who gets in a coma, and there's this emotional scene. It's like, you're going to get out of this coma. It's going to be all right. And we never hear from the coma person again. It, It just doesn't happen. You have an ending scene that just makes no sense. It brings back a Michael Keaton character from another movie. Uh, in a way that is just baffling. And the whole, I mean, Jared Leto is terrible in the lead. The whole movie is just dead. It's awful. Yeah, no thanks. Yeah, I missed that one. (laughs) 
Yeah. Good. Good. You're lucky. (laughs) I'm not going to make the effort to see a lot of comic book movies anymore. And I feel bad just being like, like a blanket dismissal of a lot of them. Cause there are obviously good ones that come out just about every year. And I'm sure maybe even one might make your list, Brad. Cause I know it seems like that's a pattern for, for every year you'll find one that, you know, sort of, yeah, I just, it's just, yeah, I just, some of them are just, I don't know why. I mean, they're, they're very, it's often they're over two hours and I just kind of, know what to expect more or less when I watch a comic book movie. And I, I, I tend to want to watch films for the sense of discovery and surprise, or at least, Oh, I've never seen this before or felt this before. And most comic book movies, I'm, it's like a to B to C plotting. And it's not to say like, again, there are comic book, like I even ventured out to see the Sam Raimi, Dr. Strange just because it's Sam Raimi. So there are times when I kind of just go, all right, well, let's see what this director can do with a comic book universe and he did again an okay job some people hated it some people gave it more of a pass but uh yeah i just nah comic book movies i don't get excited about i'll i'll raise a bit of a defense but not in the context of talking about morbius when we'll we'll get to another one (laughs) okay yeah i figured that would that could happen uh most promising discovery again very predictable choice it could be a director or an actor that stood out for you uh, for me, it's Charlotte, uh, Charlotte Wells, no doubt. And you may be noticing a pattern. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I went with James Vaughn, who's the writer director of a film called Friends and Strangers. This, oh, I need uh, to see that Australian comedy. I, I, I knew nothing of him before seeing that, and uh, I thought he had a uh, kind of a unique comic voice. And uh, I bought his uh, short film, and I thought that was pretty enjoyable as well. So um, we'll see what he does. I don't know. New to me. <laughs> uh, for me, it's the uh, director of the Iranian film Hit the Road, uh, Pana, uh, Panahi, who is uh, the son of a very legendary Iranian director named uh, Jafar Panahi. And um, he is showing not the same kind of talent as his father, but a, a bit of a different kind. He's a lot more exuberant. Uh, he seems... Uh, to have a lot more uh, going on uh, with cinematography as opposed to more uh, the deeper character development of his father. But, you know, this is a film that really got my attention and uh, I want to keep seeing films from this director. I'm with you there. Nice. I, I didn't know uh, that they were related to Yep. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess this can go hand in hand, like the, the best older film you saw for the first time, or it could be just a, an experience of seeing an older film on the big screen as well. But uh, I mean, mine kind of just goes hand in hand. That's kind of why I sort of opted for that. But, you know, the, the best older film I saw for the first time is also in the top 10 of the new sight and sound list. And I also saw it at the music box, complete with a live score. And oh, this is a viewing that's been long overdue. And what a perfect way to finally see man with a movie camera, um, mm. which is just a transcendent work of art that blew my mind right from the start. And to be able to see that on the big screen with live accompaniment, I was just kind of, yeah, I was, I was transfixed. I could, I was, I felt like this is why I go to movies is to see something like this. And 
I'm so glad I finally saw it. It's one of those you think I would have saw like in a college film class or something, or at least caught up with by now. But I'm so glad the circumstances I got to finally see this. So that's my big discovery of the year. Yeah, yeah. I I um I went with, with so for older films. As far as like theatrical, I, I I wasn't sure if there was anything that really jumped out at me. But I would just say. For things that were new to me that I discovered that were old, um, Wildwood, New Jersey is the first thing that comes to mind, which is this 1994 documentary by Carol Weeks Cassidy and Ruth Lightman. Um, and it's just a portrait of women and girls that are uh, found in the seaside town of Wildwood, New Jersey, uh, talking about friendship and pregnancy, uh, economic issues, body issues. It's shot on Super 8 and, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. I mean, I was 17 at the time that this film was made. And I think that certainly there is some nostalgia for me. I mean, looking at that. I mean, I didn't grow up near uh, Wildwood, but uh, just as a portrait of young, mostly young women, but not only young women, but like just talking about uh, their thoughts on things. They had a uh, kind of a, a revival at Metrograph uh, in New York this year. And so um, that was, I think, what kind of brought it back to the surface. Um, but it's on YouTube if you're curious um, to see it. Um, and I'll just give a shout out to Madeline, this kind of dreamy 70s art horror with Camille Keaton from 1974 that I saw through Vinegar Syndrome. Freedom, this Mary Winningham TV movie about a teenager who leaves home and just the uh, dramatic situation she gets into, uh, which Fun City Editions put out with um a uh, alternate commentary from Amanda Reyes, which I thought was good. And The Burglars, this 1971 Jean-Paul Belmondo crime caper with a lot of crazy car chases. That's really excellent. And you can find that one on Tubi. Um, but those are some of the uh, new to me uh, films I saw in 2022. All right. I, I got to yeah. add those to my list. Every year I try to get to the Music Box's Noir City Festival. And it's always just has so many great and unknown films uh, and, and noirs that you don't expect. And uh, this is one I had heard of, but I just hadn't gotten around to. And, and I can't believe I hadn't just because it's so amazing, which is uh, William Wyler's 1951 uh, detective story. Oh, with Kirk and Douglas, yeah. It, Kirk, Kirk Douglas absolutely killing it. And really, it's, it's not, in my opinion, actually a noir. It's a little bit more of a police story but it definitely you know fits in with the darkness and it has a lot of different moods in fact for its time it 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 does some things that are very unusual because it starts out with just kind of a general observational look at the various people in the police station and the people who are are brought in and it reminded me of nothing so much as uh barney miller and as the movie goes on, uh, some pretty dark things start to happen. And by the end of it, I was mostly thinking about Raging Bull. So this is a movie that just runs the gamut. It's uh, an a, a amazing film. It makes me want to just see every William Wyler film. Mm. Yeah, I got to that's, see a, that. that's a director it. to cover in the future, I think. Mm-hmm. For sure. I'm, <laughs> I'm the ones I've seen. I've always been like, whoa. Oh, yeah. There, I mean, there, there's a lot of good ones. Oh, but sure. also There's a ton I haven't seen yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even even recently, just revisiting Michael Curtiz, there's still a, a, a slew of titles that I've 
managed to not see yet, and yet he's made some masterpieces. Like another discovery was uh, the Sea Wolf with um, Ernest Borgnine. Oh God, what a great adaptation of um, I think it's a Jack London novel, maybe I think. Mm. But it was yeah, it was that one was another huge surprise in terms of why aren't people talking about how great this one is? This is. Uh, really special, and not just for the cast, but uh, oh yeah, Ida Lupino's in that one as well. So I, I think I mentioned that one uh, on Michael the Michael Curtiz episode, and there's just a lot. There's still way too much to see every year, both old and new. Hey everybody, remember when I was talking about a new addition to the Now Playing Network family? Well, welcome everybody. Here's the first ad for a podcast called Feelin' Film. And excited to have them a part of the network. And then we'll get right back to our honorable mentions. Film lovers, there's a podcast you don't want to miss. From host Aaron White and Patrick Hicks, Feel and Film, a podcast where film lovers discuss what they love about movies. Each week, they cover a newly released film and a simple, short, and spoiler-free episode, making it easy to decide what you'll feature during your next movie night. You can also expect deep dives into loved films each and every week. Feel and Film is here to change the tone of film criticism, one movie at a time. Every movie makes us feel something. Join the conversation Feeling Film. Tune in right now on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and your favorite podcast I'm, platform. You know, we go quicker with our honorable mentions, which are 25 through 11, and one person does it, then the next, and then the next. So, and since I went first with the uh, categories, uh, let's just start. We're going to start with Bill this time. You get to do your honorable mentions first. So, 25 through 11. Uh, you know, obviously you can give a, a little sentence or two or, you know, a brief summary as to why you chose those particular titles as, as always. So you start us out, Bill. Looking forward to it. I guess there's no particular order to them, really. But uh, I'll say that uh, Hold Me Tight, uh, starring Vicky Creeps. Uh, it's this kind of great moody riff on uh, the Rain People, the Coppola film I like, um, about a woman that kind of walks out on a family, hits the road and uh kind of gets into situations and but it i don't want to spoil anything it, it, it kind of flips what you think it is um you know as far as the narrative but really good and i know that vicky creeps is getting a lot of attention for corsage and she's great in corsage but this was my favorite film of hers for 2022 um uh, is that black enough for you elvis mitchell's documentary on the history of black cinema um, which p- pays special attention to the films of the 1970s, uh, black exploitation, but just not, but n- not exclusively black exploitation, but uh, really going up to the whiz. Um, so it doesn't get into Spike Lee or the 90s uh, or anything like that. But as a history of black cinema up to the whiz, uh, it's really um, thorough. It has a lot of great interviews, makes a lot of great critical points. I mean, Elvis Mitchell comes from criticism more than. Uh, I mean, this is his first film, and um, but so the the observations and insights come from a very smart critic, and uh, it, it could could have been in my top ten. I mean, I, I always feel weird about ordering these things, but it's a really good film. It's on Netflix now. If you're if you haven't already seen it, there's a lot of good arts documentaries in 2022. Uh, Senior, the uh, the Downey film could have easily been on this list also, but uh, Elvis Mitchell's is is just really great. Um, Peter von Kant. Uh, Francois Ozan. Uh, it's his uh, remake of the fa- uh, the Reiner Werner Fassbender film, The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. Uh, 
with uh, Dennis Minichet as uh, as the as the director. And it's if you haven't seen the Fassbender film, it's about this kind of um, slightly. Well, I mean, so the the pl- premise of this is just this kind of tyrannical director uh, who gets obsessed with this young actor, and uh, it's kind of got like almost a stage playish kind of feel, but it's really uh, moving and emotional and brilliantly designed by Katya Wiskop. I, I don't know if I'm saying her name correctly. Uh, it's got um, Isabella Jani and Hannah Shigulia in supporting cast, and uh, so if you're a Fassbender fan and, and haven't seen it, uh, it's great. I know it was John Waters' favorite film of the year. I don't know if I'd go that far, but it's really good. Um, saw four new Hong Sang Su films uh, this year because um, two that were on the <laughs> festival circuit. Uh, four? You've got Blue four Ray. new movies? Oh my gosh. Well, he had two that were at New York Film Festival last year that I missed because I saw Drive My Car and Drive My Car was so goddamn long that I missed both of them. <laughs> um, but one of the ones that I missed, which came out in uh, proper release this year, was Introduction. And it's kind of a hard film to summarize. It's about this young man and different encounters he has uh, with a woman in his father's office or with a, um, he surprises his girlfriend at an inopportune time, or he has this kind of conversation with an actor that his mother wants him to speak to because he's dropped out of acting. And uh, it's not a film that I can really do justice to like summing up the plot beats, but it's a film that initially kind of feels like it's drifting along episodically, but um, it, it sneaks up on you this this um this kind of hard to describe feeling that it has it's quite moving by the end um hong sang su if you haven't seen any of his films i don't know if this is where you'd start i mean i think right now wrong then or uh woman is the future of man are probably better starting places um but he's kind of someone that i know he gets compared to people like eric romer uh or even ozu i mean they're very uh, episodic, gentle, gently comedic kind of films. Um, but this was my favorite of the four new ones I saw this year. Um, Teenage Emotions, Frederick Da. I don't know if I'm saying that name wrong, but this is a, um, a documentary style series of uh, vignettes that I believe are fictional, but they're they're shot, I, I want to say, using real students that from his school. Um, so it feels like a documentary. I, I didn't even know anything about it um, until reading about it more recently. And I thought it was a documentary that says something, I guess. But um, but just I don't know. There's a lot of great coming of age material this year. I'm sure we'll both be talking about or I'll be talking about, uh, you know, uh, films that fall into that kind of loose category. And this is one of my favorites as far as just uh, completely engaging. Doesn't overstate its welcome. I know that it was a film that kind of wasn't quite finished because of COVID, but I didn't know that. I was totally satisfied with uh, Teenage Emotions. Um, I have two films that I know are not going to be for a lot of tastes. Um, I'll put them back to back. Um, They're very micro-budgeted films. Um, They would probably be uh, maybe a little amateurish for, for some taste. So I I, I put that out there as a caveat. If you're listening to this and it sounds like something you'd like, I mean, don't say I, you know, I, I lured you into something with the professionalism of the Fablemans or something. It's not like that. Um, one of them is Magic Spot, which is this uh, film from Charles Roxburgh. Okay, but um, and starring uh, Matt Farley. But so they they're this team from New England do do this kind of uh, series of kind of micro budget comedy uh, films, and this one, it's 
it's um it's scripted sounding it's not loose improvised sounding but it's like this um small town local theater feel uh it's like this sweet whimsical fantasy i don't really want to spoil the plot of it but it's got like this earnest silliness to it that uh it reminds me of music groups like they might be giants or jonathan richmond has that kind of like archly sincere kind of tone but um it, it deals with a uh with a guy that has like a local kind of uh, cable access talent show. And they, uh, they find a, uh, a rock in the forest that uh, can uh, allow people to time travel. Uh, that's all I'll say. Uh, but uh, I'd say that if you're new to the films of this group, that local legends is the better starting point, which is less whimsical, a little bit more like a, a standard indie comedy drama. But um, this was their new film for the year. And I saw it and it just kind of charmed me. I've seen it twice and I really liked it. Um, another one that is like equally low budget, uh, is Honeycomb. It's the debut feature film from Avalon fast. And it's kind of this, uh, mix of Virgin suicides and Lord of the flies. And, uh, maybe the aimless downtime scenes from the David Robert Mitchell films, um, blended with a little bit of a folk horror feel, um, but if you can imagine such a thing performed by middle school students, <laughs> I think um, I think the director maybe was around twenty when this was made. But it's it, it's it's definitely an amateurish film in places, but it's quirky and atmospheric. It doesn't overstay its welcome, and it kind of gets at the uh, casual cruelty of girls that age realistically, but in this kind of dreamy, kind of self-contained environment. Um, it's about this group of young girls who begin to squat in this abandoned house in the woods and. They uh, are initially doing it to kind of get away from their parents and everything and have kind of a communal living space, but they create rules for themselves to maintain order and uh, problems ensue uh, when they start enforcing the rules. Um, but really kind of remarkable little debut film. Um, and uh, so that's on my list. Uh, no Bears, uh, since uh, you mentioned J- Jafar uh, Panahi, um, this was a film about I had to say about the plot, but he plays himself uh, trying to direct the film in secret in Turkey, uh, you know, to avoid being detected. He cannot leave Iran. He's kind of this controversial uh, filmmaker there. And actually, I think by the time I saw it, he had already been arrested and imprisoned by uh, by the government there. So that gives an extra feeling of drama to the film that I don't know if it would have contained had I not known that before the film even started. But um, it's his character in the film is in a small village. And uh, while he's there, he films a, a ceremony and uh, you know, this, this creates problems with the locals in town and I don't want to give anything more away, but it's really remarkable um, suspenseful film. Um, it's being distributed by, by Janice film. So I'm sure it'll be in the criterion collection eventually, but it's uh, you know, it's, it's, it beyond the fact that, it's a filmmaker being kind of penalized for being an artist. And so I think, you know, our, our, uh, our knee jerk impulses be like, well, you know, we support him because, you know, the government getting the way of artists is inherently fucked up. The film itself is also lives up to the hype. It, it's, it's a great film on top of being uh, a righteous one to support. Um, Apollo 10 and a half, a space age childhood, uh, Richard Linklater, um, it's this rotoscope animated film he did. And, uh, you know, it's 1960s coming of age stories set in Texas when NASA fever, uh, is kind of an ever present fact of life. And I just think that this is one of the best things he's done in recent years, Richard Linklater. I mean, we're probably going to be talking about a few autobiographical films that have come out this year from filmmakers. And this one kind of wears the responsibility a little more lightly than some of the other ones. Uh, I, I think uh, it's, um, 
you know, it harkens back to the feeling of things like Days Confused or, um, you know, uh, Everybody Wants Some, I guess. But um, it also reminded me of a uh, of a slightly hipper Cameron Crowe. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 it, I mean, I'm not always drawn to the animated side of Linklater, but this one, because it just felt like it, it kind of corresponded so much with his more personal tourist works, I just really thought it was uh, quite charming. It's on Netflix. So it's easy to get a hold of it. Um, a Love Song by uh, Max Walker Silverman. Uh, stars Dale Dickey as this woman living in the uh, trailer in Colorado who um, reconnects with an old friend. They spend a night together. And it's this really affecting uh, mix of melancholy and Jarmish-style humor. Um, just totally knocked me out. Um, definitely one that I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about. Um, Jim, maybe you'll be talking about it, but I, I think that uh, this one was uh, a nice surprise. Uh, Soft and Quiet, uh, Beth D. Arujo, uh, this kind of tense horror drama uh, about a group of right-wing white women who uh, have this kind of little club where they talk about really uh, objectionable <laughs> views uh, that uh, leads to a violent situation. I went into this t- cold knowing that a lot of people I'm friends with did not like it. So I didn't go in with any high expectations, but I was really uh, transfixed by it. And um, I, I saw a lot of horror this year and a lot of it I appreciated, but it kind of left me uh, yeah, respectful, but detached. This one uh, did, did affect me. Um, Playground, uh, Laura uh, Wandel, I think her name is. It's this kind of harrowing Belgian film about school bullying this little girl and her older brother uh, are in the school system and there's really not too much of a plot to it. It's just that she, uh, she witnesses her older brother being bullied and by trying to do something about it escalates the situation. And uh, it's quite a harrowing film Uh, after sun. I probably don't need to go into Charlotte Wells, uh, 11 year old girl and her depressive father on holiday in Turkey in the nineties. Um, I, I just suspect that we're going to talk about this again, so I'm not going to go into it, but I, I really liked it. Uh, Confess Fletch, Greg Matola, uh, this kind of uh, sharp detective comedies, John Hamm. He plays uh, the, uh, the character that we might have grown up with the Chevy Chase playing this part, but this is, um, yeah, he's, he's a detective looking for the, um, this art thief while trying to clear his own name uh, as a suspect in a murder case. You know, it reminded me of the Shane Black comedies in a good way. Like, it's just the plot is just a excuse for like endless scenes of funny banter. And it's genuinely funny. So uh, Greg Matola is somebody that I may mean, have liked all of his movies, like The Day Trippers or Super Bad or Adventureland. So he's he's someone that I kind of I, I, I like him within his lane. I kind of don't really think of him as an auteur, but I I got to give him props. I mean, he's he's really got a, a resume of like entertaining likable films and this is uh, no exception to that and friends of friends and strangers james vaughn this was like this laid-back quirky australian comedy uh very episodic in structure and i guess you could put it in in the lane of cringe awkward situation comedy but um interesting new voice i i don't know uh i don't know what more he'll he'll do but this was one i wanted to to shout out um, so yeah, those are, those are my initial runners up. <laughs> wow. There are so many titles on there. I need to see. 
<laughs> which makes me very excited. You know, I mean, there's, gosh, there's still so many movies, and I I don't even know where to begin. I I also want to make sure people know too. Well, you you have a list on Letterbox and also on your blog, right? For all the titles. Um, I have it on my blog. I'll probably put it on my Letterboxd as well. Okay. Yeah, just um, in case people miss those, I'm going to link to your list in the show notes, but I always look forward to trying to seek out a couple of titles that you bring up. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I certainly want to see a time travel movie again. I mean, gosh, you know how I feel about those. And um, I, I will just say that I didn't put it on my list because it really did not have a commercial release here yet, but it probably won't be on my list next year because it is already on my top 40 blog list. But RMN, the Romanian film, is oh, maybe yeah. a masterpiece and uh, people should keep an eye out for it. I don't know what IFC Films plans to do with it. I don't know if it'll get dumped to streaming or what, but if that one arrives with no fanfare, it's criminal because this is one of the best films of the year that I saw. Oh, wow. I just left it off because... I was trying to play fair with theatrical, you know, films that came out in some form uh, in 2022. Not to be confused with RRR. Yes. <laughs> or EO. <laughs> All right. Well, first off, Bill, you just gave me a lot of ideas. So I know what I'm going to be watching in the first part of 2023. That's <laughs> great stuff. My list will start out at number 25 with uh, Claire Denise, Both Sides of the Blade, mm. which is a little bit of a mixed bag because it's kind of a standard uh, plot about a, uh, a happy couple played by Juliette Binoche and Vincent Linden, uh, whose relationship gets interrupted by uh, Binoche's uh, ex-flame. And uh, it kind of goes where you expect, but even while the plot is kind of not much, the acting is top level. The cinematography is top level. So it's like a great execution of an okay story. At number 24, I have a Brainwashed, Sex, Camera, Power, a documentary by Nina Menkes, uh, which uh, kind of takes the form of a lecture. So it doesn't seem too cinematic, but it does something that's absolutely fascinating. We often hear people talk about the male gaze and... Uh, sexism in cinema and how uh, sex scenes often seem exploitative. What she does is literally de dissect these scenes, go into these films and kind of show it to us exactly on a uh, filmmaking level, how men and women are depicted uh, differently visually. And it's just a very fascinating look at the look at that subject i agree i just I wish it had been that. less of a ted talk approach it, it, it is that it like that it, it seems like a lecture at times but what, what it brings to it uh for me and it, again it's not too high on my list but it brings enough to it that i i think it's valuable that it's out there sure i agree uh now i'm a little more questioning about my number 23 choice which is baz lurman's elvis and I have such mixed feelings on this one. When I first saw it, I thought I kind of hated it. And it might be really, really bad. But then I found myself just absolutely not being able to forget about it because it is so over the top and so utterly strange. And the strangest part is uh, the least person you'll imagine would be strange is Tom Hanks 
as Colonel <laughs> Tom Parker giving a absolutely whack job performance um, that I never thought I'd see him give. It's just he is uh, eating more, chewing more scenery than uh, Jack Nicholson. It's uh, <laughs> quite a crazy movie. Um, and uh, there are parts that kind of work, and then there are parts that are just a disaster. So I didn't know what to do with it, so I put it at 23. At 22, I have uh, the aforementioned uh, EO uh, by uh, Jerzy uh, Skolomowski, a great uh, Polish director. And it's his uh, update take on the classic um, Rasan film, Ah Hassad uh, Bathazar. Uh, basically, we are, we are following a donkey uh, through various owners of various levels of care and kindness. And so we see a lot of both, both uh, suffering and heartwarming parts. Um, this kind of movie just doesn't quite work for me because it, it it's trying to basically get you uh, get you from the donkey point of view while not in any way while recognizing that the donkey is not in any way human or anthropomorphic. So it it more works on a filmmaking level, a score level, but again didn't involve me I think as much as it wanted to. At 21, uh, bringing back an old conversation, uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. It's a Sam Raimi, and what I liked about it is it is a Sam Raimi film. And I think that's kind of what's been happening with the Marvel movies this year, is they have finally taken on the personality of their director. So this is very flawed. It's, it's kind of goofy and doesn't work in parts. But if you like the old style Sam Raimi horror of just going nuts and crazy visuals and uh, violence uh, out of nowhere and eyeballs, uh, this movie will have all that. At 20, I have Nope, uh, Jordan Peele's latest. Uh, Jordan Peele movies are usually much higher on my list. But this time, I, I think it's not quite up there with Get Out and Us. But there's still there's still a lot to do here. There's still a lot he has to say about uh, kind of race in America, but this time in terms of uh, early uh, Black presence in film and uh, the uh, Black presence on the frontier, Black cowboys. Uh, but once he gets into the basic monster movie part of the monster film, it's kind of st stuff we've seen before. It, it certainly is done well, and I like the film, but he really set a standard with his two earlier films. So I hope he gets back to I, 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 what I consider kind of more uh, interesting material. I agree 100 percent. Okay. But I know you're not going to agree with this because nobody does, because everybody adores the Banshees of Inisherin except for me. So oh. no, I like it. I know I like it. There's a lot of good things here. I think uh, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson give great performances. I, I think there's a lot of good stuff here, but I also think there's a lot of repetition and. I'm surprised that and no, nobody's bothered by this. So this must be kind of a me thing, like the kind of 
idea of, of where the plot goes for me just kind of happens again and again and again with just slightly different variations. And then when characters start acting in ways that human beings just would not act, I, I wasn't able to quite stay on board with it. So uh, I know shockingly, because I know you guys are going to be talking about this later, it's a, a little more of a mixed bag for me. At 18, I have RRR, uh, another movie that is certifiably nuts. It's a, a Tollywood film uh, from India. It's just an action adventure in the old style that if you uh, ever watch Bollywood films, it's very much like that. We have uh, over-the-top action, CGI, uh, very melodramatic plots, uh, musical numbers, and it's three hours long. But it is a lot of fun. Um, famously, there are scenes uh, where CGI animals are just being thrown around in the context of action films. And it's just kind of like, well, if you want to see things you haven't seen before, RRR is, is a really fun way to do that. At number 17, I have a documentary called uh, Senior from Chris Smith which is about Robert Downey Sr. And it's done in the format of uh, discussions and observations of uh, Robert Downey Sr. and Robert Downey Jr. and their families. And it, it's really interesting. It does two things at once. First of all, it gives you a good overview of Robert Downey Sr.'s career and just the kind of strange underground films uh, he was famous for making uh, in the 60s, like Putney Swope. And then it's also a very touching father-son story because we are being filming this at the end, near the end of Robert Downey Sr.'s life. And Robert Downey Jr. seems very open to discussing, you know, the kind of things about his life and his relationship with his father that uh, not everyone would be. And uh, the result is a really good documentary. At 16, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, maybe the most impressive technical achievement of the year for me. Uh, I'm watching this and thinking, uh, well, this is some pretty good CGI, but when you find out it's actually old-style old uh, stop-motion animation, I'm sure with some CGI touches to it, but it's pretty much stop-motion using, using actual uh, puppets and models. And... It looks great. The last time I saw one of these was probably like James and the Giant Peach and seeing just how far this technology has gone is pretty breathtaking. It, to its credit, it does some interesting things with the Pinocchio story. It doesn't just rehash uh, the Disney cartoon that we all know and love, uh, although apparently there also was a Disney version of Pinocchio that came out this year. I, I didn't see that, but uh no, this was this was a good uh, fresh take on the story with just extraordinary uh, visual effects. At fifteen is Moon Age Daydream from uh, Brett Morgan, who's done kind of an anti-documentary take on David Bowie's career. It's uh, pretty chaotic. It's kind of a mixture of uh, of an avant-garde film and uh, MTV music video and then standard documentary because you do have uh, David Bowie's story being told pretty much only through uh, David Bowie's voice and 
and what he has said over the years, but not kind of the obvious stuff. He's talked about his philosophy uh, on life and on music. And we also see footage, some of which is familiar, some of which is not, some of which is pretty abstract, but you, uh, but they don't necessarily match. So you'll have scenes where uh, Bowie's uh, talking about one subject and that reminds the filmmaker of uh, another visual element of Bowie's career. So it makes for uh, quite a, a fresh uh, look at Bowie and something that's visually exciting and, and hell, it's, it's a movie full of Bowie songs. So who doesn't love that? Number 14 is The Northman. Um, again, a little lower for Robert Eggers than uh, his last movie, The Lighthouse, which I thought was one of the best movies of that year. This doesn't quite reach that level, but it still does uh, some pretty impressive things, um, mostly um, just about recreating a time period, you know, this, the brutal world of the ancient Vikings. And... Uh, it, it, it's really good. It's very detail-oriented about, you know, just the way they talk, the props. Um, not, I'm not an expert on the period, but just uh, it, it feels like it's like, it, it feels like it's time period accurate, uh, the way it's depicted. And, you know, it's not anything special as far as story or plot. It's basically a lot of brutality and... Um, Game of Thrones type machinations, but uh, but the real thing I think about this movie is that it makes you feel like you are there. So we're at number 13 with another uh, favorite I know of uh, Jim's is uh, After Sun, uh, which I'm not going to go too into because Jim is going to get to talk about that uh, in good detail, but I, I also loved it. I, I think it was incredibly touching and I liked that you don't really know where it's going. The movie is very subtle. And uh, once you re you don't really realize the power of the movie until it's over. And, and then when you do, it, it is indeed powerful. At number 12, Fire of Love, the uh, documentary about uh, a married couple of volcanologists, uh, Katya and Maurice Kraft, and uh, we find out very early um, in the film that, that they are no longer with us due to doing what they loved, which is studying volcanoes throughout the world. And not only do you see just amazing footage of volcanoes, you also get a portrait of two very interesting people. You see the, their quirks, their their differences and also, you know, that they are very much in love and also in love with just the idea of volcanoes and studying them and, and filming them. And uh, it's, it, it's pretty exhilarating and thought provoking. At number 11 is a, a film that I think is great. And uh, I don't think it's gotten too much attention in the year end list because I assume because it came out very early in the year and didn't really have a theatrical release, but it's it's Pixar's Turning Red, which uh, is I think maybe if not the very top of the Pixar groupings, uh, very high in the second tier. And what I like about it is it's very specific. It's like 
Okay, this is not only about uh, Chinese culture. Mm. It's about Chinese culture in Canada. It's about Ch Chinese culture in Canada in 2002 and uh, dealing with uh, uh, coming of age issues of, uh, of a young girl about to become a young lady. And of course, being a Pixar movie, it's done in a fantasy way uh, through uh, characters turning into a giant panda. But it's also just a really solid uh, coming of age film and uh, a really good one from Pixar. Yeah, I agree. I actually really like that one. It's It's been a while since... Well, no, I did like Soul. There's been some Pixar movies that every once in a while I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I, st I, st I still enjoy what they do. Uh, and, and you mentioned a couple documentaries, too, I really liked. The, the Bowie one and uh, Fire of Love, of course. There's lots of good choices there as well. Um, boy, oh, boy. Have I got some honorable mentions myself. I'm going to start off... <laughs> With one that seems to have just been loathed and loathed from a lot of people. I don't, I don't, I, I know there's some supporters of this film. Certainly it's getting a lot of the uh, awards consideration, but I'm, I'm just going to start off with the one that will probably get the most eye rolls from, from, from listeners. And that is uh, Darren Aronofsky's The Whale, which <laughs> it's, it's a personal pick. It's, it's kind of hard to talk about because I can admit this is a problematic film in some ways and very manipulative. It does raise the score. It does have certain things that can bug me about modern filmmaking. And I'm not a big fan of the young religious man that visits from time to time because he just kind of spells out the theme sometimes. But nearly everything else works from Fraser's performance to Hong Chao to Sadie Sink. And... You know, as someone who has struggled in the past with binge eating, especially during lockdown, there were scenes that hit close to home that were very uncomfortable. Even if um, I never got that self-destructive, uh, it it still got to me emotionally, and I can't deny that. So I, I that's why I'm putting that on my list, even though I don't think I would outright defend it as a great film either. Uh, I don't know if Aronofsky was the right direct director to tell this story but i i really it really worked for me and i do owe that a lot to fraser uh for committing the way he does so but i also understand why people don't like this movie and don't respond to it so that's just my piece and it's made my list because again <laughs> i cried uh 24 is crimes of the future uh one of many films again that i, I really want to watch again to see if i can process it further uh, you know, cause it's, I don't know exactly what it's all trying to say thematically, but that's not a bad thing. I would say for the entire running time, I was engaged by it. Um, but in the end I was like more, it was more of a question mark for me. And that's again, something that brings me back to watching certain movies. And that's kind of why I love watching movies that don't spell out everything in a, you know, uh, plain manner. But this is, this felt like an amalgam of all the things he's done before and maybe to some extent he's done them better, but there's just a lot going on and I, I've yet to completely understand it, but that's kind of why I love it at the same time. And I will say Kristen Stewart's performance is just really unique. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to make of it. And that's kind of another reason why I love it. I mean, it's, it's borderline comedic and seeing her reactions and responses at times. And I would just love to see her a part of the Cronenberg 
universe in the same way that Vigo Mortensen is in the future. We'll see. If, I don't know. If, I know he's making something else, isn't he, Bill? He's making something he, pretty. Quickly. He is making something else. I don't know if I've heard the cast, but I know yeah. he's got another film in the works. Yeah. Um, and someone who's also, well, not nearly as prolific. Well, no, he is prolific, unlike Cronenberg. Uh, another Berg, uh, Steven Soderbergh, mm-hmm. who uh, made Kimmy, which I think is available on HBO Max. And it was filmed, I believe, during the lockdown period we all experienced. And he basically took our feelings associated with what was going on with the pandemic and turned it into blowout or or rear window in a way that <laughs> involves audio editing, agoraphobia um, through this character played by Zoe Kravitz. And I was just kind of right with the setup right from the get-go. I, I like these con- self-contained stories that are set in a very small space, although her space isn't small. It's, it's quite quite the loft. But I, I don't know. I kind of also enjoyed something light fun that I didn't have to think too deeply about. It's a good sort of genre exercise while also, you know, being an interesting character study. And I think he's just a consistently great storyteller. Uh, Even if like this isn't profound, it's just damn solid. I I really like this movie and it's kind of appropriate for our socially anxious times, what this character is experiencing throughout. And then of course it gets a little confrontational with um, the bad guys will say towards the end, a very different movie at number 22 is St. Omer. Um, this is a film that really takes its time, but ends up being really rewarding and moving by the end. It's about this journalist and author living in Paris who, uh, comes to a town in the North of France to attend the trial of a young mother who allegedly murdered her baby daughter and she admits to killing her child, but she cannot provide motivation. Like, But she does sort of say that there was sorcery or something out of her control that led her to commit this horrible crime. And the whole film is sort of trying to process and deal with that. And you as the viewer are doing the same, while also the lead character, a journalist, is trying to understand what's what's taking place both in this woman's mind and in the courtroom. Um, and the director is actually, you know, was basically the journalist that is being portrayed in this movie. So it's a very personal story, but it ultimately touches on a lot of cultural, racial, sociological issues while also being a really um, involving courtroom drama. So if you remain patient with it, I, I think the, the rewards are huge by the end. It's quite impactful. Uh, 21 is Hit the Road, uh, a late addition to my list. Literally just watched it yesterday. And it's described by a letterbox reviewer as a great galaxy road trip dog movie. <laughs> and all those things are true. I'm a sucker for a good road trip movie. And when you involve a family of various contrasting personality types, including, like I mentioned earlier, a very precocious kid that... You know, in another film could have annoyed me, but he actually charmed me <laughs> throughout with a lot of the things he's saying. And it's one of those cases where I'm like, oh, I would love to have a son, even if he is obnoxious and silly. <laughs> but no, this, uh, like we've talked about, this filmmaker makes a really striking debut and, you know, comes from a, a, a legacy director. But uh, this is also fun. 
you know, like it's sometimes there's just really light comical moments, which is nice to see. But uh, there's a oh gosh, there's a, a sequence towards the end that I think we all know about involving a father and son that overwhelmed me. So uh, that that helps along with the final musical number. So <laughs> it's something I can see becoming a cult favorite with a lot of people once they discover it. It's it's a really special movie. Uh, 20 is God's Country. A couple of under-the-radar picks here in a row with this, not to be confused with God's Creatures, <laughs> though I like that one as well. Or Godland. Uh, oh, yeah, Godland, too. But this I, this I felt was, I think I mentioned this to you, Bill, that it had like a a feeling that I got with last year's The Killing of Two Lovers, where there's something bubbling underneath the surface and it's just you're waiting and waiting what's going to happen, giving all these circumstances. It's basically, you know, another sort of slow burn uh, featuring the great Thandi Newton, who uh, in the film, she recently has relocated to a small rural town, I believe in the south, and has to deal with a lot of shitty, bigoted men who want to park on her property in order to hunt. And, yeah, she's trying to be nice at first about it. And then, of course, they're they're being entitled assholes and just they, they want to confront her. And it all sort of culminates in this way that is pretty uh, special. In, <laughs> and I don't know. I, I It's another that's made my list not only because I loved the experience of watching it, but I just want people to see it. It's It really gets to you. Uh, another one similar to that is called Marina. Uh, I think I've reviewed this uh, certainly in the past, but a lot of my a lot of my favorites this year are kind of about tensions <laughs> slowly rising. It's like you know they're there, and the characters are feeling them, but you're sort of just waiting for the uh, sort of um, intensity to escalate, and it kind of does for the most part. But this is a, an anxiety-inducing film too at times because. Uh, it's essentially, I, I think it's Croatian, and it's a little thematically similar to a film I'll talk about later called The Quiet Girl, in which a young teenager is basically going through parental abuse, uh, neglect, depression, dissociation, you know, and of course she's a rebellious teenager at the same time and sort of tries to find ways to deal with all her feelings, uh, but a lot of it just does come down to a really shitty father who isn't being very attentive or um, um he's not very emotionally astute <laughs> and and kind of lashes out at her in very very horrible ways and in comes in this sort of dashing potential stepfather figure played by the great cliff curtis who may or may not be her ticket out to a better life and she sort of you know uh has that idea in her head and we sort of see what becomes of all that building to one of the better final moments of the year. And it's got gorgeous cinematography. It's another sort of coming of age story with a lot of tension. That's Marina. Um, number 18, another hugely divisive film that I just happened to love from most of it anyway. And that's Babylon. There's a, there's a bit of a lull I would say, but overall I was pretty taken with the latest from Damien Chazelle, a director whose film, whose only film I'm not crazy about. And that's La La Land. I was fine with that one. I think it has a very strong ending, but I didn't think it deserved all the claim that it got. Whereas, I don't know, this is almost like an inverse of that film where it sort of takes all the glamor and romanticism and, you know, the sort of umbrellas of Shaborg of it all. And, 
replaces it with a lot of interesting, I don't know, sort of thoughts and ideas about film history and the evolution of technology and, and sort of how it all affects the actors over time. And, and, and yet I can't deny the fact that there are story beats really directly taken out of Boogie Nights. It's like, <laughs> it is real, is like at one point, especially involving once we get to a surprise, um, well, everybody knows that Tobey Maguire shows up at one point and I'm just like, really, you're really going to rip that off so much. I, but at the same time, I, I still, it's long, it's indulgent, but it's kind of my kind of indulgence. It's again, a conversation stimulator and this really sort of entertaining exercise that I don't know if everything comes together, but in the moment, I just, I can't deny its energy, its audacity, um, it's possible that maybe it'll go down on a rewatch, but it could also go even higher. And I just happen to really like what Chazelle does for the most part. So Babylon, I could see again why people aren't responding to it, but I sure did. Uh, 17 is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Uh, one of the biggest surprises of the year. Uh, unlike Colin, I'm, I'm not as huge into animation. I will see certain things that are getting a lot of acclaim like this or like turning red, but, um, you know, again, like I even walked in thinking, oh, another Pinocchio movie. I'm not even the biggest Del Toro guy, so I'm probably not going to enjoy this. And then lo and behold, I did. Uh, seeing this on the big screen in 35 millimeter was a true joy. You know, even if I felt like, yes, there are typical things, a predictable sort of sequence involving a sea monster's mouth and how all that plays out. But really, just this the, the lovely backstory involving Geppetto's loss and grief really just got to me more than most Pinocchio adaptations. And it's just stunning to look at. I, again, I don't know if it needed the musical numbers, but man, the voice work here from everyone to, you know, Kate Blanchett to Ewan McGregor, they're all doing stellar work. And this is probably one, one of the better Del Toro movies for me in a long time. Uh, 16 is happening. Another movie that builds to something truly harrowing and, it's in conversation with something like Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always from a couple years back. But this is, again, an unfortunate time in our country's history that this movie sort of highlights. Yet it also takes place in 1960s France, where um, a young college student is unable to get an abortion and has to go to extreme measures. And it's just hard to, oh, it's a hard movie to, to watch, but it's vital it's it's something that i think people need to seek out and talk about because we are hor you know we're dealing with an administration in some parts of this country that are taking away women's rights and accessibility to get an abortion that is just truly awful and, and shocking and this film sort of captures what we're going through right now in a way that's uh, pretty remarkable another great breakthrough lead performance it's an important movie that's happening uh 15 is anonymous club there were a lot of great documentaries and music documentaries this year, but this one just happened to be my favorite. And I talked about it a lot on the show and interviewed the director. Courtney Barnett is one of my favorite songwriters. So that helps. I almost described it as like kind of an introverted approach to the music documentary. And that appeals to me. So I won't go on and on. I talked about it a lot. Anonymous club is 15, 14 is after Yang, the latest from Koganada who gave us the, uh, really wonderful Columbus from a few years ago, the first of two movies on my list featuring Colin Farrell. And this is kind of an interesting hybrid of a 
drama and science fiction with one of the more lively opening credit sequences of the year that is very memorable. Um, and in this film, robots sort of function as live-in babysitters or caretakers, and um, th this young girl's c companion, uh, at, who's a robot, suddenly becomes unresponsive and shuts down more or less. And we, we basically see the before and after effects of that relationship. Uh, and it's, it's really, really subtle again, but really beautiful. There, there are certainly a lot of movies, including this year, about grief and coping with loss. But this one really snuck up on me, too, and it has some really great acting moments involving Carol, Car <laughs> Carol Colin Farrell. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, After Yang, number 14. 13 is The Eternal Daughter, again, another movie about grief and very complicated parental relationships. Uh, so yeah, that comes up a lot this year, but uh, this is the latest from Joanna Hogg, who has made my list the past couple of years with her souvenir films. And uh, yeah, this, this, uh, this contains one of my favorite cuts of the year that's very sudden and very quick. And it happens more or less halfway in the movie during a dinner scene. And I mean, I've liked, I liked everything leading up to that moment, but then that happened. I was like, Oh, nice. Even though I kind of knew the quote unquote twist of sorts, <laughs> I kind of expected that to happen. I was still really enveloped by this movie and it sort of is another extension or maybe even a coda to the souvenir movies. Um, it's sort of, taps into her ideas and themes that she's captured so wonderfully in her other films. And this time we have Tilda Swinton playing both mother and daughter in this melancholic kind of ghost story uh, that, that really got to me again, a, a great movie about being haunted by the past. Uh, 12 is EO. We, Brad mentioned that wonderfully. Uh, I, I love animals <laughs> and I love stories about animals, but, you know, and again, kind of taking a little bit of, his own version of a road trip. Um, and he wants to reconnect and sort of find his original owner, the, the donkey of, uh, the, the title, the titular donkey. Uh, and it is mostly from his point of view. I, I know this director goes way back, way back, um, and has made very interesting and striking films. And this one was that for the most part for me, uh, but I also agree with with Brad. It mostly worked, but on a filmmaking level, rather than a really sort of triumphant emotional experience from beginning to end. To where even the final moment, I was kind of like, hmm. Instead of like devastated when I when I I should have been devastated. So, but at the same time, I I just was kind of taken with the originality of this movie and certainly how it looked. And uh, I don't know, maybe I just love donkeys. Uh, number 11 is uh, Resurrection, uh, another movie that I know a lot of people have complicated feelings about. It, and it's a great, it's kind of been a, a, an interesting year for horror movies. I just don't know what this one, why it stuck with me so strongly more than something like Men or Smile or Barbarian. I, I don't know. I, it's, I was just really unnerved pretty much from the moment she sees Tim Roth at that lecture. And something about Rebecca Hall and capturing anxiety and panic from that moment forward really just got to me. Like I saw this in the theater and I was just like kind of feeling what she was feeling at times. 
And and again, it, it, her performance is the reason to see this movie for sure. I'm not sure about how how everything plays out or what's real or it, it's it, it confused me, but in a good way. Uh, I think there's a lot more going on in this story than just the obvious gaslighting, toxic masculinity kind of ideas that we've seen a lot of lately. Uh, and again, I know not everyone thought this was as great as I did, but I just can't stop thinking about it for whatever reason. And so that's why it's my number 11. That's Resurrection. Yes. Well, well Jim, Jim, if, uh, if Resurrection had ended 20 minutes before it did, I can it see would that. have been pretty pretty high on my list. I actually loved the setup and agree that Rebecca Hall is amazing. I really disliked the ending. I thought it was a cop out. I can see that. I totally get that too. Like, especially just the final choice. I don't know. Just like everything is going to maybe work out (laughs) in a way, like just the final scene in the bedroom. I think if you even just cut that, I would have been happier. But at the same time, most of it did affect me deeply. And if movies that are like basically, let's just watch an actor be amazing, sometimes get, you know, higher up on my list than most movies would. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was taking notes of titles that, uh, that Brad was mentioning and then, Jim, that you were mentioning, thinking if we want to just talk about them a little bit more but then it's my page filled with titles that, that uh <laughs> i don't know if we would be value added to uh to spend talking about them but i would just say that um elvis since it's probably not going to be on any of our lists i, I thought it was a really interesting film i saw it twice because it it's was interesting one I, yeah I, it's one that i had the same kind of initial reaction that you had brad as far as like i i don't know if this is one i really care for all that much but uh, I have friends that thought this was one of the best films of the year, if not the best film of the year. And I thought, what am I missing with this one? Um, so I did give it another look. And um, it's because I did a Ken Russell episode uh, on Director's Club recently with Sam Deegan. And Ken Russell is one of the people I thought of while watching it, as far as just the, the oh. unhinged kind of garishness of it. Um, and the, you know, the fact that it is kind of a, a musical bio biopic of sorts um and and one that is just very energetic and uh kind of brassy in terms of tone um i you know i it's we're talking about like the year in film in terms of like the commercial impact elvis was one of the rare hits that was not a franchise film and i i was surprised because when i saw it i thought oh well this is going to be too uh you know, odd and extreme for a mainstream audience. It's not, it's not a, uh, it's not Bohemian Rhapsody, (laughs) you know? Um, But I I knew people that were not cinephiles that were just my, you know, day job uh, colleagues that all really liked it. And so it kind of was a surprise to me that they could handle something this kind of manic and strange, Uh, maybe because, you know, Austin Butler is uh, charismatic in the role or Tom Hanks, is a you know familiar face that he's kind of an anchor that kind of you know uh, keeps it accessible for people. But um, you know this was the year. It's probably not on any of our lists. And Brad, correct me if I'm wrong. I doubt it's on your list, Jim. But Blonde is a film that um, mm. was also quite divisive. Mm-hmm. And um, oh. yeah. I like that even even less so. <laughs> yeah, Blonde. But but, but but I see why you mentioned the same way. They are they are both 
extreme versions oh, yeah. of biopics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Blonde was nearly on my list, but it's so long that I did not have a chance to rewatch it to kind of gather my thoughts in a defense way, because I know that that one has more detractors than most films I like this year. But I would say that it reminded me a lot of Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, and the reviews mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. similar. So I see that. I mean, I already know a lot of people that like it, and it's all horror people. So it already kind of tells me that it's got its audience and it's not the old Hollywood Twitter, you know, that just pick it apart for the the factual component or because the director is an idiot in interviews or whatever. I think Blonde is like a born cult film. And um, it's one that I want to give another watch to to see how I feel on a, on a rewatch. But I went into it with some trepidation because I knew a lot of people thought it was a mess and I found it quite haunting. I mean, it's not perfect and I, I, it's not on my list, but it's one that I think I would stick up for the way that uh, Jim sticks up for Babylon uh, and the whale, which are Uh also quite divisive and Babylon. uh, Another one that reminded me a lot of Ken Russell reminded me a lot of Valentino. It also reminded me a lot of Bogdanovich's Nickelodeon more than Boogie Nights meets once on a time in Hollywood, which I'm sure how they pitched it to the people that gave them all those millions of dollars to make what essentially feels like a Ken Russell movie for like <laughs> at least the first half hour. Sure. Um, it feels too long and indulgent. I'm sure a lot of people lost their jobs over it, but I was not bored by it. Right. Uh, I, I think it's definitely an interesting film. I, I know even more heated detractors of that one than blonde. And partly because, He's jumping off of a very controversial Kenneth Anger source material. <laughs> um, so there's going to I think there's already a, a you must remember this podcast debunking Babylon. Ferenc Smith-Neme wrote a great piece, like pu- putting all the facts in order that the film kind of contorts. Um, and actually, you know, I, but I, I would say just as filmmaking, it's really strong stuff. I, I, I really did like it a lot. Um, yeah. And that's. Ooh, Elvis and Blonde, man, those are two movies I have complicated relationships with. Because yeah. I'm not a, a Baz Luhrmann fan <laughs> at all, and yet there were things about that movie, especially Austin Butler, that I was kind of like, this might be my favorite Baz Luhrmann movie, <laughs> to be honest. And, you know, watching it with my mom, who's a diehard Elvis fan, I mean, there were things that she kind of went, oh, I don't know if that's entirely accurate, but I'm still enjoying it. And she really enjoyed it. And I thought it was fine. Like it's and 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 same with Blonde. Like I'm sort of more mixed positive on both of them. And it surprises me that like I, I feel like I should have like a, 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 a like a more a, a less kind of ambivalent or, or you know, almost <laughs> Um, what's the word I'm looking for? But I mean, it, they're, they both have merit. They both have things that I would recommend about them, even if they don't entirely work for me as a whole in the end. Like they're just elements that I think make them worth seeing. So that's why I would never dismiss them as, you know, bad, like some people have. I'll say this about Blonde. I think uh, Anna Darmus gives one of the best performances of the year. Sure. She is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Which, But I think that's, I cannot say that about the film that's around her. Blonde, I, I have a big problem with not just 
kind of all the the three. I haven't seen Babylon yet, but uh, I imagine I'll have a similar opinion, just because they're kind of these over the top, uh, allegedly true stories. In the case of Elvis and, and Blonde, I, I don't think it's too valuable to read them as the actual stories of Elvis Presley or Marilyn Monroe. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, the thing about Blonde is it, it basically reduces, even if she was a fictional character, it reduces a woman to only her suffering. You know, there's yeah. no yeah. joy in her performances and her success and anything she's accomplished. It's just this woman suffered. This woman was abused. And we're just going to go into great, great detail about that because that's what's interesting about her now in elvis it's a little bit different because elvis if i want to view it charitably it's doing something interesting it's telling the story from an unreliable narrator point of view so if you're actually watching the story of elvis through the eyes of colonel parker it would be something completely different than the actual story of elvis but again it's it's such a a warped kind of way to look at the Elvis story, especially since, you know, Tom Hanks isn't playing it anywhere near real or with, uh, or with, you know, real emotions. But, um, but yeah, but, but, but Baz Luhrmann is putting in all his Baz Luhrmann stuff, which is interesting because he is kind of the over the top Ken Russellish director who somehow is also commercial. Like, uh, mm-hmm. He actually got people into Romeo and Juliet, you know, I'd, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to do with uh, Baz Luhrmann. He's an interesting <laughs> case. Yeah. I don't know what to do with yeah. him either. Yeah. 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 Actually. And just one final thought on blonde is that I know that Joyce Chopra who made smooth talk also adapted blonde for television, I think. And it's on TV yes. and I've meant to see it for contrast because I love smooth talk and I don't know a lot of Joyce Chopra's other work, but um I'd be curious to see that, yeah. Yeah. Um, Brainwashed was another one you mentioned, and that's one I haven't seen yet. I know that Jim and I both did podcasts in 2022 with women who trashed it. Mariah Gates <clears throat> trashed it, and Elena Lassich trashed, trashed it. So yeah. I, I think that they kind of scared me off, but I will give it a shot. I just I didn't want to hate watch it, and what they were describing sounded like something that was going to annoy me. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think most people aren't big fans of it. Uh, to be honest, but I should see it. I should see it to make up my own mind because I like yeah, plenty yeah. of divisive films. Um, Hit the Road uh, is not on my list, but I thought I did like it. And it was a film that initially was getting like a little Miss Sunshine kind of feeling from it until <laughs> it kind of veered into this kind of more ambiguous territory with the sun, mm-hmm. where it felt like there was some kind of symbolic ambiguity going on that I really kind of had to chew over when it was over. So it's one that I haven't seen a second time, but I feel like it's going to play very differently knowing where it begins and where it ends. Um, so I won't spoil it for people are listening. I haven't seen it, but it's, it, 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 it's one that grew on me as it went along. Um, Anonymous Club was nearly on my list, and that was one that Jim had recommended to me. And I'd never heard Courtney Barnett's records. I went into it really just completely cold. And I, I, uh, I've said this on Directors Club before, but like I'm a huge uh, music documentary junkie. Uh, I will watch any and all that come along, and I saw a lot this year. None of them are on my list. And actually, the best one is a film that I don't think really had a U.S. release yet, called Ennio about Ennio Morricone, which is um, oh. 
a masterpiece and one of the best films about uh, film composing, if not the best one. Um, Oh my gosh, I got to see that right away. (laughs) It's an epic length film. It's got all the talking heads except for John Carpenter that you would think of. Everyone from Clint Eastwood to Quincy Jones, obviously Tarantino, um, you know, all talking about him, Dario Argento. (laughs) And um, it really gets into the music in a way that a lot of these, a lot of these, music documentaries tend to follow that behind the music kind of format of just the personal drama of success and mm-hmm. it gets into that but it also gets into just the minutiae of how he broke so much ground artistically um that I, I i didn't put it on my list but it's just you know i i don't know the, these things are kind of arbitrarily constructed sometimes um both sides of the blade and another film that i don't know if it'll be on either of our lists but stars at noon um, I thought Cla- uh, Claire Denis had a really strong year, and I kind of regret not p- putting either of the films on my list. But I, I told Jim this that Tarantino's Manson family had a really good year between Austin Butler and Elvis, Margaret Crawley and Stars <laughs> at Noon, and Mikey Madison in Scream. Um, you know, chewing scenery. But the, um, you know, I uh, thought Stars at Noon. I heard it was a disaster from all the can coverage, so I went into it kind of just out of a Claire Denis loyalist kind of feeling, and I thought it was a really entertaining interesting film i don't know if i had coherent enough thoughts on it to put it on the list but if you only heard that it was a mess i would say make up your own mind on it uh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna i'll I'll watch that soon actually because i'm curious she's i mean she carries the film if you it's one of those performances where if you go with it it's a it's a really good film if you think she's completely wrong for the part and and you don't know what she's up to as an actor then it's going to be torture. But it's a it's a definitely kind of performance that's a love it or hate it kind of thing that makes the film. Kind of like Crispin Glover and River's Edge or something. Like, it, it, you either are with it or you're not. Um, Happening, I really thought was great. Um, and it's funny because the writer, um, uh, what is her name? She won the uh, Annie Ernaux, uh, the, she, the Nobel oh, Prize right. winner who yeah. um, Happening is adapted from her home videos or home movies were turned into one of my favorite films of the year. The super eight, uh, the super eight story. Do you know that one? I don't know. Um, it's the, where have I heard of that though? I'm sorry. The super eight years was the title, but it's, it's these, um, collection of, uh, eight millimeter, uh, home movies of her family kind of traveling around in the seventies. Oh, right. And it's kind of got like this. It's only like an hour long, right? Yeah. A little over an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's gotten some mixed reviews, but I thought it was really kind of, uh, compelling. Uh, I think I saw it at New York film festival. It's not on the list for today, but, um, interesting that it came out the same year as happening because they kind of, I don't know, it makes for an interesting contrast if you know that one is autobiographical and then you have what comes next for that character. Mm-hmm. Um, all I'll say about Kimmy is that I thought it was one of the least self-conscious of Soderbergh's thrillers and totally entertaining. I, I mean, uh, he's you know able to really turn off his tributes to 60s British <laughs> films if he wants to and just tell tell a story kind of straightforwardly and satis- you know, satisfyingly. And I think that's one of the better covid era kind of uh agoraphobic films <laughs> yeah I, I hope he never retires he shouldn't <laughs> yeah well i'm curious about his magic mike sequel oh yeah yeah um 
I would say about after Yang that there's a film that I saw in Canada this year that I, I assume is coming out next year. So I didn't talk about it today, but it's called The Artifice Girl. It would make hmm. an interesting double feature. It's uh, all I'll say. I don't think people have really seen that one outside of a few select screenings. But um, I liked I liked After Yang, uh, and I, it definitely felt like a gym movie when I watched it. Oh sure, yeah. As I was watching it, it's what it totally. Reminded. I was like, yeah. So, sometimes there's just movies that I'm like, oh yeah, this is definitely made for me, and I'm glad it exists. Yeah. Uh, certainly, yeah. there's one coming up later that I don't think has made any other lists but mine. Maybe. Well, we'll see. I and I'll, I'll say just. Um, that Crimes of the Future isn't on my upper list, but I thought it was really good. I saw it twice in the theater, both times in a near-empty theater. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, you know, it's it's weird because it's it it feels like a c- cousin to Existence shot like Cosmopolis. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I know that it's it. an old script that he kind of dusted off and filmed. Like, it's a right. film that was meant to follow his 90s work, and it it's odd because... He does so many adaptations after Videodrome that there's really only a handful of films that come from original source material. And they all have that weird, sexual, fleshy, grotesque kind of um, dystopian future kind of thing. And I've wrestled with Crimes of the Future because I wasn't... Me I, too. I, 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 it's one I understood the negative reactions to. I, t- I took my late friend Travis Crawford to see it. He thought it was a masterpiece. Hmm. Um and, you know, we talked about it, you know, afterwards. I mean, I, it felt like a situation like Benedetta where, like, I liked it, but I, he was thinking I was crazy for not loving it. Um, you know, and Verhoeven is another person, since we mentioned Lerman, you know, of, like, wild men that, like, somehow, you know, can sometimes tick boxes and have Hollywood hits. And it's just very bewildering because they're, they're crazy people behind the camera. <laughs> um, but, yeah, Crimes of the Future, I mean, I'm glad Cronenberg got out of the uh whatever kind of you know industry prison that maps to the stars and cosmopolis and whatever he made years ago kind of put him in because i guess it was just chasing financing and nobody trusting him and crimes of the future probably does not help his case um but oh, but it's I, so interesting like that's kind of why i decided to put it on my list like it could easily be you know number 30 or whatever but there, it's just there's just something about like sometimes there are movies where i don't get it but i still think about it and I still want to try and piece it together in the future to where, yeah, it, those are the kinds of movies I keep going back to. And that's why they make my list, you know? I just, yeah. And, and, and now that I'm talking about it, I would say that Howard Shore's music is probably oh, what I should have said for score, but I sure. didn't think of it. Um, Another reliably consistent composer, especially when he works with Cronenberg. Yeah. 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 And, 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 uh, we're not going to go over people we lost in this last year, but just shout out to Angela Badalamente, my favorite composer oh. that we uh, that we lost. It's going to be <laughs> this was a hard year, man. There was a lot of people we lost, both personally and you know, heroes in, in yeah, the industry yeah. that I just can't believe are gone. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's definitely like uh, a year like no other in terms of the film people that I knew that. Yeah. Uh, that are gone, but yeah, certainly a year where we lose people like Angela Badalamenti, uh, you know, let alone people like Jean-Luc Godard that I seem to be like the Dylan, like they'd go on forever and ever, you know, but, uh, yeah, everybody's got to go sometime, but it's, yeah, I, I don't know. Crimes of the future. I'm glad he had one more, you know, and maybe one more after that, you know, to, uh, to get people to chew over. I mean, he's always interesting. I, there's no film of his that I don't think is worth chewing over. And that's, 
certainly no uh, exception. on earth would spend an hour talking about Monument Avenue, a forgotten Ted Demi movie? Well, Jason and Jules is the answer, and their podcast is We Doing Filmographies. Billy Crudup, Keith Gordon, Ray Liotta, Rada Mitchell, those are just some of the actors to receive the deep dive treatment, starting with their first film. Who's next? Well, you'll have to tune in every Saturday to find out. Subscribe and listen to We Doing Filmographies everywhere where you get your podcasts And be their friend on all the socials. And stay tuned, because they're going to be joining the Now Playing Network soon enough. That's we doing filmographies. Oh boy, so we're doing this. We got our top ten films of 2020. Well, I don't know. I don't even like saying top or best. It's our favorite films of 2022. And these are the ten that stood out the most for us. Uh, And as always, I always say, like like you even did with your honorable mentions bill that ranking these are sometimes just darn silly to do. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm not even sure that I like all 10 of these as much as some of the stuff in my runners up. It was just arbitrarily thrown together this morning. <laughs> yes, that's kind of how it goes. And it's like, you know, tomorrow if I watch something from your list, who knows, maybe it'll just change my list entirely. So, I mean, that's kind of why I really love Letterbox is that oh, if I want to change it later i certainly can and that's why i always tell people to follow me there because you never know this list could change tomorrow yeah well i know there's one film that i didn't like that you did that i wanted to rewatch it before we recorded to see if i had a change of heart but I've ha- mm. i have no internet <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah there's a couple on here um you probably mixed on so it'll be interesting uh like these could be a little bit more conversational so, yeah. uh, you know, if you have things to respond to after somebody mentions a title, you know, don't hold back this time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, like I said, like I was scrambling, so I don't have like a lot of notes on these. I mean, I might go as brief as I did on my, uh, runners up depending on. Yeah, on, I might on too. I might so. too. I mean, I'm not like, it, this is a good year. It's fine, but I'm not like so overly passionate about most of these movies. Like you mentioned, Brad too. Like there's. Uh, certainly not I mean, I'll, few. Get, I'll get there but yeah. not throughout <laughs> yeah yeah i just i mean this there's some I'm, i mean obviously my number one of course but i mean there's just like i feel like it, it's kind of a ho-hum year and not one i feel like oh god this is going to go down in history as one that i'm gonna think about or you know go back to in a way that i have with some years certainly 99 2007 there's there's a lot of years where it was just like holy crap we got a lot of we got spoiled (laughs) so but this isn't one of those years for me so maybe that's why i won't go into like super long diatribes or you know about why (laughs) why i love them i i think you know for the most part it's pretty straightforward like you know, and some of the movies people know about. So we'll begin. This mm. time we're starting with Brad going to Bill. And wait, wait, how did we do it? Let me see. I was last, I thought. Oh, that's right. Okay, let's do that. Brad, me, and then Bill this time. Oops, so Brad- but I tricked you real quick because one person <laughs> sent in their five favorite films of 2022. And I just wanted to read this really quickly because, well, we don't get a whole lot of emails and I wanted to acknowledge it. And I'm very grateful. Alexander or Anders. His top five. Number five is Nope. I think it works as better as a suspenseful sci-fi thriller than a statement about spectacle in cinema. Number four, 3,000 Years of Longing. 
This is a strong contender for the most beautiful film of the year, he says. Number three, the unbearable weight of massive talent. Surpassed all my expectations and subverted many of them. Nick Cage and Pedro Pascal have the best bromance I've seen in a long time. Number two is R, R, R. I loved every minute of it. Number one, everything, everywhere, all at once. The way that Daniels handle a strange concept surprises me every time. This is an incredible and moving experience I will not soon forget. Michelle Yeoh is great, as always. Thanks again and Happy New Year, Anders. Oh, so great to get that list. And uh, I don't necessarily uh, send out requests for lists uh, like I used to in the past episodes of this show, but I'm just grateful. And uh, feel free to send uh, any comments, questions, concerns, recipes to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, now back to the show where Brad will reveal his number 10. And uh, hey, let's just deal with this. Uh, My 10 is uh, Black Panther Wakanda Forever. I know it's it's controversial because people have feelings about comic book movies. And I think why that's happening is because they are so prevalent right now. They are kind of the guaranteed attention-getting thing for the public. And, And I think they very uh i think a lot of them are as repetitive and dumb as kind of the reputation would have it but there's something that the mcu generally does that appeals to me and not all the time they had some kind of not so great ones this year but i do think there's something special going on with the black panther series because it's dealing with stuff that's a little deeper than your standard uh, action fare. And in this case, it's uh, dealing with it uh, involuntarily because of the death of uh, Chadwick Boseman, who played the Black Panther in the first film. Uh, the, the result of which is the film is about grief which is, again, not your usual subject matter for this kind of movie, but it's, it's handled in a very good way because we focus on uh, T'Challa's uh, sister, Shuri, who is basically the next in line uh, after her mother and the royal lineage. And she is taking uh, the death of her brother very hard. And the movie follows her through these kind of stages of grief to the point where it really focuses on the anger stage. So there's a really powerful sequence where she expects to be in communion with uh, a relative who, you know, she respects who she would like to have um, be an influence on her. But instead she ends up in communion with uh, a villainous character, which reflects how she can't let go of her anger, how that has haunted her and made her a more uh, ambiguous character in general. And so the movie's theme starts to deal with that. It's also dealing with some more interesting world issues. Uh, the The first movie dealt with imperialism. It dealt with the idea of why certain countries... Uh, have all the wealth and other countries have no none and what is the responsibility to help others 
And here the, the main villain of the piece, uh, Namor, from an, an underwater city that in the uh, source material was Atlantis, is now a, a fictional uh, Central American city uh, that has been sunk kind of akin to the, the, the Mayans or the Aztecs. And again, it be, kind of becomes a question of, you know, of resources, of, of actual real life political things being dealt with in a uh, in a popcorn film. And it delivers on the popcorn stuff as well. There's a lot of great action. There's a lot of, uh, you know, just good things we expect from this kind of movie. But in the case of the Black Panther films, I think there's a little more. It's not perfect. It's a little too long. There's a few extraneous characters uh, that we could lose. But all in all, if, uh, if we're going to be doing movies like this, I think this is the way to do them. What else? <laughs> you, you, you might like it. I mean... <laughs> I saw I yeah I saw more mixed reviews on it um but I, what you're describing does sound like something I would give a shot to I I, yeah. I like the first one okay I Ryan Coogler is frustrating for me because I really loved Fruitvale Station and mm-hmm. it feels like every film he makes since then gets further and further away from that film in terms of like his ambitions to make a much more crowd pleasing I mean from Creed to Black Panther to uh, Wakanda Forever. I, I don't know if he'll ever come back to something that small and um, I don't know what the what the word would be, but like something kind of like more kind of realist, uh, like a smaller kind of story. I kind of miss that first film, but maybe you only tell that kind of story once and then you have other ideas. I mean, I, I think that I, I saw most of the Marvel films up to was Endgame the second one, or I can't remember of the of, of the two part Avengers film, but I remember one yes. of them having kind of a, uh, like the like the opening half of it being almost kind of more funereal and more mournful, um, and I remember it kind of calling attention to itself because I, I I have movie night every every week with a friend of mine who's a Marvel fan, and so sometimes I pick things that are arty and weird, and sometimes she picks Marvel movies. So I saw a lot of the Marvel movies with a friend of mine. And, you know, I, I took them all for what they were. Like, I, I don't kind of come at it from a place of, like, hate watching or trying to make fun of it. I think with the, just the domination, like, culturally of them in a way that it wasn't the same as when Superman or Batman or Spider-Man were big movies growing up. I think it's just the fact that nothing else is really drawing an audience and it's kind of being normalized. That, no, that belongs on television. Um, that's, I think, where some of the aversion to it. I don't even really agree with Scorsese's it's not cinema kind of argument. Oh, but, no. But I but I do understand the concern that if Kugler wants to make a Fruitvale station, it will have to be a vanity project, kind of like the way Babylon is forced through the system just because, you know, this director is coming from a place of power with awards or, you know, a previous hit. Um, so maybe Kugler will make something because I remember him being interviewed by maybe Elvis Mitchell and he had like, you know, cinephile influences. Like he was not like just some 
I, I don't know what people expect him to be. Like he just, he wasn't somebody that wasn't well-versed in film, you know, like. So Kugler has, has a vision and the various films, whether they be kind of more independent or more uh, popcorn do have things in common that, you know, make them Ryan Kugler films. But I, again, I think the problem we're seeing is not in the films themselves in the films that are coming out. It's the films that aren't coming out. Yeah. or aren't getting distributed. So yeah. there's a frustration because we're not getting films for adults in theaters. We, it's all the things we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast. But then, you know, you look at the various popcorn movies that are getting all the attention. And I, I don't think the answer is stop making those. I think, I mean, although you can stop making Transformers movies anytime. <laughs> but the the problem is make room for the rest, make room for films, not just in letting them be made, but distributing them, yeah. advertising yeah. for them, let people have a variety to choose from. Yeah. Well, and this is going to take us down a rabbit hole that I won't take us down, but I think part of it is the death of print media and the fact that you don't have mm. newspaper ads. I talked to Ted Hope about this a long time ago. And cause we, I, we, I talked to him about like what was different about, when you were making those Hal Hartley and Todd Salons movies in the nineties versus now, like why do these films struggle so much more? And what he told me was that newspaper ads were not impossible to afford and everyone had them in there in front of them. And if you have a eye catching ad, well, the four star reviews and the, maybe a sexy girl or something, you know, and the ad Miramax used to be good at that. Um, you could make a hit, you could make a $20 million success of in the bedroom or something, you right. know, which seems crazy now. But I think without that centralized, way of reaching everybody um you're just relying on them being connected to like the scattershot media of the internet and finding your advertising that way and it's like if people are siloed away from ads for uh films that are not you know disney products um it's gonna it's gonna be harder to people for people to even know what those are yeah no that's very true i hadn't I thought about the print media aspect of it. You're right. Uh, and it's, it could go down a whole, yeah, like you said, rabbit hole. With, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, with, I with, certain, yeah. with certainly like just even how I feel about what's happening with libraries. It's, it's a, it's a, it's an unusual time with, yeah. you know, people not necessarily like they, they're staying home so much to the point where they're doing their own research and maybe librarians could potentially become obsolete 10 years in the same way, maybe going to the movies, it, it'll be super niche. So I don't know. Again, we'll we'll touch upon that and just see how the future goes as we continue this crazy ride. Uh, and certainly if we keep the podcast going, we're always going to make comments like that. Uh, and, you know, every once in a while, you know, I mean, heck, Brad mentioned a, a superhero movie. My kind of superhero happens to be Michelle Yeoh. Uh, I... <sighs> Everything Everywhere All at Once is my number 10, and this movie is bonkers. It is insane. And as I was even watching it, 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 it had the potential, like especially early on, of me going, well, this is probably going to give me a migraine, or I'm just going to get suckered into its energy. And uh, fortunately, it was the latter. And Sometimes these movies that are super manic or you're like you're even something like your Scott Pilgrim or whatever, they they don't necessarily come together in a way that appeals to me. But I almost was 
again, there's like little detours and little moments, and it's so dense, and there's things that I can't even imagine what they all mean. But I was just kind of in awe of just the just them trying to pull this off as I'm watching this, uh, <laughs> the just like creating all these multiverses what and whatnot. But it's I can see why people are loving this movie with all their heart too. You know, like th- this movie is connected with a lot of people in in ways that are saying, well, this is a new favorite of mine. And it reminds me of the response to The Matrix in a way, where it was just like some people were head over heels in love with that movie. Uh, and I certainly probably had that at number 10 on my list for 1999. And similar to this, I'd, it's certainly not in my top five for a reason. There's things that don't click with me or when it tries to aim for humor, like hot dog hands or <laughs> butt plugs, or, you know, I, 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 it's not like I didn't find that funny. I just didn't think it, it was as <laughs> clever as some of the more um, uh, approaches to the themes and, and what the ultimate sentiment of the film is what worked for me in the end. And yet at the same time, I like the, the rocks, you know, <laughs> And I like the googly eyes, and, and there's just like little absurd touches that didn't win that did win me over, and I could and, and I could see this in other hands being this weird absurd mess that doesn't work, but it does. Like it, it there's that homage to uh, Wong Kar Wai in this. There's there's these full blown fight scenes, and it's great to see short round and. Michelle Yeoh together fighting at times. Uh, And yet this, like this idea of resilience in a family unit and trying to get back to some kind of normalcy, you know, is as impossible as it seems because at times we all just want to look into the everything bagel void and tune everything out. You know, I just, I, I think just what this film is ultimately saying is what got to me. You know, it's, it's kind of, it, it might be simplistic to just be like, Oh, it's the love of one another that keeps us going. But every once in a while, something like this. And uh, that's why I understand why some people really love superhero movies too, is that the simplicity of the sentiment can often just win you over. You know, I, I get it. I, but this is my version of a superhero movie where it does make weird detours and it does have weird visual touches and flourishes and it is energetic and dense. And in the end, though, it's ultimately kind of heartwarming, the relationship between the mother and the daughter here. I mean, Stephanie Sue is really f- amazing in this movie, uh, along with everybody I've talked about already. But it's also just a really nice way to look at, at the world, like that a life in in stasis is also one of possibility. You know, I think that's kind of what the movie is trying to say. And the fact that you have people by your side is also a plus. So um, I really like the Daniels and what they do, even though I can see people being completely turned off by it. Uh, There's just so much going on that I think this is ultimately going to be one of those movies that will reward rewatches over time. So it could even potentially be higher, but I'm, I'm leaving it at number 10, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah. This is one where I will be, um, the one most on the fence with it. I didn't dislike it. Um, um, and I, I get the appeal of it. I, I, uh, 
I thought the ending was actually quite moving, so I'm not like immune to it. But I yeah. think that when I was watching it, I found it kind of exhausting. Like the level of oh sure, the level of things coming at you. I think one thing that looking at my own list for today, it's like oppressive austerity and minimalism. It seems to be a theme. So the Daniels seem to be operating on a totally different principle. And I just did a Ken Russell episode, so I know I can respond to overstatement as well as understatement. But uh, this is one that I wanted to see again, uh, as with Elvis, to see if I could connect to it more knowing what I was going into. I remember the first time I, well, the only time I saw it was in the theater and my mind drifted for a second in the first 15 minutes and right as things were starting to get surreal. I'm like, wait, am I going to be lost now for two hours? What happened? Why? What's going on? But then I, you know, I found my footing and it reminded me of um, like if Michelle Gondry had been hired to do a Marvel movie. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And so I get the appeal of that. I mean, I, and I'm I'm happy that Michelle Yeoh is, I mean, I think that she will, I don't think she should beat Kate Blanchett, but I'll be surprised if she doesn't beat Kate Blanchett for Best Actress, just because the optics are better for that. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's a success story that I, I, I'm certainly not mad at it. I, I like that it, you know, that it's an underdog film that, that has brought a lot of joy to people, but you know, I'm, I, I'm definitely like, I'm I'm probably close to the people that found it more tiring <laughs> than than funny. Yeah, but, I'm surprised. Uh, I'm surprised that I didn't find it tiring because sometimes something like this that's just you know stimulation overload, I have yeah. an opposite response to. I just kind yeah. of get numb by it. And I might I might feel differently on a second watch knowing what it is, but like that's my my first reaction is just that I liked parts of it. It's definitely like more invention than I know what to do with. Like, it's definitely not a film short of <laughs> ideas. I think it's just, you know, I, I think because it kind of came pummeling at, pummeling at me with those ideas that I never really felt like I had a chance to really even enjoy any of it <laughs> because I was already onto the next thing to like consider. Sure. Um, I can see but, that. Yeah. But, um, but that's, you know, that's my, you know, I, I, I get, I get, you know, I get the appeal of it. I, I don't think it's a bad film at all. Like, and I, maybe I'll like it on a rewatch. I, I, it will probably be a movie night selection with my Marvel friends. So, um, and they're excited to see it. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my thought on There that should one. be an accompanying oh. book yeah. that, you know, gives you <laughs> cliffs notes or something to all the things going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a little, a, a little more bullish on this one, so I will hold my comments till. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I assume yeah. this one will be much higher on your list. Yeah. So I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. My m- number ten uh, is one that I went into with low expect, not low expectations. But I think I thought it was going to be just okay because um, I saw the trailers. I saw it was closing New York Film Festival, and I just thought, I thought maybe. I put this like I thought like it was just being honored just because uh, maybe maybe for identity politics reasons, because it's the uh, inspection. I went into it, you know, and it's it's a film about a uh, a uh, a black man, gay and homeless, who is rejected by his family and uh, rejected by his mother in particular. And so he joins the Marines and his experience there and it's based on the real life story of elegance uh, bratton the uh the director of the film and i thought you know it would be fine but it would be um you know a film that maybe uh just because of what it represents yeah uh, you know was why it was being so uh so lauded but it's a great film 
uh, it, and it's, you know, the fact that it's a first time director, I, I didn't feel it. Like I thought it was a, 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 a completely moving, cleverly directed film. Um, and in talking about, um, you know, everything everywhere all at once, I liked the sentimentality of that ending, whatever reservations I had about its kind of frenzied inventiveness. The inspection really kind of I, seems to be moving towards a sentimental ending that it completely backs away from. It's actually quite a stark uh, ending that I was not uh, prepared for, but that moved me in a completely different way. Um, I know that you haven't seen it, so I don't want to spoil too much about it. I know that people are still discovering this one, even though I saw the trailer for it several times at a multiplex. So I don't quite get what happened with it. But um, yeah, and I don't know if Elegance Bratton is going to be a director to watch. I mean, you can only tell your origin story once. <laughs> um, but uh, as as just uh, personal filmmaking, I, I, again, I think a theme we're going to return to more than once today is uh, autobiographical uh, writer directors. Um, I don't know if Armageddon Time is on anyone's list, but you know, this is a year that you have a few films that are um, you know drawn from life, and uh, the inspection is kind of a crazy story. Uh, you know, I, I mean, maybe it happens all the time, but I, I think that uh, I, I just found it really rich and and moving film. And uh, I hope people um, that are maybe uh, skeptical of it or think the trailer just kind of seems like kind of just a, a slightly more uh, modern twist or, uh, on the service um, service person kind of melodrama um it's 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 a great example of that kind of thing like it 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 it's, it moves beyond whatever kind of generic expectations you have of it um so yeah i hope people uh see the inspection i certainly will i'm looking forward to it yeah thanks for bringing it to our attention mm-hmm. what's next for brad Is Brad there? Brad just had enough of this. Yeah. Guys? Yeah. Okay, maybe we can edit maybe we can edit this out. I was on mute. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, we can make it I don't know. People might find it suspenseful all of a sudden, like, oh, what happened right. to Brad? <laughs> Turn it into a movie. <laughs> it's Kimmy, basically. <laughs> oh okay, so my number nine is from another genre that uh some people are not crazy about uh, the horror genre. Uh, it is Barbarian, mm. which was for me just a, a breath of fresh air because at the same time it was kind of old fashioned, kind of reminded me of the good old days of 80s horror and then also had just enough twists and turns that it felt fresh to me. So because of those twists and turns, there's going to be a, a, a little bit of a spoiler warning here. Uh, if you don't want to know, you might not want to hear the next bit of it. But if you've seen it, you know that the movie does go in some interesting places. But but first, I just kind of want to mention where it came from. Because for me, it reminded me a lot of Wes Craven <laughs> and his style of filmmaking. And particularly, even though this is a more, this is a less obvious political allegory it still is one it reminded me a little bit of uh people under the stairs sure, yeah, yeah. and oh, how wow. it uh lampooned the reagan years and 
I think this one did kind of the same. It, it not not for the Reagan years, but for our current times. It, it starts out just as a really tense, um, haunt, not a haunted house, but a someone's in the house movie. And so a, a young lady has arrived uh, at a B&B and there's already a kind of a creepy dude there who's uh, played by Bill Skarsgård, who already, since he's it, would also raise some red flags. But no, he's okay. But there's, uh, there's uh, some nasty stuff going on in the basement. And just as that bit comes to a real tense crescendo, we split completely to an entire other scenario where we're following this uh, sleazy Hollywood dude, Justin Long, around. And we have no idea how this is going to connect to anything that came before. Later in the movie, we flash back to the cause of all this chaos of uh, something that happened back in the 80s, giving us yet another tone. So this is this all then comes together in the end and raises some questions about who in the movie actually is the barbarian. And... I don't know, the combination of all those different elements really appealed to me and the fact that they were able to to bring it together. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I got to think about that one, too. I, I really loved it, too. Um, I was trying to figure out why they called it that. I thought for a minute it was like an anagram of Airbnb, but it's not enough letters. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, but um, yeah, no, I, I thought it was great. Um not too much to add to it. I think that I thought the first half was the stronger half, mm-hmm. but um, but I thought that the the um, the Me Too satire stuff with Justin Long was also pretty entertaining in its own way, and even the um, like the flashback period stuff I thought with the with the serial killer I thought was was quite good. I I, I don't know what was going on this year with like all the films that. Uh, I don't know if there were more than just X and this, but like the uh, the monstrous nude women in the house kind of <laughs> kind of horror. Oh. Uh, we, we, all, we all grew up on The Shining. Yeah, I guess that is true. Yeah, but um, yeah, no, it's definitely uh, was a nice surprise. I'm glad I saw it before the hype started building for it because I think that people mm-hmm. got a little bit more critical of it after it was like this word of mouth success. But as a uh, as a, as a scary night at the movies, I thought it totally worked, and um, I'm excited to see it again. Yeah, it was fun to see with a crowd. And yeah. I mean, it wasn't like a huge crowd, but it was still a crowd that got into it and certainly laughed or jumped, and similar to Smile in that regard, but also um, I, I wasn't too crazy about just how things completely wrapped up at the end and the jumping off the tower moment was like, Meh. I don't know. I kind of wanted something else to happen, and I'm not sure what mm. exactly, but certainly the payoff with the choice of the closing song is quite memorable. <laughs> uh, that choice was yeah, like, just, oh, perfect. Okay, got it. And, and the ending worked for me just because, you know, you're most, after the first shift, you're set up to think a certain character is going to be the villain. Yeah. And then a whole other character is the villain. Right. No, no, it definitely a surprise for me for sure like that's a movie that i didn't know anything about the director i i honestly i don't even know if i knew justin long was in it and it was around the same time i saw him in 
House of Darkness, which is strange. To, like they could be kind of double feature in a way, although very different movies. Uh, but still, just no, it was a lot of fun. It, it's it's definitely worth seeing. I like that it came out the same year as The Northman and Viking, but only one of them is actually about Vikings. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, number nine. Oh boy. Well, that's the thing. Um, it's, I guess it's a little surprising that it's low too, considering how much I love all three of her other films. But this might be my least favorite to date by Sarah Polly. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think um, women talking is worth talking about. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I did read the book when I knew when when it was like announced she was adapting it. And it is very faithful uh, down to some of the dialogue. But initially I was like, hmm, how do I feel about these sort of decolored cinematography, which has kind of gotten a lot of people riled up a little bit. Like, why does it look like that? I sort of warmed up to it. I sort of accepted it. I sort of went, maybe it's because the color, or like this is their live, like their lives are devoid of color in a way. Or, you know, it's like, I guess it fits the feeling that everybody's experiencing in, in some ways. And I don't know. The performances from everyone here certainly helps carry everything along. I think some complaints have been like, well, it's not very cinematic or she doesn't really do a whole lot. And I, this is a story that doesn't call for that either. You know, like a dizzying camera or something or, you know, just like crash zooms or something. I don't know. Like people want her to do more. And I was just like, that, that's not what this story needs. And what it's ultimately trying to say about women trying to confront the horrors of men uh, and what is the best approach? How do you go about doing that? I think that was just a simple question asked and we get different perspectives and different interpretations and ideas. And I just enjoyed the experience of watching everybody hash this out and talk it through. Even though, again, you can make the argument this could just be a filmed place. <laughs> and I liked filmed plays. So even if it's just women talking for the majority of this movie, it's interesting to hear what they're talking about. And it's something that we should all be thinking about and listening to. And they're confined. So it makes sense that the movie itself is kind of confined to this limited space. And the only freedom they can actually experience is in this communal setting together by communicating to one another and reaching out to one another and being real with what they're feeling. And at times it's really hard to take, especially when you know what them and their children have been through. And we also get a very interesting character played by Ben Wishaw, who is not just like just the quote unquote token nice guy, but he's wrestling with his own feelings about what he's experiencing there and listening to. So I don't know. I think I just really love the experience of being with these people, even if it's really hard to hear and knowing that, you know, this is sort of loosely based on real events that have occurred. Um, I think the score is lovely. I, I think it's overused a little bit here and there, but in terms of another strong acting showcase with a lot of important things to say and convey to everybody. I, 
I think Sarah Pauly did a great job. You know, she's one of my favorite writer directors working. And this is something I think everyone should see and have a conversation about more than something like she said. (laughs) So that's kind of my feelings about it. And I know that some people aren't connecting with it as strongly and you might be one of them, Bill, but I, I, of course I just, I knew I was going to love this and I'm glad I did. Yeah, and I know that this is going to be, I, I assume this is going to be, uh, you know, coming up again on Brad's list. Um, and, Indeed. Yeah, and, and I, I, I thought it was okay. Like, I didn't, I, 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 I went into it with high hopes. I knew that it was getting a lot of buzz. Sarah Polly, as a filmmaker, I liked st- stories we tell. And everything else, I think, is a noble effort. Like, I, I. I think she seems like a cool person. Like she's a smart, <laughs> unpretentious person. From what I understand about the making of women talking, it was a fun, safe environment for people to create. The performances are all great. Um, you know, totally root for it, but it kind of left me just kind of in, in, indifferent. Uh, and I didn't like the look of it and I wasn't sure what, the message ultimately was, um, or at least I, I felt like I was coming away with a, an interpretation of the message that I don't think was the filmmaker's intent, but it seemed a little bit, I, I don't want to give away the ending, but I thought that it maybe was arguing for something naive on un, unwittingly mm, as far as the solution yeah. to, to toxic masculinity. Um, so, so I struggled with this one a little bit, but I certainly don't, I certainly don't, um, I get why people do like it. And, uh, you know, I, I was, it wasn't like a case of like she said, where I thought it was a bad film. Like, I think it's probably a good film. I might even like it more without these reservations on a rewatch. I only saw it the one time at New York film festival when I had kind of been led to think that this was one of the best films of the year before it even started, which never helps anything. I see. Yeah, I hate when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, like, I, I hope this one grows on me, but I mean, it's, it's, it's with all of her films, other than stories we tell, I, I, I admire it more than I can really connect to it. Um, okay. I can buy that. I was yeah. also surprised how little Francis McDormand is used. That's one thing that kind of, when I walked out of it, I was like, huh. I mean, she doesn't need to be necessarily, but I, why couldn't she be a part of more of those conversations too? Yeah. Yeah. And I like the, I like the use of, of, was it daydream believer? Like I like, oh, I yeah. like the moments that, you know, you bring up and I think the cast is, I mean, Jesse Buckley and, you know, uh, Claire Foy. Yeah. And who is the, um, the one I'm thinking of also from Carol, uh, Oh, Rooney Mara. Rooney oh, Mara. Rooney Mara. Yeah. Like everybody is, is great. Like, and you know, I, 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 I'm not knocking the cast or anything. I, I think it just, some, something about it. I just couldn't really hold on to. I mean, it just, just seemed fine. <laughs> and I bet that's how Patrick is, would feel about it too. That's my guess, but yeah, I, I yeah. don't want to, I don't, I, and I understand that too. But yeah. And, I, just... and, and, and people might have that reaction to some of the films that are coming up on my list. Like I, some of the films I like are a little bit, a little bit on the subtle side. <laughs> so it's sure, just, sure. it's just my, it's just my gut reaction to that one. Um, and my number nine uh, is return to soul from Davy Chow, um, which I think it's still getting kind of more of a, of, of a proper release. It had, it had a limited like appearance in New York this year, but I think it's really more of a film that people will have a chance to see next year. 
Um, but it's I, number, I did want, it's number thirty on my list. I did want to at least I shout it out. It this was this was one. The premise, as much as I'll say, is it's about a twenty-five-year-old woman who's Korean uh, descent, but she was adopted by uh, French parents, so she's raised as a French woman, French citizen, but she's visiting Korea and just kind of spontaneously finds and connects with her biological parents um, as a 25 year old, but she's, and so it seems like it's setting up some kind of uh, sentimental melodrama about family and reconnection. And it's not going to do that. Like it's actually something that's kind of hard edged at its core because that character is not a soft character. Um, the, uh, the center of the story. And so it, 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 it goes to places I was not expecting it to go uh, that I think I was expecting it to have the beats of something like the farewell. And it's, it, it, it kind of, it kind of, is a little bit tougher, um, but it's, yeah. but it's, um, it has the kind of freedom and, and like spontaneous feeling of like scenes play out and you don't know where they're going, but not in a, in a negative way. Like it just feels like, you're seeing a life lived in times like there's scenes that just um, have unexpected humor. Um, it, I mean, it's not, I don't want to oversell. Like it's not a perfect film, but it's a film that really kind of I found quite haunting by the end. And um, again, it's like with all of these films, you don't know like if they could get lost in the shuffle between when festival people see them and when they wind up on a streaming service next to 25 other films you've never heard of. So I would say that return to soul is, uh, yeah. a strong, strong film from a director. I don't know. I, I went into it with no real expectations other than I was hearing things at New York film festival that it was, uh, you know, a, uh, a sleeper film and it, it had a showing at, um, Museum of Mo- no, no, uh, Museum of Modern Art as one of the best films of the year. They have the, the little contender series, and so I knew it was getting this groundswell of critical attention. Um, but it, I think it does live up to that to that praise. So, uh, Jim, I know that you've seen this one. Did you? Yeah, what- it's it's very beguiling. Like, I mean, there's just the way it starts too. I mean, like as she's you know sort of I wouldn't say aimlessly wandering, but you know meeting up with certain people like at the restaurant and trying to form like a little community in the moment kind of feel. I mean, that's, and yet at the same time, it it, it is a little episodic in that she, you know, experiences different feelings and, and experiences through her life. And mm-hmm. I really found it uh, heartbreaking at the very end. Of course, it sort of builds to a final moment that, a lot of the movies of, of 2022, you think about it more, and especially in the moment, you're like, oh, and you're kind mm-hmm. of just torn to shreds for a bit. So it definitely affected me. And the lead performance, again, another huge reason to see this movie for yeah. sure. Uh, I, I, I want to watch it again at some point in the future, too, because I think yeah. it's I think it's a strong movie from a director that I, I again, like you said, I don't know. Um I haven't, I haven't no experience with, so it, it, no, it's very good. It's very the, good. The character is almost kind of like, I, I, not quite as extreme as Nicholson in five easy pieces, but it's like, hmm, kind of like someone that will like forthrightly initiate sexual situations that they don't care about yeah. that can walk away from like, like behavior that you might associate with 
the flawed male characters of a 70s film, but as a 25-year-old Korean woman. <laughs> so it's it's not a character I've seen before. And I've seen a lot of movies. Yeah, so that's true. Seen, that's I've true. I've not seen this dynamic. And I so I think I think that even if there are certain beats that don't reinvent the wheel, um, you know, uh, certain kind of like ecstatic dancing scenes that remind me of things in Mia Hansen Low films. Like I don't mind when it gets into things that I do recognize, but I don't think I've seen this character told this way. Yeah. So I think that's kind of why it stood out in you know in the films of the year for me agreed it's it's it really is special um so i hope people seek it is it pl- is it out i wonder if it's playing it's the forthcoming um hmm. i what who is it is it sony picture classics like it's a big studio that's handling it but i oh, okay. i don't know if there's dates for when it's coming so i don't know what their strategy is i i know that they're putting it in front of critics and tastemakers in the cities but i don't know what they it's such a weird environment for everything oh it says <laughs> I don't opens know. in new york and la february 17th okay so. so people will have you know a month to make their plans <laughs> yeah definitely seek this out yeah so i am a sucker for nostalgia even nostalgia that is not my own and uh so I was the perfect audience for Richard Linkletter's Apollo Ten and a Half. Yes. Oh, interesting! Yeah, that's a good one. It's it's a lot of fun. It's done in the rotoscoping animation style that he did previously in Waking Life and A Scanner Darkly. Now I think it's interesting. So what what makes him want to do that? Because he makes a lot of films that don't use that animation style, but. The times he does, he it's always for a very specific purpose. And I think here it is to provide a little bit of that unreality, a little bit of that idea that this entire story is being told from a kid's point of view. And not only what he's witnessing, but also kind of his interior life, because it's kind of two different movies. You have the story of his uh, memories of, growing up in this small town that's uh, mostly filled with people who are involved in the, in the space industry in the, in the 60s. But then also we see that he has been asked to become an astronaut himself, which I think the movie makes pretty clear is something uh, in his imagination. It's a wish fulfillment kind of thing, but it's, uh, it's presented to us in the same way as the rest of the movie. So it's a nice kind of contrast between uh, the realistic memories of growing up and his interior life and what he dreams of and what he wants to achieve. And Linkletter is a, a great director and really knows how to kind of give us points of view, uh, especially of kids. I mean, Boyhood was a wonderful example of how you know following a kid growing up at different stages and really conveying what it's like to be a kid and this one you know again in in a little more of a uh, impressionistic way still does that it still brings you back even if this wasn't your time to the idea of kind of what was childhood like what did how did people talk to you how did you talk to people how do you like to relate to your friends to authority figures and it's just a nice quiet observational piece 
I'm so happy this is on your list. I I I feel like I I I I was actually watching it when I lost my internet for a rewatch. Um, but I yeah no I think it's a, a wonderful film and and maybe it's funny because even though it is so clearly drawing from his childhood in such specific detail that you almost wonder if it's gonna lose a contemporary child audience that would yeah. be the same. Like I I feel like this. I could be totally wrong because I'm I'm middle aged too. <laughs> like you know, like I I I feel like this could be the most accessible film he's made um, for a, a mass audience, and I don't I don't hear about it a lot, and I don't know if it's because it's animated um, that it's not being taken as seriously as Boyhood, or um, but he- well, I think also also like Turning Red, it didn't get a really big theatrical release. Yeah. I mean, it's it's right it's right there on Netflix for anyone to see. Yeah. But I don't recall it ever actually showing up in the theaters. I, I'll, um, oh, I, I, I did forget to mention, by the way, that I really appreciated uh, Jack, what Jack Black did as the narrator. Mm-hmm. He's so unlike his regular persona that it took me a little while to figure out that it was him. Yeah. But uh, part of the way the movie is successful at uh, communicating with this is jack black's uh, delivery style oh totally i think he his cadence for delivering the voiceover narration i mean provides a lot of laughs he is subtly funny you know in it i i, I will just say as a personal aside that one of my saddest uh, experiences last week is i could not get out of work early and i had a free pass to a uh private screening of this film with link later in attendance in new york Aww. that i could have <clears throat> talked to him about it and I couldn't get to New York in time to go, and I just had to junk that pass. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, no, this is probably his yeah. most accessible movie, maybe since School of Rock, I would say. Yeah. I think so. I think you know? so. I, yeah, I mean, I, I know that Brian Sauer is is a big proponent of it. Like, I know some people that have been, oh, yeah. you know, uh, talking this one up, but I, I still feel like it's, it is being kind of cruelly underrated. I mean, when people are talking about, like, the best films of the year, I think it's it should be in all those conversations. And I think it's, I mean, what, I mean, Linklater is like one of those directors that has so many good films that I think it most, it would probably serve his auteur standing better if he was like Paul Thomas Anderson and just put out a film every couple of years. Um, he's closer to Soderbergh where it's like, people still need to process everything that he's done. But um, you know, I, I think when you look at the whole body of work, it's, it's, it's one of his best films. And I, you know, encourage people to check it out if they haven't uh, already done so. Yeah, I like all of his rotoscoping movies. You know, I mean, some people can't get into Waking Life because, again, it's just a bunch of people talking. But I love when the, when people are talking and saying interesting things that I've you know certainly understand and appreciate. I don't mind that. And here it is, just kind of like a hangout movie with mm-hmm. you know a a, a kid sort of learning what he's into and you know i i appreciate anytime Linkletter does a good coming of age story uh and yeah i've I, when i was when i was his age i was i was totally into you know both meteorology and astronomy and just thinking about what's up there uh and so i yeah it appealed to me i i guess i just i didn't feel as emotionally connected in a way that I, I anticipated. So maybe that's why it ended up lower on my list than I would have, and that I would have expected because I do tend to really love everything he does. And 
I'm probably underrating it. And then when I watch it again, I'll be like, oh, yeah, no, this is definitely one of the best of the year. Yeah, it's a, it was a good year for coming-of-age films. I have one coming yeah. up myself in a bit. But the um, yeah, I, I think when I think about it compared to Boyhood, I mean, Boyhood is getting into the granular details of a moment in time that is not his childhood. So it's a different kind of thing. Like This is closer to his Amarcord or his... I, I I know we shouldn't probably evoke radio days, but it's but it's you know it it feels like that level of detail, uh, you know about the rituals of youth, and I just it's so charming. I I, I we're, yeah, we're getting a bunch of those this year, and I think more that are better than average than we usually get. Um, but I think one of the re- one of the things that makes this different than a film like Boyhood is that it is aside from his imagine, imagination, it's a normal childhood. It's like there's not a lot of intense drama happening. It's stuff that we would just observe. We would just remember from our own childhood, you know, with the details being different. Yeah. But I, I think a lot of times, at least for me, uh, sometimes the lack of drama, the lack of something extraordinary you know, bring, brings you in in a, in a whole separate way. I mean, just kind of an everyday life kind of situation. Well, I, I think with, with Linkletter, it's funny because so many of the, what we think of as the auteur kind of directors that, you know, the movie Brats, et cetera, and the Sundance people, these were guys that couldn't get girlfriends, that were nerds and movie buffs. And Linkletter was not that. Linkletter was a handsome athletic guy <laughs> and his films always have surrogate Linklater characters that reflect who he was like he was a well-adjusted person that played sports and got girls and loved music and he became this rabid cinephile that loved Fassbender but he but he had like a almost disturbingly well-adjusted childhood compared to the you know the legends of <laughs> De Palma and Scorsese and Spielberg or Tarantino or whoever the director heroes are and I always thought that was so funny that his personal filmmaking reflect someone who was not alienated. <laughs> and I, I almost wonder if that sometimes makes him harder for critics to totally appreciate because they see themselves so much more in Coen brothers characters or whoever <laughs> that I think that, I think that the, the optimistic well-adjusted link later universe is something that is atypical for a tour cinema. I don't know if I'm generalizing, but that's kind of how I always think of his films. And I, I think that he probably only has like a half-hearted notion of even having to be an artist. I mean, he's definitely comfortable making a school of rock as much as, you know, doing something that is this personal. Um, and I don't know if it's like a one for me, like I'll do the before trilogy for me and I'll do um, Scanner Darkly for them. or I don't know like how he approaches it, but um yeah, interesting artist and one that I, th- I think I always kind of underrate because he's so hard to pigeonhole. Yeah, we had a, uh, I'm part of a film meetup group here in Chicago, and we had a, a meetup where we just went through his filmography. And it's it's some really exciting stuff to just revisit, uh, you know, even starting with something as strange as Slacker and Waking Life is, is all, you know, it's again, it's universal, but it's about dreams it's talking about dreams really intelligently and really from a lot of different weird people's point of view, Oh yeah, but it's still about dreams and everybody dreams. Yeah. Well, everybody knows how I feel about that one. <laughs> I, I, I am always fascinated by, you know, there's a lot of talk of existentialism in that movie too, but also just, 
why, why, who are we? Why are we here? Why do we dream with all those big questions, you know? And certainly here you can think about that in the context of outer space, you know, and like what's up there and why do we have such a fascination with it? And, you know, I think that, um, yeah, there's almost like a little Carl, Carl Sagan vibe, you know, infused. And I, I appreciate that in this film, something very different for my number eight, but it's just as, I don't know. So it, it's hard to talk about some of the things in the film because um, the, people have been so deeply affected by the opioid crisis. And two documentaries back-to-back on my list now. Uh, number eight is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which is this really uh, remarkable portrayal of a remarkable person from director Laura Poitras. And I've, I always felt like a, a, a documentary has to be more than just a series of images set to narration, you know, and maybe that's why, maybe that's why sometimes if the, it does take like a more PowerPoint or Ted talky approach, I kind of dismiss them, even if the content is interesting and here we don't get that approach at all. And I think she brought that similar vibe to citizen four, which I also really loved and made my list. Uh, here she sort of unravels the life of artist Nan Golden, who was this activist who, you know, she started out as this photographer and then sort of blossomed in her own way as an activist and who's been fighting for underrepresented communities for decades in a lot of different ways. And you get to see that in the film to where I don't want to go into great detail about her life. You should just watch the movie. <laughs> because I think once you experience that fresh, you will also be astonished by her accomplishments and her talent. And the fact that she's gone on to actively fight the Sackler family, the, that, that pharmaceutical company, I, I think it was Purdue that they were um, working with to distribute OxyContin and what she decides to do is confront them. And there's an unbelievable moment in this movie where a lot of the victims, uh, you know, whether they be family members or friends, they, they confront the Sackler family, uh, like a zoom call. And that's certainly one of the more powerful moments in the film and of the year, but there's really just like this clarity to her filmmaking and, it's never dull and it's just, you know, it's a documentary, but it does, it does feel like more of a character study to where there's a, you know, a, a, a narrative you can follow, but really get invested in. And it, it, in other words, it's, it's, it's another cinematic documentary as opposed to just being uh, a to B to C. Let me tell you about this person's life. It does go back and forth throughout time. So it's not a by-the-numbers approach to telling a story. So that's what I appreciate so much about her as a filmmaker because you can have this snapshot of a woman's life but do it in an interesting way that is also compelling uh, at the same time. So, And plus, I just love photography, and I, I, I've always wanted to sort of do what she does, so that really helps you know grab me in, in another way. Uh, I, I just, I don't know, there's this this wave of documentary filmmaking that I appreciate, uh, you know, kind of goes along the lines of what Kristen Johnson is doing. 
I don't know. I, I, I want people to see all the beauty and the bloodshed. Uh, I think it's, I think it's just now opening around the area here, at least in Chicago. I certainly can't wait to see it again because I was just so engrossed, not, not just by the subject, you know, that we're focused on and her incredible hard work that she's done, but just the film itself as a whole. So I, uh, I'm more than happy to put this incredible documentary on my list. So that's all the beauty and the bloodshed. Yeah, no, I, I like this one a lot, too. It was almost on my list. Um, I, I wanted to see it again, um, and I have no way to see it right now. <laughs> um, I think it's I think it will probably be on HBO Max after whatever kind of oh, good. life it has. Well, yeah, any way people can see it, you know, I really want them to. I mean, sometimes documentaries, I can see why you can <laughs> wait till streaming, just see it. I understand sometimes, sometimes you don't want to go see this in the movie theater. Although, the, like I said, this is not just you know, talking heads yeah, either. No, so. no. Well, it's funny you say talking heads because what I liked about it was the, the, the immersion into New York Bohemian art culture. Yes. And, uh, as a, as a, as a lifelong John Waters fan, all this, uh, stuff with Cookie Mueller and who mm-hmm. she became after, you know, her, you know, uh, initial kind of notoriety in the John Waters films and what, what became of her life is quite interesting. I think, um, the film that reminded me most of it, because of that was Velvet Underground, the Todd Haynes. Uh, yeah, from that's another that documentary film. I loved. Yeah. Um, so if you're a fan of that, I mean, this is probably of Laura Poitras's films, the first one I've seen that didn't wind up on my list because I love Citizen Four. And I actually think Risk, the Julian Assange film, is kind of underrated. I thought that was pretty compelling, too. Oh, right. Um, but this is really good. I mean, I, I think... I want to see it again to see if how she marries the social activist stuff and mm-hmm. the um, the art world context, like how those fit together. I they felt like two interesting parallel movies to me on first watch. And I can I, see I, that. I, yeah. I think I think I mean it's never it's never not engaging. Like it's still right. it's still quite good as as the thing that it um, that I saw on the first viewing as far as yeah. But I, I, I want to understand how those pieces interconnect a little better. And I think a second viewing would do that. But um, it was a you know, great film. And, and I would say worth seeing on the big screen if it does play near you. I mean, it'll play fine on HBO Max, but it isn't just a Talking Heads uh, documentary. Like it is it is cinematic. If you live in Chicago, the Chicago area, it's still at the Siskel Center for about another week after the new year. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't have a lot to say about about my number uh, eight, but um, it is one I wanted to put on people's radar because uh, it has kind of an anonymous American title because um, it's it came out as Girls, Girls, Girls Overseas, but it's uh, Girl Picture here. It's Ali Hapasalo, and it's this very strong Finnish coming-of-age story about three teenage girls, um, two girls at work as kind of soda shop employees, and... Uh, an aspiring figure skater and like how their, um, you know, just their, their friendships and romances. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's teen sex comedy meets teen coming of age kind of material. Like it's not reinventing any wheels. I don't really need to tell you too much about the narrative, but if you like those kinds of stories, I'm kind of a sucker for them. And there was a lot this year that I could recommend. Stop Zemlia from Ukraine is also really good. And I mentioned teenage emotions, even a, um, a pretty solid little kind of post Wes Anderson kind of American indie called Worm 
uh, W uh, I uh, W Y R M uh, odd spelling of it. But there's there was a lot of of those kind of films this year. Maybe not all as accomplished as Girl Picture or the Linklater film we were talking about. But uh, I just thought this one just kind of really I felt like um, strong performances, like great look to it, and. Uh, I, I don't think either of you have seen it, so I don't expect us to have a dialogue about it. But it's one that uh, that I would say people should check out. It's something you can rent on Amazon and other places. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's my number eight. I know Mariah Gates was a huge fan of this one. Yeah, Katie so, Rife uh, was also. There's a few people I, 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 I know that were fans of it. Violet Luca wrote about it in Sight and Sound for the Godard issue. Um, so it's, I think, and she's the one who told me about it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'd say that this one has kind of a, a, a generic title and maybe even looks like generic filmmaking if you just like describe the plot, but it stuck with me. So uh, I'd say that's good. And even though it's not on my list, Stop Zemlia, which I think Vinegar Syndrome or one of their sub-labels, maybe Altered Innocence, distributes that. But that's also a really great little sleeper teen, teen film that uh, if you like those films, um, there's some, some strong ones out there that are just flying under the radar. Wonderful. Gosh, Bill, you do your homework and then some. <laughs> you see, you see it all. Well, God, I, think, so I think you technically saw more new films than me this year, uh, but I, I did try. <laughs> I have not seen it all, but I have seen Park Chan Wook's Decision to Leave. Mm, interesting. Which um, I liked quite a bit, mostly because it was so good at misdirecting. I like movies that start out as one thing and end up as another and like, you know, a from dusk till dawn situation. But in this case, we have kind of a, a South Korean seeming neo-noir that we're starting out with. It's a, uh, a murder mystery following a police officer whose uh, suspect is the lovely widow of the victim. And if we've seen a lot of movies, we start thinking about things like body heat mm -hmm. and wondering if, well, hey, maybe she likes him because he's not that bright and she likes that in the guy. But the movie's kind of twist, and now it's a little spoiler warning there, is it's not so much body heat, it's more vertigo because it turns out she really does love him and he's in love with her, even though there comes a point in which he knows that she's the killer. And so it stops becoming about the mystery of the, what ends up being two murders and more about why are these two people still interested in each other? Why is this love story still continuing to grow even as they get to know so much about each other that they really should run. And when the movie switches locales and they still intertwine in each other's lives, then it becomes this story of obsession. And so all this makes it sound like it's kind of a, a tense thriller but the movie is playing out a lot more subtle than that. It's, it's a lot more even keeled. So all these revelations are, uh, are, are, are coming out as more drama than straight thriller. And then it becomes very strong, especially as we reach the conclusion, with this absolutely breathtaking scene 
at a beach in which uh, both characters really kind of confront themselves and what the events of the movie has meant. And the, uh, as I mentioned, the cinematography award, the visuals of the film just uh, reach new heights. Yeah, I'm not sure why... Mm. I didn't feel as strongly about this one because I am a fan of the director and he's definitely doing kind of another sort of Hitchcock approach or homage, you know, a little, a little touch of vertigo and in the same way that he was almost downright remaking uh, shadow of a doubt with Stoker. I, I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's part whodunit. It's part like, I mean, you know, police falling in love with a potential murder suspect film, almost like something you, you might have seen <laughs> as a thriller in the 90s or whatever, uh, but done so stylistically assured. You know, I think, again, like he he really knows how to do these operatic melodramas, but never overplay the emotions at times. And I think going all the way back to me being taken with his vengeance trilogy and what trilogy and what he's trying to say, uh, and yeah, the the final moments of this movie are really strong and powerful. I just I don't know. I was a little I was a little restless, and I, I can't even say why. Maybe it needed to be a little shorter. I don't know. Uh, well, I, I do think he's a, he's a cold director. That too. And when when it's revealed that this is a love story, it doesn't really help. Because even though the characters are in love, the strategy of the film is to keep us at a distance mm -hmm, mm -hmm. from that love because that's that's one of the things we're not really supposed to understand until the movie proceeds. So I think, and I think this is a, true of his earlier films too, it's a, a maybe a little more calculating, a little bit more you appreciate it as a... Uh, as a stylistic exercise than something you're really emotionally involved. Okay. Well, the, yeah. And if that's the intent, then it's, it's certainly a success and there are things about it that I, I really responded to. So, it, you know, I, I definitely think it's a very good movie and that people should see. I, I, I was just kind of a little, I was a little surprised by the reaction. I think, uh, I think I'm, I really liked his other films more, but I can see myself watching this again and going, Oh I, yeah, this is, something special as well because he doesn't make bad movies <laughs> really ever. Yeah. I, I, I would just, just as an aside, I would say, Brad, you described this perfectly. Like I thought yeah. this was really good analysis oh, of that film. Um, I, I, I want to see it again. Like I saw it again, like not to the same extent as women talking, but it's another film where I saw it and people were telling me, Oh, it's one of the best films of the year. You're going to be blown away by it. So like it, it, I was already kind of primed for a different type of, experience than the the subtlety uh and trick trickery of this film mm -hmm. i i i think that uh it's one that i want to see again without the surprise element because i was tricked by it i did yeah. i did think that it was doing a body heat thing and then it was doing something completely different and you're right that the 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 strategy stylistically is still kind of at that same chilly remove um like it's as cold as a de palma film but it's telling this kind of heated story um, so I'm, I, it's one I wanted to give a second watch to, and I just ran out of time because I feel like I, I had measured enthusiasm, but I also knew that I was 
I saw it late at night, like a nine o'clock screening. Like I'm not a night person at this point in my life. So it was kind of a long film. I was kind of like fighting to stay totally physically engaged while watching it. So it's one that I know that I will be able to appreciate for, for, at least be able to fully connect with it. What, you know, for good or ill on a rewatch, but, uh, it is one I thought was interesting, and I agree that it's a gorgeously uh, shot film. There's a lot of, um, let's say, a lot, compared to earlier Park Chan Wook films, it's not quite as pyrotechnic in terms of style, but there are moments where you can you can feel the old master of you know in terms of like you know technical virtuosity kind of being kind of casually thrown in there just to keep you uh, engaged just as a uh, as a viewer. But yeah, no, it's. It's a challenging one to talk about for me because I, 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 like I said, I was kind of a little bit run down by the time I finally caught it, and I, I want to see it again. But it's, it, it struck me as an interesting film. Uh, yeah. What might be the most, what might be the most surprising thing uh, about it is that it's so subdued, especially if you consider a movie like Old Boy. Yeah. Well, I, I had a friend that was watching it in uh, in England, and she wrote me, like after I don't know how long she'd been watching it, but just I think she was turning it off. Um, but she was like commenting on like film noir tropes and I'm like, I don't want to spoil anything, but you don't even know <laughs> what's going to, like, it's, it's not doing what you think it's doing. But yeah, I, didn't yeah. wanna, I didn't want to ruin it for her. So I'm like, okay, well I respect your choice, but, uh, oh, it's definitely surprising. Yeah. No, I just, it's yeah. It, it, that, but that like cold remove, maybe that's just something sometimes doesn't vibe with me initially i i really want to go back and watch his miniseries because i mean having florence Pugh and uh michael shannon in the uh little drummer girl is that the that's the he did this miniseries um with both of them i don't think it got like amazing reviews or something but i'm just curious to see what he does with like a spy story from a different time and that cast uh but i, I i've heard that too that there's like a a coldness to his to that series that you sort of have to um, appreciate and, and, and adjust yourself to. So uh, a, a film that I think is accessible for just about anybody is my favorite documentary of the year. It's called bad acts. And I know listener and, and film enthusiast trip Burton had this at the top of his list. And I can see why. Uh, and, and as a side note, it was great to meet him at the petite maman screening. I hosted earlier. Uh, he's a really nice guy, and I uh, really appreciate his support. But this is um, Bad Axe is a documentary that, when I read the synopsis, I'm like, oh, this will probably be good. I don't know if I'll, you know, be totally enraptured by it. And I, I kind of was just because I felt it was possibly the best pandemic movie I've seen <laughs> that sort of captures the feeling and the fears. Uh, of what we're going through. I mean, maybe someone like Spike Lee will will come out and do that in the future in the same way he did for 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 nine eleven. Uh, but I, I don't know. Like just this straightforward approach to telling a story of a family in this small conservative town uh, called Bad Axe, and this this very devoted Asian American family is trying their absolute hardest to not only reconcile their relationships together, but um, keep their business open, keep their restaurant open at a time when people aren't going out. And this was more or less filmed during lockdown. 
the director is the son in the film. He basically just like decided to document their day-to-day lives as they sort of weather the uh, pandemic and again, try to keep their business thriving. But also there's, uh, you know, issues of uh, pressure and, and trauma and also just the, the sad, sad reality that this is a pretty racist town. There's no way to sugarcoat that. This, a lot of people here are horribly close-minded and anti-vax and pro-Trump and refusing to wear their mask when they come to just simply pick something up at the restaurant and their rules simply state that you have to enter their restaurant wearing a mask and people confront them about that. And I feel like that's even somewhat still going on, maybe not to that extreme, but still people are unsure of how to like even, you know, uh, d- deal with what's going on still to this day with the pandemic. Some people wear masks, some people don't, some people are, you know, getting their booster shots and some people are fed up with all of this stuff. So I don't know, it still felt very timely, even though this was made, you know, a couple of years ago. And also it's interesting because you know, the director doesn't completely demonize the, the the town as a whole because there are things to appreciate and certainly not everybody is a racist, you know, obviously. So he ends up making a love letter too to, to his family and to the town while acknowledging the horrors of reality going on around. And it's, it, it, it's almost like a nonfiction approach to everything everywhere all at once, because it, it does carry that theme of resilience and a family and an Asian family struggling to stay together. But yeah, like I said, they, they have to deal with uh, uh, obscene phone calls and hate letters and, you know, right wingers who are just being completely awful. So it's hard not to feel empathy throughout this entire film. And it also made me very angry at how there's just this lack of compassion in some people. Um, and they make that well known you know, like, what is the point of that kind of anger? I simply don't get that. And this film really just captures that in a fly-on-the-wall manner that is never manipulative. And it just comes from a very sincere place. It's a very sincere story. You know, I don't know if it's going to be a, this big emotional wallop, you know. But for me, it was. I, I've, I don't know. There's just something about stories of families trying to get through something uh, even if, you know, something like shoplifters. But I I just really found myself involved with this family, and they're all very different, and they all have imperfections and flaws, and they don't always say the right thing. It's just, it was really striking. Each Everybody in this movie made an impression. It could almost be like kind of a modern updating of what we saw in the Middletown series, which I know you're familiar with, Bill. Cause yeah, 17. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, you know, just that... On a true, I mean, I know that the director does put himself in front of the camera at times, but um, there's even that story in the Middletown series about the family who owns the Shakey's Pizza and how they're trying to make it and try to make ends meet and and stuff like that. So this is like that only during the you know COVID nineteen lockdown situation that we all went through. So I don't know. This to me really really worked, and I'm surprised it's not getting as much love in, in, you know, I think I'm certainly love all the other documentaries people have been putting on their list, like, like fire of love, but this one just worked for me even more. So it's my favorite documentary of the year. Bad acts. Mm, 
I, mm. I I wish I had seen it. You know, I, it was on my list, and I, I I think I would have pushed it to the top had I known that you felt so strongly. It was it was in. I still had like thirty films to to catch at least that like, <laughs> I just ran out of time, and yeah, this was one of I them. Know. It happens. I, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I can talk to you about Small Axe if you want to talk about. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Steve yeah, McQueen. Good, good. Yeah, very good. Very good. I like that. That's a good joke. Thank you. Yes. Um, but definitely see Bad Axe, really. It's, again, it, it will make you angry, but I, you know, that's just because people are assholes sometimes. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. Brad, have you seen this one? Unfortunately not. I, I think it's available seen. all, yeah. I think it's available on all the streaming services now. It is. I, hope. I know it's at least on Amazon. It might be out of the way. Places good. Too. Yeah, yeah, and, and my my uh, my number seven is also documentary, um, thick, sticky liquid um, distilled uh, from wood, coal, and peat. Uh, it's called tar. I'm kidding. It's do we want to talk about this one now? Uh, I'm sure it'll be on all of your lists somewhere. Oh, but, really? Uh, well, there's a surprise for oh, you. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. But um, no, I thought. I thought. I mean, tar is probably one of the more talked about films that. Uh, has come along this year, even though it's apparently like this huge bomb commercially. But uh, I think that, um, you know, I, it's one of the more, uh, maybe the most assured uh, storytelling of an American film this year. I think it's, you know, uh, obviously the most compelling central performance, you know, with Kate Blanchett doing work that stands up to all of her amazing previous <laughs> uh, performances. I think... Um, I mean, I don't know if we, it's necessary to give a synopsis as far as like, it's about this uh, this kind of uh, legendary uh, conductor, plate, uh, Lydia Tarr, and uh, just kind of her downfall um, through her abuse of power. Um, and it's provocative in that it's it's it gives her this charismatic character. Um, you know, some provocative opinions. I mean, I think uh, Amy Taubin called the film racist, which I still, I haven't read the piece to know what she means hmm. by that. Hmm. Um, I, I know that people don't really feel like there should be an art artist divide. And this film seems to be advocating that we do make that distinction. Um, you know, what does this character deserve to be canceled? I mean, and is it, irresponsible to have uh, a queer woman as this person versus the the kind of toxic men we associate with this kind of villainy. I don't know. I, I like that it was like willing to provoke debate and provoke um, being interpreted as a, as a troubling work. But I, I, I thought it was just so arresting and tense and i haven't had a chance to rewatch it i just got the blu-ray of it um oh, but it is suspenseful in the way the thriller would be suspenseful but it's not really and it has it has scary type scenes but it's really kind of more of a you know heavy character study film i get why it would be a little bit alienating to a mainstream audience but i, I it's it's very depressing side of the times that this is not really uh, so far reaching outside the cinephile bubble it feels like but it, it i i think that it's it's a fun film to hash out i i know that has i i know uh 
I know at least one friend of mine thinks it's a deeply silly film. <laughs> so I, I know that it's not, you know, universally acclaimed, but I think that it's one of the best. I think Todd Field is that rare director where I liked the first film in the bedroom. I thought he took a giant leap forward with little children. And this feels like a giant leap forward to that. So it's like, I don't know if he's going to be like a Malick kind of figure that only makes films every so often, but each one is kind of scrutinized by this same loyal cadre of <laughs> cinephiles and he can get casts that want to be in great movies, even if they're not big movies. Um, maybe, I don't know if the Oscars that it will inevitably be nominated for will raise its profile, but just as a, a sign of the times kind of film. Cause I mean, the whole me too thing, I mean, shows up in a few films we've been talking about everything from barbarian to, I think men will probably be coming up and women talking. Um, you know, I, I think these are all interesting things to wrestle with. She said, you know, is also one that is grappling with that even more like literally, but I think that it's, um, I don't know. I, I think that it's, it's an unusual film to engage with its times but it's, it still feels like it could be timeless and um, the chilliness of it. I mean, I, I think because Todd Field is someone I first associate with Nick, was it, is it Nick Nightingale? What is his name in the, Oh yeah, that's it. You got it. You got it. Um, I think I associate him with a Kubrickian chilliness as a default, just because I associate him with a chilly Kubrick movie. (laughs) But, um, but I do think that, in a year where a lot of things I like are kind of punk rock and DIY and slapdash in terms of their technical uh, qualities. And I still love them to death. It's also nice to see something that's made with like old school assurance and classical mastery and, you know, perfect shots, perfect control of tone, perfect mise-en-scene, you know, perfectly designed. Um, Like I would compare to something like the master, but less obscure or or hmm. or um obscure in a in a in a way that seems less overtly a- a- ambiguous because the master is definitely content to have you asking questions i don't know if people walk out of tar thinking that it's not doing that um like it's it's in, it's i don't know i mean jim is this not on your list i mean what do you think of tar hmm well <laughs> well I'm just looking at my my uh, official 2022 ranking letterbox list, and I just noticed that, and this wasn't intentional, but number 31 on my list is RRR, and number 32 on my list is TAR. <laughs> so, um, it's weird. Like, I I'll, I've been asking two questions this year because both of the filmmakers have put out films. Um, why don't I like the way Alex Garland ends his films is something I've been trying to figure out. <laughs> like I just, even something like he made sunshine. I didn't like how that ended. The only like consistently good script that he's done in my mind is, uh, for never let me go. And then the other question I, I still had, because I was even thinking going back to, you know, I think this was even before I had a podcast and my response to little children was a little more, subdued and in, in the middle and in the bedroom I did like for the acting but again I I don't know why I'm not as over the moon about tar when it, it seems like it has everything that I should love including an incredible Kate Blanchett performance and uh, a love and appreciation for classical music 
and just yeah some audacious choices and uh, of like long takes and kubrickian feeling throughout and i at the same time i i guess i wasn't 100 percent sure what the film is ultimately trying to say and that left me at a distance for fully embracing it and then again i can't help but think there are so many movies not just from this year but in general where i watch it a second time and it all comes together and i kind of go oh okay well now i get it or i now completely understand what the film is ultimately trying to say about whether it be cancel culture or you know just is is this a basic like because right now in my mind i i it might be reductive to just call this a gender reversal of whiplash but <laughs> i that's kind of what i felt even though there are things i mean ex- there are extraordinary things in throughout the movie but when it was over i don't know if i felt the way most people have when when it ended i kind of went hmm as opposed to oh ooh okay i was more like hmm and again a hmm <laughs> it's not a bad thing to leave a movie with to where again i could go back much like crimes of the future and have more of an understanding of it uh and yet i don't know is it is do you feel that what the film is trying to say is kind of simple or you walked out going i get what the movie is saying and maybe i was just not engaged with it enough to get it it's possible <laughs> i cuz that's I, I mean I get the impression this could come up on Brad's list also, but I I I, I think I think it was one where I, when I when it was over I'm, and it's a long film. I mean I you know it was an overwhelming thing to see at the festival, and so and I had to run. <laughs> I I couldn't stay for the post Q and A. I had to run to another film because <laughs> it tar so long. But I, as it as it was wrapping up, I'm like okay yeah I I know that this is going to play differently in a second time because this is not doing i i had no way to i knew nothing about it other than the title you know going into it, i didn't know anything about the premise or what it was going to be dealing with i i think i just knew it was todd field and kate blanchett and then sign me up because i like his other films and she's great and um so yeah i i, I think it is kind of challenging because i i think that i mean the centerpiece scene of it is is a confrontation between Lydia Tarr and a student who dismisses, you know, problematic old white composers and wants to uh, play kind of an atonal piece by, I forget if it's like a female composer, but like, but like somebody that was like willing to toss aside dusty old white guys and embrace something kind of uh, outside that traditional canon. And she kind of belittles him like an intellectual jerk. And it's ambiguous whether or not the film is on her side or the film is setting her up for a fall because we see that moment. And this is not too much of a spoiler, but recontextualize, we see that, recontextualize or... and cut unfavorably yeah. to, to demonize her in a way that we know is unfair. Um, so that means that what she's saying on its own, which is already making us kind of tense up in the theater is not enough to cancel her. It needs to be manipulated to make her look even worse. So does that mean that the film is on her side when she's saying this? And and, and this is a very contentious point of view to put in a film. 
So yeah. I get why the people that hate it uh, might hate it because they think that this is a film with ideas they disagree with and therefore the entire thing is harmful. Um, I, I don't know if that's what it's doing. I like that it makes me wonder, but it's not a film that I've really had a chance to fully deconstruct. I've only seen it the one time at a festival and I started watching it again last night, but uh, you know, it was late and it was new year's and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I, I wasn't going to do it justice. So I'm going to save that second viewing, but I know that, um, you know, I listened to the Brett Easton Ellis podcast and he had an episode where he trashed it. And then a follow-up huh. episode where he calls it the best film of the year because he watched oh, that's it a second confusing. time. <laughs> well, he watched it a second time and it completely transformed his opinion of it. Oh, um, wow. So I know okay. that that can I know that that can happen. Um, yeah. It's kind of film that opens with its end credits <laughs> somberly playing out before the film even gets really going, which is a real fuck you to audience kind of engagement. Um, you know, so it's I get why it's not going to be for all tastes. I I get why people could wrestle with its ideas. I know there's at least one piece that's passed around, which I haven't read yet, that like argues that it's like a ghost movie or something. I'm not sure. Um, oh, I don't I know if you've seen that, that too. But but so it's definitely a film that inspires passionate debate, like The Master, which is a film that I admired technically more than I really responded to, but it's probably my favorite of the the post punch drunk love serious PTA movies, but it's not a film that I immediately like warmly embraced. And I think that tar is a little more accessible than that, but it's, it's equally spiky. I mean, that's a tough character. However, brilliantly charismatically played. It's a tough character to be in the shoes of. It's a tough movie. I don't know. I'm, and and that's a good thing too. So it's not like I'm, I, I'm saying it could just be me right now in this moment. Maybe I'll have a Brett Easton Ellis yeah. kind of like transformation with it. You know, or, I mean, and again, maybe, I really liked it. It's just, yeah. I didn't, I wasn't over the moon the way a lot of people are. And maybe the flaws will jump out at me more in a second viewing after we've talked about it so much. And I've heard so much chatter about it. And maybe I'll agree with people like, uh, you know, that, that, that think it's, yeah, that think it's either dumb or problematic. I don't know, but uh, I should yeah, have I, like a De Palma approach bonus episode. <laughs> Where we get somebody who loves it and somebody who hates it. That might be I, fun. I know I know people on both sides of that divide. <laughs> yeah, but that might um, be yeah. fun. Well, there, there's going to be a little more chatter about it because I'm going to be talking about this one a little bit later. I have uh, opinions on everything that's just been said, but I, I'll hold my fire. Okay. Except to just quickly mention that The Master is my favorite PTA movie. Mm. Yeah, it's a good one. What's your number six? Oh, hey, yeah, that's me. Uh, number six is uh, previously mentioned Hit the Road from uh, Panap Pahani. I'm sorry, uh, Panahi, who, um, as mentioned before, and this is this is important, is the son of the director Jafar Pahani, who has a long history of trouble with the Iranian authorities. The last decade or so of his filmmaking has been done under house arrest. And in fact, uh, I think, Bill, you said you got to see, I've been searching for it, but have not been able to find his film, No Bears, but I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it's- This one is kind of done in the shadow of his father's uh, arrest and... Um, even though it's not directly about it, but uh, Iranian films are fascinating. I actually 
love Iranian films as a national cinema. One reason is because kind of like the golden age of Hollywood, there's so much they can't talk about. There's so much you can't say or else you'll be arrested or your film never will come out. So they find very clever and creative ways of getting around this and delivering the message without overtly delivering the message. And so here we have some really important messages, but they're couched in a road trip movie. They're couched in a family dynamic movie. And as in a lot of Iranian films, um, children become a main focus because a lot of things that you can't have discussed or done between adults can be put in the mouths of children. Now, this is a bit of a double-edged sword, a double-edged sword here for some folks, I imagine, because uh, the child uh, in this case is a five-year-old absolute terror who uh, is spending m much of the movie screaming and hollering and squirming and and just being as big as possible except for the few points we find out he's very religious and he just stops to pray, which the rest of his family is, is a little uh, surprised by. But, um, but that also fits into the theme. It's about a family who is uh, apparently going to see uh, their older son get married. He's driving the car and mostly being quiet about it. And as the movie continues on, we question whether... It actually is about getting married or about uh, another purpose altogether. But the important thing is the little moments, which, which this movie is so great at showing. And in, in a little bit of a heightened way, I, I just love the first shot of the movie, which is uh, the, the father, he's got a cast on, and there's a drawing of a piano on the cast. And so the kid is playing oh. with the piano on the cast, but we hear the music which is a Schubert piece that he's, you know, supposedly playing. And it just kind of brings us right into this world of naturalism, of family dynamic, and of comedy. This is an incredibly funny film. There's an entire bit that involves a uh, group of uh, uh, bicycle racers that are passing them by. And, and the payoff to that bit is absolutely hysterical. And again, it kind of keeps going on on this uh, naturalist way, and we're getting to know these people, and we're getting to know their dynamic. And then when we find out the reason for the road trip, everything has a much more serious and thought-provoking aura of what, what's come before. Yeah, no, take a it, breath. It's it's a uh, <laughs> it's 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 a definitely interesting film because yeah, it, it like I, I, we already talked about this one a little bit. Yeah, it just totally threw me like where I thought it was going and where it ends up. I I, I need to see it again because it, it really kind of tricked me. Even uh, hearing you talk about it, I'm like, yeah, no, that that is a really really strong film. I mean, I liked it, but I think it I could be underrating it. I sure liked it. I sure like road trips and you know, families getting together and trying to get, you know, through something difficult. And I can see how this is, uh, yeah, it is a little bit of a personal story. And certainly that, um, 
like I mentioned earlier, the father-son bonding moment is pretty special. And oh, that, that's mm-hmm. yeah, that's like transcendent. What happens there, and it's so out of it, it, it's so different yeah. from the naturalism of the rest of the film that it just grabs you, and it's like, wow, this this is taking it to another level. This really does have things to say about fathers and sons and families. Oh, for sure. And, uh, you know, not to, not to, not to spoil what happens at the very end, but of course, you know, if you love animals, it'll get to you. (laughs) And yet it's contrasted a little bit with that, with the, with the boy singing that amazing song. Oh, I like, I like audacious choices. I like things that you just, Let's just throw this against the wall and hope that it sticks kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And speaking of like that... The, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Like the scene where the, the boy is uh, sticking his head out the top of the car and just absolutely screaming as the camera <laughs> swoops among, uh, along the landscape. is just something that you're not prepared for uh, from what the film has been doing so far. And also just... You know, makes it clear that the the extremeness of the child actor and how they're depicting the five year old, you know, has its own purpose. So my number six is a fucking mess, um, but it's my kind of mess. <laughs> oh, <laughs> when no. it when it was over, I was just like, "What did I just watch? Why why do I love it so much? And I don't care. I don't think it's made any other list that I've seen." And it's now available on Netflix. I am talking about Noah Baumbach's White Noise. <laughs> Which again, like I, you know, I'm I know I've mentioned this already with the whale. I'm not gonna necessarily defend this movie actively as a, like a great work of art that I I I would say that you absolutely have to see and understand and connect with. Cause it just may not happen. And I know it hasn't happened for a lot of people. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's fair to like put this under the category of something like Southland tales, but every now and then just the, the whole, let's throw this against the wall and see if it sticks approach will work for me. And this is an adaptation of Don DeLillo's white noise, a novel I I've read and I've liked in the past, didn't totally love it. And yet somehow I feel like Baumbach managed to capture his voice even more than Mr. Cronenberg did with Cosmopolis. And again, it's kind of funny that this follows my number seven choice with bad acts, because this also at certain points, especially uh, the middle section or the second chapter is the uh, pandemic anxiety that ensues once this airborne toxic event takes place and hovers ominously throughout in the form of a black cloud over this, you know, family and everybody in that town. But it's just that I was not expecting to see what I see in a Noah Baumbach movie in this movie with special effects and, the the uh, like a car c- turning over and crashing and chase sequences and just a, a, you know crowd control just a lot of things going on uh, to where it does feel a little bit you know manic or screwbally at times you know people are talking very fast in certain instances it really helped to have the subtitles on because there's a lot to catch it's again almost similar to everything everywhere all at once kind of dense but here it like covers the macro response and the micro level response of something unexplainable 
uh, with this toxic event that's taking place. And that's certainly the strongest section of the film, and I think most people would agree with that. But I found the majority of it to be really funny, eerie, didactic, strange, and I don't know if I understood every choice or every twist and turn. There's a whole other um, subplot involving Greta Gerwig's character, the wife, taking an experimental drug that feels like something out of Scanner Darkly. I think I even told... Um, Sharon, when we were watching this, I said, this is kind of like a weird marriage between Philip K. Dick and Kurt Vonnegut. And to me, like, that's just exactly my thing. (laughs) And I guess Don DeLillo could be described that way too. So it's, but it's, there's just some weird things that I don't like. There's breaks in reality. There's things that I don't understand entirely. Uh, There's an obsession with, um, Elvis and Hitler, <laughs> a back-to-back sort of monologue between Don Cheadle and Adam Driver that I'm just like, all right, this is kind of weird and out of left field, but I think it's also trying to say, you know, things about routine suburban life and Americana, and it's it's a mess. I, I, I can't deny the fact that it's not a perfect movie and that it's kind of all over the map, but it it almost feels like by the end... Um, a, a weird meditation on the death drive or this tendency to just, we, tr- we really want to push away the inevitable and we try to find all these things to distract ourselves from it. But in the end, maybe death isn't so bad. It can be this transcendent act. It can be this thing that we don't have to fear. So that sentiment alone really got to me. And And the way this movie ends, I mean, come on. I just, that's, because I wasn't expecting that. And it made me so happy to have a crazy, almost like Talking Heads True Stories musical number (laughs) in a supermarket to end this movie that I was just over the moon. I felt joy. I felt like, I don't know if this is a successful movie, but I don't care. I love it. That's really all that there is to it. So if other people feel very differently, I don't blame (laughs) them at all. Brad, have you seen this one? Unfortunately, no, but uh, I have Netflix, so uh, I'll do that soon. <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I don't know if this will be a situation like you were with Inherent Vice on first viewing uh, before you... <laughs> I can but, see that. Uh, but um, so I don't I don't want to say anything too mean about it. I mean, No Baumbach is one of my favorite directors. I've liked every film of his from Kicking and Screaming Up Through Marriage Story. I think when we spoke on um, the top... 50 favorites episode of director's club we did a while back. And I mentioned to you in that conversation that I wasn't sure if no Bambach would ever make something as extreme as departure as something like Zelig comparing him to someone like Woody Allen. Um, you know, as far as like, he seemed to just be comfortable in a certain kind of milieu, a certain kind of lane. And this is really, you know, this is a big swing. This is a different kind of film that still see i i approach it not as a delillo person but as a baumbach person so it's a little i'm i'm trying to make sense of it through an a tourist lens even though it's clearly someone that's trying to marry his own concerns to delillo kind of the same way cronenberg is trying to find his voice within cosmopolis and um and cosmopolis was one i wrestled with a little bit too i i, I liked it more on a rewatch at first i thought it was a little bit like 
crash with more humor. Um, and this, I, I wanted to watch it again, uh, but I lost my internet. And I will be watching it soon with friends of mine that are excited to see it. But I, I do think it's his worst film by a, a wide margin on first viewing. I think it's interesting. I mean, I was never bored, but I just thought so much of it didn't work for me. And um, even the ending, I didn't like. Um, so it's, but I don't know, maybe it'll, maybe it'll grow on me. I mean, I, I, I think, I think um, it was interesting seeing him do jump scares and car chases and, you know, spend $80 million, if not more, uh, making something. <laughs> uh, and I like all those actors and, um, you know, I, I, I want to have a change of heart on it, but my initial viewing was uh, a noble failure. Like it's, yeah. yeah. Like it's, uh, it's a fiasco. Um, but, but sometimes fiascos are just fucking weird and interesting that they, that they're out there again. That's kind of, Oh Yeah. Sometimes like that's kind of why like even when I saw first saw Southland Tales I had that reaction where it was like oh that was horrible that was not nothing connected with me for that and oh, it was yeah, a, yeah. a mess but then I saw it a second time like oh wait a minute <laughs> oh I'm excited to see it again and I will probably see it multiple times in my life like I might grow to really like it I just think on first viewing if you are listening along uh, and haven't seen White Noise you might have Jim's reaction you might have my reaction <laughs> oh know? yeah I, I think it's desi- yeah. by design practically to have yeah. that response really it's yeah uh, it's uh, yeah and maybe I'll watch it again and be like oh no this isn't as good and I was just kind of high or something <laughs> Well, I also, I saw it in the theater, so the dialogue was flying kind of fast to, to watch without subtitles, so yeah. maybe there's new, I mean, it's not a film where I've even wrestled with its ideas, I just wrestled with it in terms of form, and sure. I thought it was interesting to see him, after making the De Palma film, try out some De Palma techniques, like they have no real use in a Meyerowitz stories kind of scenario, but he can do that here, and so it's fun to watch him be like a, 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 a not a journeyman because i think that he is dealing with new york families and themes that do resonate with other works that he's done i mean you mm-hmm, can put this mm-hmm. alongside squid in the whale and Meyerwitz stories and other films uh, that come from his voice i think i just i don't know i mean like i said i i i want to see it again and and, and see how it plays without the element of surprise but uh, it's the first time he's made a film that I really thought didn't ultimately work for me. Um, so yeah, I, it's interesting that I mentioned earlier, like, I don't know if Darren Aronofsky was the right person to adapt the whale. And when I first heard this announced, like, I don't, th- I was like, Noah Baumbach <laughs> adapting Don DeLillo. What the hell? And yet somehow I think he pulled it off. Yeah. And, 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 I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully I agree with you when I rewatch it soon. I'm excited to see it again. I mean, I was definitely not unengaged, but I, again, I was, I was viewing it entirely through the O'Tourist kind of lens versus the DeLillo lens. And so it was all kind of new, new information for me. And I'm just like, okay, well, how does this, is, is this fuse of DeLillo and Baumbach working for me? It just feels like it's a little too mad, a little bit too hectic, a little bit too busy, a little bit too like, out of control in terms of its scale, but um, not uninteresting. But I mean, you know, it's 
it's probably closer to Babylon blonde Elvis territory <laughs> compared to the uh, other Gumbach <laughs> films as far as like interesting mess. But interesting <laughs> is still like not a, a, a criticism. I mean, I, I, I definitely wrestled with it when I saw it. And uh, so I'm excited to see it again. I don't. But yeah, to, to give an honest opinion of it, I, I definitely thought it was yeah his worst movie. <laughs> well, that's um, okay. Yeah. Uh, so my number six is a much more modest venture. So it's, it's a pretty solid little crime drama. Um, Emily the Criminal, directed by John Patton Ford, starring Aubrey Plaza. Oh, that was good. Um, yeah. Yeah. And this is a... Um, it's a film that deals with like... Uh, just someone kind of driven to uh, compromise themselves ethically getting involved in this kind of credit card related fraud where like they use credit card information to buy and sell goods, stolen credit card information. And it just shows her kind of escalating as she becomes more involved in this criminal world, uh, both romantically with the person that kind of teaches her and just, uh, just any, any moral objection she has to it kind of falling away. And it's just, it's, it's a, it, it has things to say about the economic unfairness of someone in her position and how just culturally she's being kind of pushed in this situation. It's not quite as um, didactic as maybe is that making it sound like it's on the verge of commenting on that, but it's a film like Wanda that is like, um, it's, it's putting you in that economic situation, but then it's ultimately a, a character thriller kind of story. Um, and it was just a nice surprise to me. I mean, it's, I, I, I was just kind of, I'm not like, I like Aubrey Plaza. I don't, she's not someone that I seek out her work. Like I just occasionally come in contact with films that she's the lead in. Um, I think this is probably my favorite thing she's done and, um, just a nice little, uh, unassuming sleeper i think it's on netflix now um so i i don't know i, I it was one i went into I, I knew the title was kind of floating around but i didn't know any like hardcore fans of it i wasn't seeing it on a lot of lists but um i think that this is the kind of sleeper that i hope to find when i go through all these uh 2022 films like finding something that is just you know entertaining and a little bit spiky but but uh unpretentious uh and yeah i don't know that's i don't know have either of you you said it's just okay brad have you seen this one no but again it's it's netflix so it'll be coming soon okay and jim you think this one is just average yeah i mean i saw it in the midst of the uh chicago critics film festival and uh i i guess i felt like it 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 sort of veered into almost like a breaking bad territory with get, you know, certainly just people like her involvement with the bad people, <laughs> I guess that's it's a silly way to put it, but just, um, I, I guess the way it sort of ultimately played out was very predictable. Um, and that doesn't make it bad. It just, I guess it, for me, the way things wrapped up didn't necessarily like stand out. In the, in the in the way that most of the rest of it actually did, and her performance is excellent, and it's definitely the best thing she's done. And I certainly like, you know, just the ultimate setup of her 
basically trying to get out of student debt and doing whatever she can. And this, you know, credit card scam seems like a, <laughs> like a way to do it. And, you know, obviously it's illegal, but she's pulling it off and watching all of those um, transactions. And that, that certainly gets you on the edge of your seat. Like watching her try to pull all these things off is the, one of the reasons to see it. I think it's just, again, getting involved with, so like mafia type guys or something late, like, you know, the, the criminal underworld or something, uh, in, in, in a way that like, I guess just didn't necessarily feel as organic or interesting as everything well, you know, else. The, the film that I thought of the most is house of games. And, oh yeah. Um, yeah. I can see that a little uncut but, gems, a little house of games. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, but not her, her energy is quirky for mm-hmm. a genre film mm-hmm. and that but it's not mannered and stylized in the way that a mammoth film would be um like it, it is a little bit more traditional that way more of a genre film but her low level quirkiness i mean i don't think she's quite as extreme as as other things i've seen her do but um i think that that kind of gives it an interest and i think that there's thriller set pieces to it that are actually quite tense um yeah. when that where i really did not know where it was going um no she pulled and, it off that's for sure i mean when i heard she was cast in a hal hartley movie i thought oh that's perfect yeah oh, like yeah, her yeah. energy I belongs her. i love her in that in that yeah. rifle yeah yeah um it's almost kind of surprising that um th- this does feel more like a, a vehicle for her than than a uh, her, her, I mean, kind of going neck and neck with Hartley for the, you know, who feels like the real voice in <laughs> that film. But um, this one, I think, I think really like showed the degree of power she could have. I mean, as a threatening kind of presence on screen that I wasn't really used to seeing from her. I, I don't know. I think um, it's, it's, it's a modest B picture. Like it's definitely not something I don't want to oversell. Like, you know, I put it over tar on my list. I don't think it's got the same ambitions as something like that. But I think that if, if I had company coming over, I think there are a few films on the list. I'd be more confident would entertain a group of friends. No, that's a good than, point. Than Emily, the criminal. And so there's something to be said for that. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of why I put it on the list. sure have let's do it my, my number five is glass onion a knives out mystery oh really okay and yeah this is a film that seems to have divided some people i i gather there's a lot of uh hate uh online about it but hmm. i adore it maybe for the same reason others hate it uh this is uh ryan johnson's sequel and if you've seen the first one you know it's a whodunit so I'm going to, if not say outright, hint strongly who done it. So there's your spoiler warning. Uh, it, it, instead of the old house of uh, 
you know, rich, uh, old money. Here we have the new money crowd is all uh, suspects and people who have uh, made their fortunes in many questionable ways. Uh, a lot of them, this group uh, that is being, meeting at Edward Norton's uh, Island Resort is uh, all connected in some way. But what I like about the film is not just that it's kind of looking at a different kind of class conflict, but that it's functioning as a mystery while also doing that kind of smuggling thing of making a really key and modern uh, political point. They're, they're taking this oldest of genres and bringing it right up to date in what we're dealing with. Because the major twist is that the perpetrator of the crime is a complete idiot. And I love the idea that Daniel Craig's uh, character cannot quite figure out the crime because he's expecting some level of brilliance. But what he can't understand is how anyone could do a crime so idiotic. And that just is absolutely what we're going through nowadays. I remember a great bit on uh, John Oliver's show where he was referring to all the Trump scandals as stupid Watergate. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I think that that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a, a character who's very much, even though this uh, was filmed prior to uh, the latest updates on this fellow, it seems to be a lot like Elon Musk. And, you know, it takes place during the pandemic and it's, really dealing with a lot of kind of just the kind of shallow and how do I put this uh, sh shallow characters who we're more likely to see in, in the news today than maybe in other eras. And the film has this wonderful fun way of poking at it, of dealing with it. Every, every actor here is just, having fun and playing their role to the hilt. I, I, I love what Ed, Edward Norton was doing and what uh, Catherine Hahn and uh, Kate Hudson, who I hadn't been expecting much from lately, is actually uh, pretty fresh in this and kind of in a little bit of a, uh, of, of a left field way, uh, Janelle Monet is giving a great, two great performances. Mm -hmm. So this is both a lot of fun and if you want to look for it, saying some important things about where we are right now. I can see that. I It's funny because I think I, I tweeted at somebody that I was disappointed that I liked it pretty much on par with the first movie. And that's not a bad thing. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like I I appreciated it. I enjoyed it. I, I think you're right in that it does have some interesting things and timely things to, to say. Uh Ultimately, I guess maybe the mystery in Knives Out, the original, the first one, I uh, got more involved with than I did in this one. And it's, but again, the the ensemble is great, the energy is great. Ryan Johnson just is one of our best writer directors working today, and he knows how to make an entertaining, engaging mystery. Uh, but at the same time, I kind of was hoping for something more 
and yet it, it's not Knives Out 2 either, you know? I So it, it's kind of one of those movies where I'm like, it's very good, and I'd recommend it to just about anybody, but I just w- wish I loved it more than I did. I, I but, but I think you could, most people come in kind of expecting something more similar to the first movie, because the first movie, even though it was a breath of fresh air, is still a very... Uh, stand, it, it, it's it's a very well worn plot. The yeah. uh, murderers in the house. Who's the murderer? It's a family of people who don't trust each other. Everyone's a suspect. I mean, it's done great, but it's been done before. And so this is just twisting it a little more into something that is a little less familiar. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that Edward Norton is dressed like Frank T.J. Mackey, which is now being put yes. out into the world. <laughs> that was great. Oh, it has it has some big laughs, and I I certainly enjoyed it, and can't wait for the third one. <laughs> I I love yeah, these, these movies. These can so. keep, yeah, these can keep going because yeah. Daniel Craig is clearly having a blast with mm-hmm. it. He's got this uh, crazy accent. He's uh, having fun with, and and again, he, and the two movies are kind of using his character in a very different way. So I I, I would definitely look forward to a third entry. Yes. What did you think, Bill? Did you like Glass uh, Onion? I, you know, I, I, I don't have strong feelings one way or the other on this one. Like, I, I, I thought it was, um, it held my interest. I, I think, I think what points you're raising about like the political satire of it are, are dead on, and I, mm-hmm. it's interesting to think of it that way. Um, I thought Janelle Monae was amazing in it. I thought. Um, As as a comedy, I didn't find it like this is totally subjective. I didn't find it that funny, (laughs) Um, but yeah, I think I think that in a year with Confess Fletch, I think that was more my kind of writing style. But Mm -hmm. but you know, I mean, I I I I certainly don't really understand the vitriol for it either. Like I thought it was probably kind of on par with the original film for me. I mean, they're you know, it's not that that kind of drawing room whodunit comedy is. I, I like it in the moment, but it's not something that really kind of lingers with me. Like it's, uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's just light escapism. And I don't, um, I don't have like strong feeling one way or the other, but like, I, I think I watched it partly cause I, I, I think I saw you rated it highly on Letterboxd. I'm like, well, I, I feel like I should have some kind of thoughts on this one, even though I, I know that my, my feelings on knives that were not really passionate one way or the other and this is kind of the same thing for me like i i i like all these actors i i, I think especially janelle may is like the you know it's really the best thing i've seen her do as, as an actor um but yeah i i didn't i didn't recognize her when i saw her in the credits i'm like oh that's her <laughs> yeah and i don't know how it will play on a second viewing with certain twists with her character and like why people react to her in a certain way makes a lot more sense after certain information is revealed and um, I mean, it's definitely like a very clever film. And I, I, I agree that the notion of like the twist is that the the um, the mastermind villain is completely idiotic, I think is uh, <laughs> I, 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 it, they got me. I mean, I, I think that, it, you know, th- there there are moments that I, I think are definitely clever. Like I, I I see the appeal of it, but it was just OK for me. <laughs> like I didn't I didn't I didn't, uh, I didn't love or hate it. Yeah. No, both of them are very good. I just, I don't know. They do kind of evaporate a little bit once once they're over. But not in a way, like, again, it's very entertaining. It's one of those movies where, like with Knives Out, I showed it to my family 
for a holiday and we all enjoyed it and it was a good time, you know, but yeah. Uh, and, and, and like, like Emily, the criminal, like I, if I had company over, like, I feel like this would be an uncontroversial entertainment choice. Yes, for sure. Uh, oddly enough, I showed this movie to my mom and she really found herself uh, in, engaged with it as well. And I, I wasn't sure how she would feel about it because it's an unconventional approach to a biopic. And that's uh benediction by Terrence Davies. And it's kind of the almost like a summation of this director's work and his life in some ways. And yet it's also, like I said, a biopic on a 20th century war poet named Siegfried Sassoon. And uh, it's, you mentioned the script, Bill. Oh my Lord. It's so in love with words and it makes sense given the fact that he's a poet, but it's not just like him reading poems aloud or something or that's the the source of it. It, it it's just the way people interact and engage with each other throughout this whole movie really got to me it was almost like watching gilmore girls <laughs> something like just <laughs> how fast people are talking or just like they're saying witty things throughout the movie but it, it, you know and and not in a i guess you could say that stylized certainly but i i i found it very like just heartfelt too i just thought it was really genuine and 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 Davies has done that you know in other films but he's so he's more focused on the visuals and and being that type of storyteller and especially when you think of something like the long day closes there isn't nearly as much dialogue that's 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 again a meditative mood uh piece and character study and sort of another reflection on memory which I'll get to later on but this this could very well be his swan song because I think I think Davies just found himself connecting on a very profound level to this poet that we're f- following throughout this movie, and I could see getting a little restless with a couple of kind of melodramatic moments involving relationships not working out. I can see kind of checking out a little bit with with that stuff. In other in other words, it's like things we've seen time and time again in these types of movies, but the acting is stellar. Um, it's, it is a lot similar to when, what I felt when I saw a quiet passion in that words are weapons and you can do all sorts of things with them to convey certainly things like love and desire or anger and resentment and, Resentment always goes much further than it was supposed to go, <laughs> and that can can happen throughout um, a person's life. Uh, and it's also about the passage of time, which is clearly something that Terrence Davies touches on thematically time and time again throughout all of his movies. And it's you know a little bit about the poetry of being in love and learning to love yourself, but also hating your life. <laughs> it gets you know the, him as an old man in this movie. Oh. He's just so grumpy and grouchy and angry. It's so hard to watch because he just kind of like dismisses people later on because he never got to be his authentic self, which also includes, you know, being able to be a gay man because homosexuality was illegal at the time. And he just got out of the army and was dealing with um, PTSD in a way that had him, you know, more or less, you know, not, not, not committed to an institution, but you know, a, a, a place where you can try to deal with what you've been through. Uh, and 
again, it just it does feel like Davies is saying things um, about himself in this movie to where it feels autobiographical and the uh, the score here is really really nice. Uh, Alexandre Desplat, who does all sorts of scores from you know historical dramas to uh, animated films, it's it's just really poignant and lyrical. That's definitely the way you describe a Davies movie is lyrical, uh, and it's a vision I think always moves me. Like everything that he's done, I feel really, really uh, emotionally attached to in some way or another. There's maybe like only one or two movies of his that I don't care for, but um, I I just, I think this is a nice way to celebrate all of his strengths simply by watching this movie. And yet at the same time, it's also a biopic and a story of a life that is interesting. So um, it's great. And, and, and in some ways it is like a summation of a career. Like I said, that is similar to my next pick at number four, which we will get to later. <laughs> yeah. And I will be bringing up Benediction as well. I'll just say now that, um, you know, I, 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 I wish Sergio was still here regardless of, course. of what, I mean, but I, just as, as an observation that I wish he had recorded the Terrence Davies episode of director's club that he was scheduled to do. Cause I would have loved to have heard his, thoughts on this one but um i'll i'll, I'll talk about it again um the, uh, i don't want to cut off brad brad have you seen this one no in fact i'm really behind on uh terrence davies i've only seen the long day closes which i love oh yeah so well, good if you love that you'll likely love this <laughs> excellent <laughs> yeah and if you have a a long day that you need to fill then you could watch <laughs> my number uh what is number five which is a nearly four-hour documentary called Mr. Bachman and His Class, uh, directed by Maria Speth. And this is a documentary about a German school teacher. I don't know if I know how to pronounce the name of the city. It's Stad Tellendorf. But it's, it's a school where it's got a heavy immigrant population. So it's got a mix of Romanian and Bulgarian and Turkish uh, Kazakhstan, I think, like different uh, nationalities or origin, you know, of the children are represented beyond the uh, the German native uh, kids, and you have this teacher, Mister Bachman, who, yeah, I think we mentioned School of Rock. He's like a slightly less manic Jack Black type character in some ways, in that he does play music with the kids and like plays guitar and they 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 cover songs and such. But it's also it's not like gimmicky or like building to those moments. It's just like that's something that they do. But it's also him trying to get through to like these uh, kids that um, they have different cultural differences. Some of them struggle with learning German or English or different languages. They're supposed to. Um, all share and it's it's kind of dealing with the notion of like a melting pot and like working out how to get everyone to do their best even though they have like such individual challenges like being uh in this in this situation and because the film takes one might argue an overindulgent amount of time telling this story i mean it's like i said it's over three and a half hours long but we really get to know all of these kids uh, in a way that like, a quicker paced thing would not uh, allow for. Like it's never 
dull. Uh, it, it, and it, but it's, it's a measured pace, but it's, uh, you get to really like all of these people and, uh, you know, he'll sometimes like challenge their views. Like when something like, uh, homosexuality comes up and like, these are kids that sometimes come from very traditional or, uh, you know, religious, uh, households or just culturally just he he's he's trying to impose liberal humanist kind of views in a gentle way um when but it's not him trying to uh like he's very like hands off when it comes to like uh letting kids be kids like he's a little bit like the jack black character in school rock like he's he wants to be one of the gang sometimes but he's also he's also a real teacher a real authority figure um it was something that i had heard was showing up in some best documentaries of the year type list. And it wasn't the kind of film that I would probably initially seek out on subject matter alone. And I wasn't really seeing it on a lot of lists, but um, I kind of sought it out because I was curious. I think it's on Mubi. So if you have a Mubi subscription to Amazon, you can stream it through that. But I found it just really kind of compelling. And, and, uh, and by the end, I really, I, I really just felt quite affected by it. Um, and, uh, you know, because it's set in Germany also, I mean, they're, when they talk about history, I mean, they talk about uh, the Third Reich and things like that. And then you're dealing with like this racially diverse kind of group of children and how they input that information. It's it's just it's just perspective on, on again, like the theme of coming of age that I don't think uh, I had seen quite done this way. Um, you know, and it's a documentary that only occasionally seems to be. I mean, kids occasionally look into the camera, but it's so I can never really tell how much of it is really captured and how much of it with any documentary that's entertaining. I wonder some, sometimes if there's manipulation, I have no idea how they achieved this thing, but, um, but whatever they did, it did work for me. And um, so that is uh, Mr. Bachman and his class. <laughs> wow. I, I don't think I'd heard of it. Me neither. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. There's just so much to see. Indeed. And uh, my next one is something I know you guys have seen and have talked about, but now I am ready to talk about women talking. <laughs> number four. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I, I'm actually, it couldn't be more different than Glass Onion, but the, the thing it has in common is something that I really love about certain kinds of films, which is when a film has a very strong point of view on political and social issues, I really don't want to be hit over the head. Like uh, there was a movie last year that divided folks called Don't Look Up that had a very noble political agenda, but all the subtlety of a sledgehammer. Mm -hmm. And what I'd rather happen is the kind of thing that, that happens in, in women talking, which is we're, we're going to discuss a very serious issue of basically how men treat women, sexual assault, rape, the inherent inequality that exists to this very day. But instead of, in, in, instead of talking about it as a instead of limiting it to a particular time and place, the movie is very purposefully vague about when and where it is set. It seems to be, you know, a, either an Amish or a Mennonite village at some point, but we, we don't really know what. And I think it's on purpose because 
it wants to be a little bit more universal about it. It wants to talk about how these kind of things can happen at any time. They're happening today. They happened 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And what do we do about it? And that's kind of taking it to the next level. So the heart of this movie are these women meeting to discuss basically whether they should stay and fight the oppression that they know that they live with or to just leave altogether. Now, if, if you kind of look at it on a realistic level, it falls apart. The, the truth is that if this were a real situation and, and the entire community of women tried to leave a uh, small patriarchal town, they would be stopped, especially as it's, it's clear that uh, the men in the town are not afraid to, to use violence. So they would be stopped. So this um, opens up more as a fable. It's more of a what if kind of movie. It's, it, even at the beginning, it says it's kind of a, something of the female imagination. And that opens it up to something less realistic, but more thought provoking as every woman in the community or every woman in the barn where they're discussing these issues is coming from a very different point of view. Uh, you know, so one woman kind of representing more love and forgiveness, another who's more interested in revenge. We have older women, younger women, and we see how living in the suppressive society affects everyone in a very different way. And every single performance is so nuanced, is so strong that um, you don't need a lot of backstory. These actresses uh, and, and the one actor, Ben Wishaw, who uh, plays the one man who is uh, taking notes and, and taking minutes and also is painted as a three-dimensional character. So I, I just think this is wonderful how you're getting an issue looked at from all these different points of view. And I also, I, I think it was mentioned earlier that uh, some people didn't like the cinematography of the uh, muted colors. I, I thought that was a great decision because what it did was it allowed for kind of a nighttime during the day. So even though you're in a place that is uh, supposedly bright, that supposedly all the light shines in, it's muted. It's dark even while bright, which is, I think, reflective of the situation the characters find themselves. That's a good point. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I can, I'm, I'm I, fine I, with I, I'm, I'm in the I'm in the didn't enjoy it aesthetically camp, but I, I see that argument. Um, uh, you know, I, I can see how it would work. I. I just yeah <laughs> sure yeah. <laughs> i mean it, yeah it's it's an unusual choice it's like where you you because at first you're like wait is this in black and white and, no no <laughs> yeah no I, I i really everyone knows how i feel about it and i'm sure i'll like it even more when i see it again and oddly enough a movie i saw a second time that i wasn't sure was going to make my top 10 or not it uh it, it crept up there on a second viewing on Christmas Day, aw. Um, so yeah, I again, I, I earlier I said you know about benediction as it sort of being a summation of themes, and you know I I I get really tired of people who sort of criticize a movie for being a therapy session for the director. 
because for me, like, I don't, I want that. <laughs> I, I, maybe other people feel differently. Like, oh, why put that up on screen and save it for the therapist's office or something? I don't know. I, that's one of the reasons why I love movies. I want people to, to deal with their trauma or their past or their history or in some way that's, you know, obviously it should be entertaining, but it, it, it could be, yeah, cathartic for, for not just the filmmaker, but for the audience. And I am, talking about Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, uh, which in some ways, when I, when, I, when I walked out of it, I even said, this is kind of like his licorice pizza, in a way. Uh, just going back and thinking about his life, but uh, you know, coming to terms with certain things that have happened. I think for, for PTA, it, that one's definitely more fictional, but this is... Uh, this as I'm watching it and certainly both my aunt and my mom, they would turn to me when we were watching this together and go, Oh my gosh, that's you. Oh my gosh, that's you. (laughs) Uh, so basically this is about, um, a less famous me. Um, or wait, I'm sorry. (laughs) Make that (laughs) a more famous me, uh, in, in the form of modest. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because I, it's funny too because in this movie he goes to see the greatest show on earth at the beginning and is kind of amazed and awestruck certainly by that train wreck sequence and when i first saw et at the age of seven i was also amazed and awestruck and kind of traumatized too by seeing et be as sick as he gotten and you know, the hazmat suit, bad guys, all of that really wrecked me. Oh, you know, like just kind of, I wasn't prepared for it at that age. And so it's just funny to think about the fact too, that I had a Lionel train set and I made movies with my friends and there's just things in this movie that are directly taken from my life. And at the same time, this is also kind of an interesting love letter to cinema because it isn't entirely a love letter. It's sometimes critiquing his filmmaking in a way because he's very self-reflective, but not romanticizing every little thing. Like some people will walk away from a lot of Spielberg movies going, oh, that was too sentimental. And, you know, I I could see that in some cases, like certainly the, the big speech and something like Amistad towards the end where the score is being raised. Yeah, there's, there's things in his past that I kind of roll my eyes at, but I didn't at all during this movie. I, 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 I just found every performance, every interaction, everything about it seemed to work for me. It is a little long and it is, uh, I don't know if every subplot needed to be in there because I don't know if it all ties together. Certainly you can make the argument that, um, you know, some of the high school stuff, if, if you didn't include it, it might've made for a tighter film that's focused primarily on the family and its relation to filmmaking. But um, there's, there's certainly a moment involving a divorce announcement that I think is possibly one of Spielberg's best shots in a, in a, in a while in which he's imagining himself filming the family breakdown from a distance in the mirror. What, the second time I saw that, that actually, I actually got goosebumps. I, I started thinking about his choice to actually include that shot in this movie. And it made me like sort of reevaluate the fact that this isn't just like, 
yes, I love movies and let me show you why. And I think some people wanted that too from this movie and have it be less about the, the, the family and the dynamics between everybody. But I, I mean, there's even a scene between brother and sister I found moving. And like we talked about with Judd Hirsch, I loved the writing in that scene. And yet I know people who don't <laughs> just find it forced and, and clunky or, or, or whatever. And yet at the same time, even if it is kind of, eh, again, I use that term to describe licorice pizza, but very episodic in certain ways, I think it does all come together in a very satisfying and entertaining and interesting way. Uh, you know, I've had complicated relationships with my parents. I certainly had to deal with a high school bully. I, you know, made a lot of weird movies as a kid too. Sadly, I never met John Ford, but uh, I think the final note this movie ends on uh, is just really, really special. I don't know. I when I saw that you know David Lynch was in this, I think I knew going in, but still, it was just it made me so happy. It and the final shot is just really, really lovely. <laughs> it's, I thought that was great too. I don't know. I mean, this is one of those cases of. A personal response, maybe trumping criticism again, where it was just like, oh, I I get this movie because I've kind of lived a lot of it in some ways. Certainly, I never became a filmmaker, but that's okay. I became a podcaster, and I feel uh, triumphant in that in some ways too. But it's, you know, I I don't know. Sometimes Spielberg doesn't click with me, and modern Spielberg is touch and go sometimes. But this one just got to me especially when i watched it again uh and of course what can you say i love michelle williams <laughs> so that that helps too like i was watching this with the family and and sharon turns to me and goes oh i know why you like this <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i love i love the fablemans maybe we'll hear about it later from somebody else but i don't think it, i don't think it's, i can guarantee i don't it. think that it's bill actually no it's not me um no, no. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I know. I feel like just the villain on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it was fine. I mean, I, 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 I wanted to love it. I, I, everyone that you know was worried it was going to be too schmaltzy. I'm like, give me schmaltz. I'm, I'm good with that. And uh, I love that cast. I love David Lynch. I mean, I, I, and I think that it's interesting, Spielberg almost never has anything to do with the um like that he's he's seldom the writer on these films i mean for all the films that he's famous for so many of them are the screenwriters and other you know adapting other sources and so it is interesting to see him do uh his most personal film um and i i didn't i didn't dislike it i mean there's a lot to like about it it's i mean he's a great director there's so many brilliantly uh rendered scenes in it something just didn't quite add up for me i don't know it's hard for me to really put my finger on what i I think i was when they first get back from the movies and i see how the performance style is going to be it felt like a lot more stylized to me than i think i was expecting and i don't know if it's my imagination i think i was watching it and i was thinking about how people behave in jaws and sugarland express and the really early spielberg close encounters and this felt like just like a lot more scripted, a lot more heightened in a way that like, I think I found a little jarring at first. I don't know. I, I don't hear anyone else ever make this observation. So it could just be totally uh, just me thinking this, but um, I, I think um, like there are 
weird digressions that I don't quite understand I, other than that they come from life. And so he, he had to include them because this is um, something he's that close to that. Uh, like if, 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 if mom gets a call from a ghost at night, you know, it's, it's, that's what they, that's what she told us. And so that goes in the movie and it's like tonally quite strange because it's nothing that's really ever addressed again as a movie, but because it's autobiographical, it's, it's, it's forced in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I like, I like coming of age stuff as we've you know, talked about many times over the course of this. And certainly like, I'm, I'm good with like a oh, new kid in town and religious girlfriend and school bully. And yeah, I mean, all that stuff is fine. I, I think it's what I'm curious to see again, to see if it grows on me or if I'm going to have the same distant respect for it, which you know, it's it's definitely not dislike. I mean, I I like plenty of it. I was never bored, but uh, I also was not quite as moved as I think the film wanted me to be. So um, that's I, I I'm hoping that that changes. But that's kind of my my honest gut reaction to it. Yeah, and uh, another great moment. I th- I just think this movie's full of really great moments, and certainly the the scene where Sammy shows to his mom the little film that he's made yeah and well she I watches even, it in the closet i was like well, the oh. weird thing about that is that i know that it comes from spielberg but it also comes from De Palma. oh yeah 100 percent. i even told i was telling my my family that i was like yeah there's a little yeah. De Palma going on in there well that and, and indirectly from antonioni mm-hmm. Oh, sure. mm-hmm. yeah well i mean a little, little bit of blow up in there a little bit of blow up but i mean even you have some De Palma rubbing off on the prom when the carry camera work <laughs> So mm-hmm, it's like, yeah. it's, yeah, it, it is. I mean, and the, the John Ford scene, I mean, I love it because I love David Lynch, but I also knew every line because I've heard Spielberg tell that story in the John Ford documentary that Bogdanovich did when he did the recut of it. And so it's like, I knew every line already. <laughs> so it's a little bit, uh, I, I wish I didn't know any of it going in because uh, it's verbatim what he tells in other places with the uh, horizon and all that kind of stuff. but it's still fun. I mean, and, and David Lynch's very measured timing seems to come from his universe rather than Spielberg's. And I love, <laughs> I love that weird mix of like Lord Dern's two most iconic, well, not well, iconic directors, I guess, but uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I certainly, I would certainly defend it from a, a, an out and out detractor. Like I like the Fablemans, but I, I, you know, I, I, I think something, something, I, I think I was just on the outside looking in a little bit with it too. Um, but certainly like I, I admire the try. Same, same, you know, talking about the, the Baumbach film, like I admire the effort of it. Like, and it doesn't, it, it sounds like, you know, like, you know, kind of middling kind of praise, but yeah, I, I do like that. They're trying to do something. I like personal filmmaking. I, 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 I kind of always regretted that Spielberg seemed so uh, concentrating on being the most successful filmmaker of all time, which he became that I think that he would be more willing to make a ready player one kind of film uh, or, 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 you know, something that's a little bit less personal um, and that he had this story to tell, but I, I know that he says this in plenty of places that he was kind of reluctant uh, while his parents were still alive to tell it. And, um, so I think that's all interesting. Um, and it's one that I will, I mean, it's Spielberg. I'm sure I'll revisit it. I, you know, and I will probably forgive what I find flaws in it, 
with with repeat viewing i think um yeah yeah so i mean it's i don't know but i mean i'm only going off one reaction and that's the reaction i had <laughs> um so my my uh my number four is one that jim you've already brought up but is god's country uh julian higgins which i just think is a really again like emily the criminal it's just a really satisfying kind of a genre film, kind of a character film. And um, you mentioned, I think, The Killing of Two Lovers. I also thought of another film that more people should check out called Wild Indian that came out that year as well. Oh, I don't think um, I ever saw that one. But yeah, I heard a lot. I, I yeah. know that our, our friend Elric Kane is a fan of that one. Right. But um, yeah, no, what I liked about this one is that it felt like a contemporary Western. Um, that it's a very like old fashioned small town drama. It's a, it's a uh, teacher dealing with hunters and there's a cabin getting burned down. And it's, I mean, it's very much like a throwback just dressed up in cont- contemporary setting, maybe a little bit dealing with contemporary racial themes, but it's, it to me feels like the best kind of throwback as far as just the kind of satisfying genre film Hollywood used to make all the time. And now it's, just kind of creeping onto Amazon prime and hopefully people find it, but it's, it definitely deserves to be talked about as one of the best, you know, American films of the year. Um, as satisfying as any of the Coen brothers films that occupy this territory for me, maybe not as brilliantly written as those guys, but as far as entertainment, I think it, and, but not like cheesy sellout entertainment. Like it, 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 go, it goes to like a grim place. Um, like it doesn't have like, uh, it's not an easy film, but, uh, but as, as it just a, 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 a uh, story of like, uh, unspoken tensions and kind of walking into situations that you had no idea were as complicated as they were. Um, this would make an interesting double feature with the Banshees if you, of Inishirin, if you think about, especially yep. how things play out, not to spoil anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Say no more. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I just think that this was, again, I, you know, it's the same year as, as God's Creatures and Godland, and there's all these God movies kind of blur together in my head. But like this one, you know, I I think you had told me, you know, to to check it out, and um it was already on my list, but I might not, I might not have gotten to it just because it just seemed kind of generic on the, on the surface of it. Um, which is why I felt like especially motivated to speak about it because it, it is one of those kind of buried treasures you hope to, to find and, and maybe an even richer film. I mean, Emily, the criminal is, is more of a genre film. This is a little bit more like a, a an art house genre film, but it's still satisfying as, you know, playing by the beats of, of, of a of a small town thriller i mean i would put it alongside films that have come up on this podcast like a simple plan um in terms of of its overall impact um so yeah uh that is my number four so speaking of genre art, art house uh, i finally get around to everything everywhere all at once yeah and yeah and it had to happen eventually <laughs> But my, my reaction when I after I saw the movie for the first time was, this is like what would have happened if Charlie Kaufman wrote The Matrix. 
And I mean that as such a compliment in both ways, because it is one of those things. It's kind of like the science fiction elements are pretty trippy and everything going on. Once you kind of get your mind around the whole multiverse thing is, uh, is a lot of fun and, you know, makes you think about the different ways where we see the characters is Michelle Kwan is sometimes in uh, you know, as an is as a is an actress, and sometimes as a cook, and so on and so on. But I think it also has that Charlie Kaufman element, which is that so many high concept movies just have the concept, and that's it. You have your weird thing, and then the whole movie is just supposed to rely on that. But with with this movie, the concept is just the beginning to something that's a little more resonant, that's a little more emotional. So you do have all this madness going on, but it's leading to something. It's leading to a mother-daughter story. It's leading to why people might feel alienated from each other. And taking, again, this high science fiction thing and trying trying to take it to its logical conclusion and then go back to how do how does this mean we can get along how does this mean we can establish a a stronger family you have uh you know not only the mother daughter situation but then how they communicate with the grandfather and it all comes together and it's a tough thing <laughs> to do because this movie is balancing a lot of different juggling balls, but but it, it 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 keeps them all in the air. Yeah, that's interesting. It's also something you I almost have to see a second time because of how much is going on. Well, you spend the first viewing just trying to figure it yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's one I I will definitely see again, and I I I, I mean I I hope that uh, I mean I. I I hope that I can connect with it a little bit more. I mean, I, like I said, I, I, I kind of already spoke about this one. I mean, it's, it's one that I, I, I admire its ingenuity and I think it has moving moments. So maybe it'll cohere a little bit more easily for me on a rewatch. I mean, I just found it a little bit overwhelming. <laughs> and you're not a big matrix guy, oh, right? Bill? Yeah. No, I've only seen the matrix once and I didn't like it. I've always meant to go back to it because it's clearly the most culturally important film of a major year in film. I, I, I just, yeah, I didn't connect with it at the time. Yeah, I don't think any of us mentioned the Matrix movie that just came out. Maybe that's for the best. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think was that last year. I hope that was last year. Yeah, I think it was. But it, uh, oh, I, okay. Uh, yeah, it was all right. It blurred. <laughs> so, the, one of the reasons why I love doing this episode and doing these lists is the sheer whiplash. Bumper car, unexpected, complete opposite <laughs> from the last pick. Something very, very, very different from everything, everywhere, all at once. Is an uh, Irish film. And it's called The Quiet Girl. Uh, I, I, I haven't seen this on a lot of lists. I know people. Again, it's one of those. It's, it's a total petite mama situation, where. Uh, we got sent the screener for it and technically it's not going to be given an official release until February. So people have to be patient and people have to seek this out. I keep wondering though, if I go back to this movie, will I still love it or am I just so 
impacted by a final moment that, you know, I, I sort of left with that feeling, you know, and certainly I was, I had to get the Kleenex, uh, for, for reasons I won't go too deep into, but so when I was, when I was a kid, I, I loved this movie. I couldn't relate to it necessarily, but there was this movie called Savannah Smiles that I loved as a kid where it was just basically this girl who was very neglected decides to run away and then ends up with these two bumbling (laughs) hapless criminal types that basically just build this surrogate family together. Like they just sort of become friends and she feels all the affection and attention that she doesn't get at home with these two uh, criminals. One of which was played by Mark Miller, who we lost fairly recently and happens to be Penelope Ann Miller's uh, father. He, uh, that, that whole movie really got to me when I was a kid and I watched it over and over and over again. This is almost like that, but in a very quiet, very subdued way. Uh, it's based on a novella and uh, director Colm Bayreed uh, is... I think this is his debut. I have to double check that, but I'm pretty sure it is. And it, the, the the protagonist, the, the 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 title character here, is very quiet and doesn't say a whole lot. And I was like that when I was young as well. But she's unfortunately in a crummy situation with a lousy father and an overburdened mother. There, there there's this you know there's a lot of kids in this tiny house. And there's just this feeling of people just surviving without fully being alive or completely loved because how do you give your equal attention to everybody? And so they, they decide to send her away and she ends up with a couple of parent figures that give her the kind of attention and care that she deserves. And suddenly now she's feeling tenderness and, the warmth of actual human connection for the first time to where now it, it it's almost like you're freeing a butterfly from, from its cocoon. And, you know, visually it's stunning to look at emotionally. It's, uh, overwhelming in the right ways. And for me, like I, you don't see it too, too much. And, and certainly something like Armageddon time touches on upon on t- child abuse. And that's really hard to watch and experience for, I think most people, but even just seeing her neglected and, and to the point of having to hide under her bed early on really, really got to me. It was, it was something where I felt instant compassion. Uh, and it, this movie just unfurls like, 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 like really subtly and quietly and beautifully to where I can see people you know, feeling like tuned out and not connecting with it the whole way through. But I, I certainly felt a lot of emotions watching this. Uh, and there's this, you know, nice little sentiment in which the father figure later on tells the little girl, and I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but he says something like talking is a little bit overrated. So you only speak up when you have something you really want to say and, you know, kind of don't worry about small talk. And as someone who grew up shy and quiet, I was made to feel like an alien. <laughs> you know, I would—I could have used somebody to say that to me when I was younger. So to hear that and see her experience that really, really moved me. And like I said, the very final moment um, 
it, it, I was just a complete wreck. And so to me, like this is like this year's petite mama, because it's uh, an examination of, you know, youth and growing up and complicated relationships with, with, with parents and wanting to connect more in ways that go beyond words. So, and plus God, Ireland is gorgeous. <laughs> There's a lot of beautiful shots throughout this entire movie, much like my number two choice, which should be pretty obvious since I mentioned Ireland at this point. So I won't say anything more, but I just want people to seek out the quiet girl. And I, I just think it's a special film, but one that I just felt really uh, a personal connection to. So quiet girl. Yeah. Um, Br- Brad, have you seen this one? I wish, but I have not. Okay. Yeah. And, and is it calm bear, bear Ray, bear Ray, yeah. the director, uh, he, he comes from, I want to say from television. I think this is his theatrical film debut, but yeah. I'm not hundred percent. I think that's the story with him. I, I like this. I, I saw this, um, at your recommendation, it actually ran for a week in New York. I think kind oh, of good. similar to one fine morning in that it, I think, I don't know if it's like an awards consideration kind of move, but it it played for the Angelica. So I actually did a very gym double bill. I saw this and the whale back to back, oh and boy. Um, and uh, I thought this was great. I think um, it's not on my list, but I I saw a lot of movies last year, so it, it got kind of crowded off. But um, and I didn't respond to it the way I did Petite Maman. But I, it's I mean Petite Maman is like a like a, one of my favorite films of that year. Uh, oh yeah, this is still this is still a very uh satisfying uh film that i think it it feels like a little short story like it doesn't overstay its welcome it doesn't it doesn't build to anything cheesy or like uh like too melodramatic like it's it's restrained but not like but not like emotionally removed um yeah uh, that's a great way to describe it yeah yeah but it's yeah it's perfectly told it's uh yeah it's one i've thought about since seeing it i i uh I would see it again. I would definitely echo your endorsement of it. If people uh, get a chance to see it probably more easily this year, because it really just kind of was a quick blip on the, on the, on the uh, scene. I think it probably got overshadowed by all the other big awards films that were all arriving in December. But uh, yeah, no, I I think it's definitely a a great little sleeper film that I think, uh, you know, uh, is worth, uh, worth checking out. Um, I like quiet movies. (laughs) <laughs> I really I sometimes as much as I like it, everything everywhere all at once, I like the complete opposite, you know, like a very quiet, calm, meditative experience. Very yeah. sorrowful, melancholic. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a, it's a terrific movie. And um, yeah, definitely like a, the kind of sleeper that deserves a, uh, a proper shout out on a list like this. Um, my, my number three is also uh, got a few Irish accents in it, but it's the, the Banshees of Vinishiran. Um, what that's my number two Ah. (laughs) um yeah and you know this one was one that i i went into maybe out of a sense of duty because i knew it was picking up some attention and i did not go into it as a as someone that was like drawn by the premise of the trailer i was not a three billboards person i didn't I didn't like really quite echo the vitriol, but it was just, I, I it wasn't really for me. And I, I, I saw it in, in Bruges, but I, I don't really remember it. I saw it very late at night. Um, so I went into this with no real, um, you know, overt enthusiasm. And I was just kind of gripped from beginning to end by it. Um, and I think, 
I think it it's for very personal reasons. I think I think that the the drama at the center of it, you know, as far as uh, what happens when one friend abruptly needs to move on from another, and um, I mean, this is a, a a melodrama that where you know a character goes to extreme measures to honor that decision. Um, I don't relate to that part of it, but I think that um, I related to the central premise of it in a way that. Uh, made me very uh hard and these are all subjective obviously but i it's very hard for me to be uh subject you know uh, objective with this one in particular because i just found it very uh heartbreakingly relatable like no other film that i saw this year um so i i, I wouldn't say that that it's as as a comedy like i smiled more than i laughed at it um i i have some irish blood in me but i don't come to it with any like overt Irish pride that it wasn't like this the the milieu is especially like drawing me in I think I just I thought the performances were so moving and honest I thought the whole ensemble like I was perfect in it uh, everybody's great and I and I thought that it didn't like like a few films that I've come up with on this list like Return to Soul and the uh the uh, the inspection this is not a film that that wimps out when it it comes to facing its darker uh foregone conclusions like i was honestly surprised that it went the places that it went i thought this was going to be not the full monty but i thought it was going to be you know a little bit more like the kind of good-natured small town you know european kind of comedies that miramax used to trade in in the 90s you know or fox searchlight like i thought it was going to be something a little bit more uh genteel than it is it's a pretty rough film uh in places um and i think i think it just i've only seen it the one time uh i did buy it but i i ran out of time to revisit it i i don't know if it has that same impact on a rewatch i kind of get where brad's coming from that it's you know i could see this being a little bit underwhelming if it if you didn't lock in with the themes of it i think i just yeah for me i think i just was kind of like I don't want to say it was on the edge of tears or anything, but I was really like in a, in a very emotionally engaged place, like no other film I saw this year uh, for most of the running time. And so, uh, you know, I, the top three on this, I mean, it's all very kind of arbitrary. Like I don't really know that the two above it on my list are necessarily better, but um, this was one that did affect me a lot. And I was surprised by it. And I know that there are people that I think this is the most overrated film of the year. Um, and I, I, I get that there could be a backlash to it. If you don't connect with it, I get why, you know, it wouldn't be for all tastes. But I, I think for me, I think I just, uh, th- this is the one that kind of caught me in the heart the most of, of uh, the films we're talking about today. Well, so many people that I, that I know and respect absolutely adore this film. So I think it's ap- definitely going to require a second viewing on my part. And, uh, you know, it's like you were saying about some other films. You know, you, you never know. You can be in a particular mood at, at some time. A film will affect you in different ways. And there's enough I do respect about it that I definitely am looking forward to a revisit. And I think I should just talk about it. I mean, hopefully that doesn't confuse everybody with where we're at. But since it's my number two, um, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this just is the end of a beautiful friendship i i don't know i don't know maybe once in a while i'm like 
oh, why did why did that person unfriend me? And now I'll never know. <laughs> like, there's just little things like that. I mean, I kind of joked when I even just called this unfriended on Letterboxd. And it's, you know, again, that's it's more there's more going on than just that. And certainly I think what I don't know, maybe what moved me or made me think deeply about this movie is that. I kind of understand where both of them are coming from almost equally. I would never cut off my fingers. That's let's draw the line right there. But <laughs> I, mm, I, I get what Brendan Gleeson is saying. And this is almost kind of, uh, you know, delving into things I talk about with, you know, uh, just my regular day friends or my partner or whatever. But I start asking this question a lot, even as I'm recording an epic podcast here, as, as I'm getting older, I ask what's more important, socializing with good people or creating things or recording something or writing something like what purpose is that going to serve when in reality I should be going out and enjoying my, the company of, of, of friends or, family or just making an actual effort to engage with other people sometimes. But then the sort of introvert artist in quotes prefers being able to stay at home and record something, record a song, record a podcast, watch a movie, read a book, all those things, or of course create something in the same way that he does with his fiddle. Like that's something I completely related to. So I, I got where it was like, I don't want to hang out at a bar with a friend. <laughs> I want to be doing something else. Or I, I feel like it might be a greater contribution to put something out into the world than just sitting around talking the whole time. Yet here we are talking about movies together as friends. But <laughs> I mean, this, I don't mean that in the negative at all. I enjoy this just as much. And we are creating something by putting this out into the world. Uh, but at the same time, I get where Colin Farrell's coming from in this movie. To where it's like, hey, we were just friends. What the hell? We were do. We had this routine. We were, in, you know, socializing together and having a beer and having conversations. What changed? And so I get both of them, and certainly I get the uh, mediator, the, the you know Carrie Condon's uh, sister, is trying to make sense of both of them and trying to reach out to both of them and be sort of the balance between the two. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I really got, yeah, I got really, really um, inv invested into this story. I wonder what the ending means. And again, we don't have to go into great detail and ramble on about just what we feel is going to happen between these two people, since it's sort of an ambiguous conclusion, more or less. Like, are they just going to go on, <laughs> you know, hating each other and never speaking again, or will they reconnect down the line? I don't know. Uh, certainly, I, I, it's not always based in reality when you think about the fact that his... <laughs> Brennan Gleeson is walking around bleeding <laughs> and not getting any sort of attention or even stitching himself up or something. Uh, so I don't know. It's And certainly there's that, that um, almost like death-like character roaming around. Mm. with the the prophecies going on too that's a whole other element of it that kind of uh, creeped me out a little bit but it's it's a beautiful movie it's it's a dark movie it's a very upsetting movie i think people expecting more of an in bruges like 
comedy will be disappointed. I think even Patrick said that like the, the McDonough comedy elements are not to be found as strongly. It's, it's more of a melancholy movie. So yeah, that might be why I, yeah. What, why it kind of caught me the way it did because yeah, as, as a comedy, like I said, I smiled at it, but as a, as a character study, I was just devastated by it. Yep. So now I've confused the order of things, but I think it's it's Brad's turn for number two, right? Yes. All right. So for me, number two is Todd Fields tar, Hmm. which uh, I hope we can revisit some of the things that were discussed before. because I really, I really think that what this movie has to say uh, again about our current culture and about the whole idea of cancel culture is pretty interesting, especially because I don't think the movie takes a side. I think the movie uh, has a very even-handed approach to showing this character warts and all, to giving her her say when she makes, uh, you know, the, uh, maybe the centerpiece of the film is this speech she gives to the student who's questioning Bach and the... Uh, and the importance of studying dead white males. And she has, I think, a very strong response. But the movie isn't going to kind of just let it go at that. It also shows that she has a hypocrisy about it. She has a way about her that is so, um, that is maybe too pure in the artistic sense that makes her not be able to function on a human to human level. And the film builds wonderfully. It's first 45 minutes or so basically just gets us into the world of classical music and not just classical music, but kind of the academic politics of classical music, which is something I sure didn't know about, but the film took its its time to really familiarize ourselves with this world. And then Kate Blanchett, is is doing everything uh, as far as acting goes to show show all sides of this character, show that she can be cold and manipulative, but also that she's you know passionate and and cares about things. And the style of the film, I think one of you mentioned uh, Kubrickian, and that makes a lot of sense. Like there's a distance to it. It's it's kind of got that uh that that coldness that we talked about with decision to leave and so as a result you're 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 on this journey but you're not given the standard movie directions to go on this journey you really uh are making your own decisions all along what what do we think of this character where are we on this idea of what it takes to no longer respect somebody's art, no longer respect somebody publicly. The movie doesn't answer those questions. It, it, it just keeps posing more questions. Yeah, I should. I like movies that pose questions. I don't know why. I, I think I shouldn't just. I'm just going to reserve future comments until I watch it again, because maybe that's what, what I need to do. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's 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 certainly high up on a lot of lists for a reason and I can see the value in it. I just, uh, yeah, like I said, I I had more of a question mark at the end of this movie. 
And we're going to arrange a screening. We're going to arrange a screening where I will rewatch The Fablemans. Everyone, <laughs> everyone, everywhere, all at once. Um, what was the other one? Uh, uh, and Brad will rewatch uh, uh, the, uh, the Banshees. Banshees. Yeah. And uh, and and Jim, you will rewatch Tar. We'll, we'll we'll do this as a as a marathon. And it'll like be a long idea. day, but uh, we can all get through this. I'll bring the drinks, <laughs> please. <laughs> Or edibles, or there you yes. go. <laughs> um, no, I I don't know if I have a whole lot t- more to add about Tar that we didn't get into in the last round of it. But yeah, no, I I, I kind of see it the way you see it. As far as yeah, it's 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 content to ask provocative questions and let us decide. And I think that I think we're at a moment in time where people don't want that. <laughs> Well, uh, I can't just... decide. That's the problem. Maybe that's just the problem. Well, yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. We, we, we as, as film people, we and anybody who's passionate about art will deal with this on some level. It's like, you know, what do we do with Roman Polanski? Mm. And we can, you know, I'm not, we not go, don't want to go into that, but I mean, we could spend an hour talking about yeah. that. And it's something that's in the culture right now is this idea that, um, People are complicated. People are just, some people are just weird. People are not, you know, neat and tidy to the point where we can always just unreservedly say, yes, I back this person. And so we're all, we're all facing this right now. And we're in a a time when, you know, the spotlight is just being shown on the idea that our quote unquote heroes, you know, have lead feet. What do we do about that? Even though we love the work. You know, it's funny. The, um, the thing I knew even as a kid about British media and tabloid media was just this tendency. And I don't know if this is actually true. This is what my understanding of it was at the time was that, uh, it was very into building up and tearing down people because this sold papers, like the drama of, of a rise and fall and then, and then a re you know, a re uh, you know, a return sometimes too. And I, you see this in popular culture all the time. I think Robert Downey Jr. is a good example of someone that like becomes famous in the like tragic fall, like with drugs and everything, but then the, the return, the, the, the redemption and that people love that too. And I, I think that social media um, kind of conditions us all to be looking for this kind of story all the time. Uh, to build people up into heroes and then destroy them when they're too big and then maybe rehabilitate them. But it's like that same kind of media thinking, because this is good for eyeballs. I think people, because they, they, they want that attention and social media is about garnering attention and validation. And this is trained people to look at life in the way of a, of a tabloid journalist sometimes. And I think that c- cancel culture is just, uh, if it is a thing, and I think that it kind of is, I, I, you know, uh, I think that um, I think that that way of thinking uh, it has to do with how people use this information for themselves. And it just it's it's the same way all things work in conventional media. It's like sex sells, cute animal sells, uh, shocking opinion sells, and. Uh, dramatic expose cells. And I think that people are looking for dramatic expose everywhere. And so Polanski's an extreme case because he rapes a minor that he drugged. <laughs> it's not like ambiguous, but I mean, you can, you can bring it to more ambiguous situations and the effect is still the same. 
but but here here's I think what's in nineteen I forgot the year, but when the pianist came yeah. out, everybody knew that, and they gave him best director and a standing ovation. Yeah, and you know, and now that could never happen. Yeah, and they re, they re, they re, they returned his Oscar or right. they canceled it. Oh, did yeah. they? Okay, yeah. I mean, or they or they kicked him out of the academy. It, I can't remember, but yeah, no, they right. they took a a brave stand thirty years later. <laughs> Right, right, right. Because they they knew that wasn't new information, yeah. and, and so like yeah, it is about uh, the character of Tar and about both her accomplishments and her failings. But I think it's also about you know how do we as a society respond to this. Do you want me to do my? My my number two or yes please <laughs> okay well um, this one doesn't raise those kinds of uh, provocative points and it's one that I think I I I will I really loved it but it's one that I don't expect to wind up on a lot of lists but it is one fine morning uh, written and directed by Mia Hansen Love um, it's uh, it's uh, you know one of my favorite directors and this is kind of kind of a return to the the middle-class Parisian settings of some of her uh, key earlier films like Goodbye First Love and Things to Come, um, while also kind of drawing from her perspective as a parent, uh, something that you see a little bit with Bergman Island, her previous film, and um, stars Leah Sadu, who's in a bunch of films this year that I liked. Um, but she's playing a translator living in Paris as a single mother. And um, so it's kind of about her having to face up to the responsibility of caring for her father, um, who can no longer really care for himself. Dementia and blindness are affecting him. Uh, at the same time, uh, she's experiencing the highs and lows of a new romance uh, with a married friend. And um, so it's kind of this back and forth between a uh, woman having to raise a daughter who's kind of temperamental herself and can act out in ways that can be a little bit funny. I won't spoil any of the jokes, but um, you know, as well as kind of being almost like a parent to uh, to her father, who's even more childlike and more easily frightened, more helpless. Um, but you know, it's she's she's escaping these responsibilities with this reckless uh, kind of romance, um, and it's it's great because it's it's a little bit erotic in places. It's it's matter of fact. It's it's very French. The dialogue is very uh, is very. Uh, intelligent um and it's you know i think that again we talk about autobiography this year with films and this is from what i understand like like relentlessly autobiographical down to the locations where things are happening i think are coming directly from her life like it is a film that is drawn so much from her own autobiography um and uh yeah has things to say about the role of art in life i mean what happens to the books you accumulate when you're no longer uh of of the uh, you know your your earlier mental faculties to even read them anymore. Um, what happens when the music that you loved hurts now to hear it because it reminds you of the past and you know it's it's difficult. Like it it raises those kinds of points, but it's also just um, typical Mia Hansen love like cool melodrama. Like it it's dealing with like these melodramatic situations, but it's not really messy. Um, and so it might be a little bit underheated if you need the more Serkian or Almodovar kind of approach to melodrama. Like it's, it's, it's very French, but I love it. And, uh, I, 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 you know, uh, I hope more people will check it out. I think it played for a week in New York with a, uh, strategy to release it 
um, soon uh, in select cities. And I don't know that Mia Hansen Love has ever really had a big crossover film. I'd be shocked if this was that film. But, uh, you know, I always kind of hope for her to pick up more of a following. I mean, I did a whole <laughs> director's club on her. Um, so I would think I was a little bit more kind of swimming in the whole filmography of of her in my head when I got to this one. So I'm a little bit biased. Um, but uh, yeah, no, uh, One Fine Morning is a film that I hope more people check out and hope people like as much as I did. It's one fine film. <laughs> I, I liked it. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I just felt uh, a stronger connection to Bergman Island or um, even things to come. And... Father of My Children, that's an, that's the other one mm-hmm. that I've seen. And uh, yeah, I I don't know. I, I I wouldn't say that like what happens in this movie is a huge surprise or I, I didn't necessarily feel it was repetitive. I just, yeah, one of those cases of it. I liked it and certainly was never bored and certainly... Uh, Leah Sadu can do no wrong. She's just a compelling screen presence in every way, and nobody can like cry and smile like her. Uh, and the, the like you talked about the the the, the just the, the aging factor, and you know having to. That's that's one of the hardest things to think about. Then could potentially be happening in my life is you know what what happens with an aging parent what do you do how do you handle it what's the best course of action how much can you be a caretaker and sacrifice your own life that's a huge question in this movie that resonated with me um i guess i don't know the the relationship with the, i just didn't necessarily i don't know I, I i i wish i'd felt more strongly about them ending up together or not i was more of like that's more of a shrug for me that that component everything else surrounding it yeah i i really i really enjoyed watching yeah i don't know i mean i don't even know that the the romance to me it felt like not even important that he be defined so much as like what he represents is just a distraction mm-hmm. um, sure because she's what is she a widow in the film so it's like she's somebody that has been alone for i think five years and so uh, earlier Mia Hansen Lowe films deal with like these uh, romantically obsessive women. Um, Goodbye First Love does that. And and Bergman Island does kind of a flip on that premise by having it as the film within the, or the yeah, the story that she's telling as a fiction. But, um, but she, she has dealt with characters that are uh, almost self-destructively obsessive about their romantic partners. And this is, a little bit more of a mature, wizened kind of Mia Hansen Love heroine than some of those, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, because she's she's just exhausted. I mean, she's got too much on her plate to be yeah. as 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 reckless as those other characters. But um, I don't know. It's funny because it, I mean the the need to care for aging relatives is something that many people will have to deal with and it's not what you go to the movies to <laughs> experience in stories like it's it's a social issue thing but it's it's not escapist for people to con- contend with that idea but i think that it's interesting i mean it's i don't know that it really rubs your face in the like the biological messiness of caring for you know a relative that can't like you know take care of themselves uh you know it's not like trying to be uh unpleasant it's just it's just dealing with that reality but like 
the character's trying to escape from it the way that we might want to escape from it. And uh, I don't know. It's it's definitely one I'm I'm still kind of chewing over, and I haven't really spoken to anyone about it yet. You're, this is actually the first time I've ever spoken to anyone about it because no one has seen it yet, really. It's only played in limited release, and I guess it will have more of a wide release next week or next maybe this month. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I I'll be curious what people make of it. Um, my my friend Gianna, who was on the uh, the Mia Hansen Love Directors Club episode with me runs real hot and cold on on Mia Hansen Love's film. She I remember dest- <laughs> destroys my favorite one, but uh, I'm curious what she will make of it. And so yeah, I'm curious what yeah I I know that um, was it Brian Tallarico. I know one of your critical friends was tough on this one, but uh, Mariah yeah. Gates. Oh, was it Mariah Gates? Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, we're about to hit the six hour mark. You know what that means? <laughs> it's time. To wrap things up with our number one films of 2022. I'm so excited to know what they are. And we're going to start with Brad. Well, I guess you're going to know what mine is. I think is. you know what mine is, too. Moonfall. <laughs> oh, there you go. No, my, surprisingly, my number one has a lot in common with my number two. Uh, they are both about the... Uh, art and responsibility relationship. They both, I believe, uh, present characters who are in conflict and withhold judgment. The tone is very different. My favorite film of 2022 is Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. Wow. Not only is that my favorite film of the year, for me, I think it's the best thing he's done in decades. Oh, wow. and, and I love a lot of his work, uh, but... I think he's done. I think he's done some such interesting things here. Uh, as an autobiographical story, he is delving deeper, you know, into into his own psyche, and I think that's where someone like Tony Kushner comes in to kind of allow for a little bit of an outside view there. But it doesn't go where expect. It doesn't go where I expected. It is much less sentimental than I thought it would be. It is more akin to really an exploration of what it means to be a, uh, to be a filmmaker. And it's doing this in this, in the context of the autobiographical things that the young man is going through, having uh, two parents who are complicated, having a mother who is mentally ill and a father who is kind of an aloof um, technocrat. And then the various situations that lead to their divorce and how he responds to that. And the thing is how he responds to everything is through film. So you do have that scene we were talking about before where, uh, where he shows uh, images from his films that kind of indicate the affair that he suspects uh, his mother is having with his father's friend and also the hurt that comes of that. And so the Judd Hirsch speech about how it, how art can hurt, how responsibility might, or, or how respons- where responsibility comes into play is something that may or may not be considered and it's something the character struggles with. And you don't necessarily expect that, you don't expect that. You don't expect something akin to uh, uh, Kozlowski's uh, camera buff. 
<laughs> which is a movie that some of the scenes here reminded me yeah. of. And then just kind of when you think it's on autobiography, autobiography, uh, autopilot, it pulls another trick. The high school scenes are fascinating to me because first of all, they gave him a love interest with an, which, with an actual personality uh, and some quirks and is, is a funny person on her own and didn't just kind of settle for, of course, you know, our protagonist is going to get a girlfriend because that's just what has to happen. She has a personality. But then you have this bullying situation that um, seems like another movie. I mean, I thought that I've heard this criticism and I thought that too. All of a sudden when we're dealing with these two bullies, one of whom is uh, much more aggressive and the other uh, more conflicted, uh, you think you're in a different movie. But then you see the film he makes uh, of the school outing and you see him portray his bully in this uh, almost Lenny Riefenstahl light and use his art as a form of power, as a form of responding to this and standing up for himself, where as a, a kid who feels bullied, who wouldn't necessarily be able to do so verbally, he stands up for himself through his art. And this is a, um, a theme that goes throughout the piece and I found just really surprising. And then just ending it with the brilliant John Ford story, who, which I've heard too, but it actually, if you, uh, if you didn't know that story, that would be even more effective. And <laughs> it was, and then the little, yeah. And then the little joke at the end with the, uh, uh, where, where, where the camera is placed for the, for the, a skyline. It's just every element just kind of comes together. I don't think that always happens with Spielberg, but I'm so glad it did here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing it again. And yeah, like, I, I feel like I've already kind of spoken about this one and, you know, I don't have more to add, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you, you definitely sell me on it. And I, I, you know, like I said, I, I, the things I liked about it, but yeah, I'm hoping that the whole thing coheres a little bit more for me on a rewatch which maybe can, it will can you guess what my number one is gee i don't know i i haven't <laughs> talked about it at all i haven't messaged anyone about it or tweeted or yeah. made a facebook yeah, we'll call. You, you, you blonde fans are just so subtle i know <laughs> i know it, it's hey you know andrew dominic what can i say but no i mean the, okay well let's see hmm i I think Patrick and I have had the same, like we ne we rarely have the same number one. So maybe for all you podcast fans that go way back, maybe that tells you something right there, but um, no other film moved me, mystified me, shook me <laughs> than Charlotte Wells masterful after sun, which I've described as like a photograph album of a film that I'm almost hesitant to watch again, because I think, I don't know. It might send me back into therapy with even more to talk about, <laughs> but I guess that's a good thing. Um, I don't know. I, I, I can understand people just, I mean, e even a critic, I really, really respect, uh, put out like a year in, in review, uh, sort of summation, uh, Mike D'Angelo. And I don't always agree with him, but I'm always fascinated and think he's a great writer, but he did not connect with this movie whatsoever. 
and has called it the most overrated movie of the year. And if people feel that way, that's fine. They're, they're entitled to. But it's, it's such a personal projection of a movie, you know? I mean, really, when you have... Um, when you've lost a parent, it's 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 very hard to watch certain movies about parental relationships and not feel something. And I, I I also saw this described as like gorgeous melancholy, and that's kind of where I'm at with with movies. Those are the ones I love the most. Is you know your Kelly Reichardt's and you know anything that's like just kind of not exactly clear in what the narrative is or if it's jumping around or if it's just a mood piece or a memory piece and it's all those things it's it's a voyage through regret and memory and studying sort of how we reflect and remember the past in hopes of reconciling not just our relationships with our parents but who we are now at this point in time and it it really is one of the best movies i've seen about how we remember our past in this very fractured way. And certainly it helps to have great musical moments too, great uses of pop songs, but also, I I don't know that, that final act, it, it it's so interesting how it doesn't have this big gut punch moment, but yet it has the emotional weight of one at the same time. Like I just felt a lot watching that moment even though it's not necessarily clear as to what happens to the father and again another movie all about ambiguity to where people could find it frustrating to not get answers and like we've talked about with tar i don't know if it'll explicitly say every little thing that's going on in this movie to where some people might have different reactions outside of me just thinking of it as a a, a portrayal of depression within a parent and when you're a kid, you don't understand that. But then when you're an adult, you think back and you think, wait a minute, maybe I feel depressed because maybe my, one of my parents was depressed. And at the time I couldn't process that or know what that was. And now I do. So it's a, a, a great exercise in empathy and movies that really convey that just work wonders on me personally. So I love the framing style. I think it's 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 interesting to have that shaky mini DV camera um, cutaways throughout. Everything just sort of complements the feel and the story that takes place between a father and daughter on vacation. And then again, there's not a whole lot that happens in terms of drama. You just see moments scattered throughout that uh, are, are hit close to home. But I think for most people that have had complicated relationships with their parents, you'll recognize something here. And again, another coming of age story too. <laughs> so there's just a lot here that manages to all cohere in a very satisfying way. Um, it's quietly affecting. It really uh, is something I'm going to be thinking about for a long, long time. And I absolutely cannot wait to see what this director does next. It's easily my number one movie after sun. Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's a great one. Yeah, I, I, I like this one a lot as well. I, I, I had hoped to rewatch it today and I, I was not able to. So I've only seen it the one time in the theater and it was uh, one of the things I wasn't taking any notes for. I, 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 have, I have memory of the of the sensations of it, um, but I have. Which is very I, appropriate. <laughs> yeah, I don't <laughs> I don't remember 
it being confusing. And when I meet people that are not on board with it, they make it sound like it's needlessly opaque. And I don't remember it being confusing. I, I, I It's, yeah, like the the framing the, the the jumping back and forth in time i mean to me feels quite clear as it's a memory film but not like a uh i don't know i mean, I, always, I always knew where i was you know once i understood what the structure was um yeah i think that was clear but i i guess and, and i'm curious as to when you guys basically really hooked on to the theme because what the father was going through i only slowly kind of realized because I think they're giving the clues very subtly. And then as you get to the end of the film, it becomes much more clear. But for me, I I went through a a good portion of the film kind of not realizing the true dynamics of the relationship. I think, I think um, maybe some of the scenes where he's on his own, maybe when she sneaks out at night is when Mm -hmm. I started kind of piecing it together. Like I wasn't quick to identify it, but I I think, uh, once I knew whether that's where it was, I'm like, okay, well then, and you know, the initial jump forward in time, you know, initially it's, it's, it's kind of a shock. Like you don't know where you are, but yeah, by the end, I think it, I think, I think it's satisfying, you know, and and not in a way that spells it out too neatly, but I I didn't feel like cheated in any way by, by that approach. I, I, I would rather have too little than too much information sometimes. Yeah. Well, I know this again, Something that we've said a lot on this on this show throughout, but it, it's clear that the filmmaker it, it's very autobiographical, mm. and I know she lost her father very young, and I I I, I want to say it's very possible, and I ha- I have to confirm this and make sure before I you know set it in stone, but I I believe he might have taken his own life, mm-hmm. and that's kind of that. That's what I kind of gathered, yeah. but again, it didn't it didn't spell that out. Correct, but that, that ending just adds a whole other. Uh, <laughs> it's just so sad when you think of how this movie ends, but it's it's really powerful. It's really something. I I, I can't wait to see it again, actually. But I know I'm going to be a wreck. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm looking forward to seeing it again, also. And uh, yeah, it, it was. Um... It was, I mean, it was on my list, but it's one that I, I felt like I needed to see again to know just how he played on a rewatch because I, I didn't know how it played without the element of surprise. Um, but you mentioned uh, Beautiful Melancholy, and, and my number one is Benediction, which we've talked about a little bit, uh, Terrence Hooray! Davies. Great choice. Um, yeah, and, and this one, I mean, I don't know, you kind of already did it justice as far as like what it's about. I mean, it is about, you know, like you said, uh, the poet Siegfried Sassoon, uh, played by uh, Jack Loden in, in the majority of the film. And- oh, yeah. I forgot to mention he's he's really good in this movie. And I, I, I couldn't help but think he's got the DNA of both Simon Pegg and Ewan McGregor in him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's he's fantastic in it. I mean, the whole yeah. cast is is top. Is, is top tier performances, but this is like a very subtle elegiac film. It's a perfectly uh, acted and beautifully designed in terms of the aesthetic of it, like with this uh, great somber uh, color palette. Um, and it's, you know, you follow this character who's the poet. He's um, someone that is committed to a psychiatric ward after you said PTSD, but is it because of that or because he I has a moral objection to the war? Like maybe, a no, you're right. Maybe you're right. I thought, yeah, I thought for some reason 
he's treated like he has PTSD, but it's really like he's a conscientious objector. Yeah. But then he kind of moves through the the London of the twenties, uh, mm-hmm. although the last act is in a in a different time period. But like it's a um, you know, it's just this 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 melodrama. I mean, it's a series of romantic affairs, and he is. Uh, like you said, like a, a gay character who, in, in this time, he, it's like he's risking like a you know criminal complications to to live his life, and he eventually has to uh, marry into this uh, you know this straight marriage just for, you know for appearances. But it's basically about like his series of romantic affairs, um, even um, a major one being uh, Ivar Novello, um, who uh, this might make a good uh, double feature with Gosford Park. <laughs> Uh, you know, as far as like you know, his character, but here he's more of like one of the heavies. But it's like everybody, it's there's a lot of witty, bitchy dialogue. Like, it, you know, I, I mentioned Fassbender with the um, the Peter von Kant film that Ozan did, and um, Please Baby Please, the uh, which isn't on any of our lists, but also uh, a really good uh, kind of cultish film comedy that has a whiff of Fassbender as well. This this also kind of reminds me of, of what I like about Fassbender and that it's like a uh, it's like Serkian melodrama, but it's so stylized and too perfect and too pretty that it it feels unreal um, uh, in a way that it's like obsessed over. And uh, Terrence Davies, I haven't seen every film he's done, but I, more often than not, I think the films he does are flat out masterpieces i mean i think that uh, long day closes is probably the consensus favorite on directors club and i i would probably also agree um but i think like you mentioned the quiet passion i thought quiet passion was amazing and and it's the kind of film that i never really heard anyone talk about it after it came out and i'm just like how how is something this amazing just being kind of shrugged off as like oh it's it's just it's just that guy that you know uh does that kind of quiet kind of english period film you know i mean oh holy crap by the way the house of mirth yeah so that's a movie everybody should be talking about and seeing and there should be a blu-ray restoration and commentaries and it that to me is like an unsung masterpiece that i got to see this year it got thrown away i remember when it came out yeah And I mean, and, and, you know, Davies has his champions and I am sure that he, you know, maybe, maybe this will wind up, you know, being honored in the Criterion Collection or whatever. I know that they, um, I hope so. You know, they had a thing on him on the Criterion channel and, um, you know, I mean, th- if this is his last film, then it's like, he's going out on as strong a film as one could ever hope for, uh, from a director that, always seemed like super uncompromising and personal as as an artist and um you know i mean i don't i i don't know this is just one that i i went into because like oh well i like terrence davies and i'm checking out the films of the year and maybe this will be good and it just it made me laugh out loud it was very funny but it was also so sad and so beautiful that uh you know, it just was a kind of, I think at the time that I saw it in the year, I was just like, I needed to have a film that was that good. Cause I'd seen a lot of things were like, they were just, they were fine, <laughs> you know, but I hadn't seen anything that really was like, Oh no, I, I know that I love this, you know, which, you know, I, I, this is just that kind of film and it's going to not be for every taste. Um, I don't think any Terrence Davies film is, but um, 
uh, for a good like Sunday afternoon, uh, funny melancholy period set film. I think this is you know really remarkable film that I again it's just maybe because of where it came out in the year it doesn't seem part of the same conversations as some of the other films we're talking about and it doesn't really push buttons or pull at heartstrings quite as aggressively as some other films so it's just it might just be too too english and too studied for uh critical twitter kind of talk but i mean i know that the people that like terence davies all i'll get it i know paul schrader was blown away by it. i mean people people that pay attention to davies know but if you haven't seen any of his films i mean long day closes is in the criterion collection it's probably a good place to start um I think I only saw that because it was an acknowledged influence on Spider of all things, the Cronenberg movie. Um, yeah, yeah, and and I don't know. I mean, this is really great. Quiet, you know, Quiet Passion is really great. I mean, this is this is an artist that I think is too easily slept on in America. And yeah, I think I think that I, I mean, I like I said, I really hope that. Uh, you know, whenever you get around to the Davies episode, I mean, this is, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's not an overwhelming body of work. He's only made a handful of features really, but uh, given how long he's been around, he doesn't have the same productivity as someone like Mike Lee, but he's, he's uh, just as consistent, I think. And um, yeah, no, this was a really nice surprise. Cause I, I mean, quiet passion would have been up there for me too, when that came out, but it's, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't get why, these films aren't more discussed, um, but uh, yeah, maybe they will be on this show maybe in the they future. Will be on this show, but that's my number one. Oh my gosh! You know, you know what's interesting uh-huh. is all three of our picks very autobiographical in some ways. I know that Benediction is a biopic, but still, there's a lot of Davy's personal life interspersed throughout <laughs> that movie. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very, very personal. Uh, experiences conveyed and portrayed on screen from for all three of our number ones of 2022. Wow, what a year, guys. We did it. We made it. So um, Top Gun Maverick, what do we say about that? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's fine. I liked it. It's, it's fine. No, no, nobody said the A word either. No, I don't need to. Uh, I'm, I'm never yeah. going to. I don't even know if I'm ever going to watch it, to be honest. <laughs> I have uh, I've been avoiding it. <laughs> well, isn't, isn't the A word after Sun? We talked about that. Uh, no. no. Yeah, I get it. Uh, <laughs> after Sun um, was, really was quick, people. Yeah. Uh, uh, I always do this anyway, even though we have a lot of... We're going to wrap it up completely in a minute here, but there's still some titles. <sighs> Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, Hold Me Tight, Decision to Leave, On the Count of Three, Return to Soul, uh, Seoul. <laughs> I always say that wrong. Our... So- uh, Soul, R R R, Tar, This Much I Know to Be True, To Leslie, Glass Onion, uh, The Woman King, and eh, why not? I'll put, you know what? I'll be nice. I'll put Nope in there as well. Why not? I liked it more in a second viewing. The first time I saw it, I was like, ugh, I didn't like it. But now I liked it more in a second <laughs> viewing. So those are just some other titles just to throw out there if people really want to check. You know, I'm sure most people know about those movies, but still, I just did it for fun. I, I'll throw in Captain Ahab, the story of Dave Steeb, which is is a uh, it's more like a YouTube mini series of documentaries, and it's more like a PowerPoint than a theatrical cinematic film. But it's a really super engaging 
obsessive detailed story of this baseball player. And I have never seen a baseball game. I'm not that kind of sports person, but uh, I found this really compelling and I saw it showing up on some lists and I threw it on my own because I found it super engrossing, but it felt too far from conventional idea of cinema for this discussion. But uh, I I would echo if you've seen any chatter of it online, I thought it, uh, it was really interesting as well. Earwig, the um, art house horror type film I thought was super atmospheric and, and, and had the same kind of power that the earlier Peter Strickland films uh, have for me. I did like his more recent Flux Gourmet, which uh, is sees him kind of moving increasingly uh, comedic territories following uh, In Fabric, uh, but still uh, a great director. And I, I, I would uh, want to shout out also uh, Midnight, which is a, uh, I think it was a Korean thriller, serial killer type movie. Uh, not on my main list, but like a really gripping uh, you know, film that uh, I, I didn't hear a lot of people talking about that, but that's a really good one. And I think Something in the Dirt is the last one I'll just shout out with Aaron, uh, Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson, the guys that did um, The Endless and Spring. And they play the leads in this kind of low budget film about conspiratorial thinking and the uncanny. I won't spoil anything in it, but it's, uh, it's a, it's a sweet little quirky uh, film that played for a week in my town and I caught it and it was very confounding, but in a compelling way. Well, unfortunately for me, once you get uh, past 25, it's mostly movies I would not recommend. (laughs) I, I, I do not think uh, anyone needs to be seeing Clerks 3. So uh, I will just say that both of you have given me a lot of great ideas for some future watches. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, that's what yeah. that's what we aim to do here on Director's Club. Oh, wow. That was oh, so much fun. It always goes so long. I hope people don't mind the you know, the length. And so I know some people have made the argument, yeah, you should just split it into two parts. And I've certainly done that in the past, but now I'm just like, nah, you can listen to it in chunks. You know, you got a pause button. Exactly. That's true. Where can we find more of your work? Everybody. I know Brad, you're mostly living on letterbox, right? That's about it. That That is my place. Uh, you could see not just uh, the last few years, but I actually went ahead and ranked every year. So if you're really interested in like recommendations from, you know, anything from 1922 to 1955 to now, uh, you can find it on my letterbox page, which is Brad S. That's easy to remember. Mm-hmm. We can say Brad's plural. Yeah, that works too. Except the S is capital. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. And, and Bill, you're, you're all over the place, including on this show. But um, yes, you'll yeah. be and back soon on, enough. Yeah, I think I'm on Letterboxd, but I mean, I, it's probably very dissatisfying to follow me. I don't really even do star ratings or write often uh, on there. But I just if you want to see what I give a heart to and what I don't, <laughs> you're welcome to to stalk me on there. Um, and yeah, I, I do uh, Director's Club sometimes now and uh, supporting characters is on hiatus. Uh, but you can find my uh, my earlier episodes on the, the Now Playing Network and other places. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all those places. And as far as I'm concerned, I, uh, I, I mean, I'm so grateful that you're contributing the way you have, but I, I I cannot even imagine when, 
you know, I think it's we've sort of talked about your next contribution in March being Jean Luc Godard, and I just don't know how you even begin to tackle that. But that's something yeah. people can look forward to. <laughs> for I'm sure. concerned as I'm concerned as much as anything. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm, whew, boy, what an undertaking! I, I, I I'm scared. <laughs> are, you, are you going for the complete filmography? Um, I. I don't think the complete filmography. I, I I've got a lot to do between now and March, uh, so, but I I do plan to um, do more than just the the obvious '60s films. So I do plan to try to cover the whole career, maybe even more in depth than Ken Russell. But uh, we'll see. It's a it's a tricky it's a tricky career to to boil down into uh, to a concise, uh, satisfying. Uh, I mean, you both know how this works. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I am. I've got my work cut out for me for the next six weeks because I'm doing nothing but watching 1993 movies for the next seven hour epic episode that I do every year. I just put myself through a lot towards the end of the year and then at the beginning of the year. So. Those are such fun episodes. I love those so much when you guys do those. Yes. Oh yeah, people really love. They love the year end and. <laughs> the crazy retrospective episodes so i i'm that's a tradition i gotta keep up with even uh even though sometimes i get a little tired which is normal because when you talk for that long oh my gosh your brain starts to wear out and i cannot wait to do that with colin and eric for the 1993 retrospective, that's the next official episode, which usually comes towards the end of February. So maybe there'll be like another bonus treat or something in between to tide you over. But honestly, I think everybody should be happy with six hours of 2022 discussion here. So again, thank you to Brad and Bill for coming on and please visit directorsclubpodcast.com and the nowplaynetwork.net. Like I said, there's a couple of ads in between here in between segments. So um, check out those shows. You'll know what they are when you hear the ads. And I'm grateful to uh, have them join the NPN family. So lots to look forward to have a happy and safe 2023, everybody. And uh, I'll, I'll likely be talking to the both of you again in about a year. I can't wait to see what 2023 has in store for us all. Nervous about that Kelly Reichardt conversation already. <laughs> ah! Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. But uh, there's a lot to look forward to, I'm sure. Yes. Thank you. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye bye. Happy 2023. Wow. We did it. Na pata suru, na pata suru, na 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 na